You're listening to Heisenberg. Lion Crest Publishing presents Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. Read by David Goggins and Adam Skolnick. Life isn't fair. It's not supposed to be. Life is not biased to anyone. It doesn't matter if you're black or white, gay or lesbian, rich or poor. Life doesn't discriminate. Once you accept the fact that life is going to fuck you up in one way or another, you can start preparing for it. The right mindset is everything. It'll be the only thing that will get you through life. Having a can't-hurt-me mentality will always keep you in the fight. You have to be open-minded enough to believe that whatever life throws at you, you can overcome. What I'm about to do is very uncomfortable for me. I'm used to sharing my story on a very surface level, but for the last eight months, I drilled deep in my life with Adam, my ghostwriter. I was forced to go back to the sewer where I once lived in my mind. To be honest, writing this book was one of the hardest things I've ever done mentally. Being completely vulnerable and exposed are some of the hardest things a person can ever do. We all have a story. You are all about to hear mine. Life isn't always fun, so how I talk about my life is raw, real, and authentic. I was the ultimate underdog. I was the weakest one of the litter. Knowing that, I had to figure out a way to survive and ultimately thrive. Back then, there was no talk about mental toughness. That shit didn't even exist. You just had to figure shit out. I realized at a very young age, I was fucked and I had a very long and hard road to hoe without any tools. I wanted to give up more times than I could count, but that voice in my head wouldn't allow me. Being at a disadvantage forced me to create an indestructible mental toolbox, one I couldn't get from theory. It would have to come from practice and repetition. I had no peace in my life because I was living a lie. I didn't want people to know the real me. No one wants to tell people they are insecure and afraid. I realized for me to find peace, I'd have to face my fucked up life and fix it alone. No one was coming to save me. I didn't want money, fame, awards, or even a pat on the fucking back. I was looking for self-fulfillment. I was looking for it everywhere. I realized I couldn't find it from an outside source. It would have to come from within. And to find it, I'd have to be willing to go to war with myself. One thing I figured out along my journey is that you have to believe you are here for a reason, not just floating around willy-nilly. I believe the reason I was put here was to unlock the code to human potential, to tell the world you can be born in a fucking sewer and still be the baddest motherfucker on earth. Just remember one thing. Once you climb out of the sewer and are standing on the road, look around and take pride in the fact that nothing can hurt you. Man, uh, I cannot wait to get into this right now, man. I'm so happy to be here. It's been a long time coming, Adam. We've put a lot of hours behind this. Uh, about, what, eight months? Yeah, at least. I think I think we first contacted, yeah, about almost a year ago now. Well, I'm excited, man. Um, what we're about to do is something I don't believe has ever been done before in the audiobook world. We're going to do an audiobook slash podcast slash radio show so we'll see how it turns out project slash 
Um, and so uh, my name's Adam Skolnick. I, I helped David get this book on paper. Um, it was, it's been a labor of love, but it's also been really uh, challenged because this life, to, to be able to, to put this life in stark relief for everyone to see and understand and absorb, it's not, a, it's just not an easy process for you. No, not at all. It was the hardest thing I've done, like I said, mentally in my entire life to have to drill down deep in my life and go straight from the surface and go way deep to, you know, to the sewer where I once lived. You don't want to go back there. You know, once you kind of go back and figure it out and overcome things, I didn't want to revisit that place. Mm. And doing this book made me, you know, revisit it. And also now I'm telling people my life, people I don't even know. So that's even harder. And you asked me to read this uh, because you wanted to universalize your story because this is not about, you know, hero worship for David Goggins. This is about something else, right? No, this isn't about me. And I'm not the hero here. You are the hero. So that's why I'm not reading this book. This book, yes, this is my life. But once again, I'm not the hero. The hero is you. So we're going to get into it now. Uh there's 11 chapters in this book, and in between are 10 challenges. The principles that David outlines in his book are then uh, encapsulated in these challenges for you listeners to be able to apply them to your life. And that's the whole point of this book. Like, like we were just saying, it's all about creating a toolbox for you listeners to then apply to your life. And the motivation will, of course, come from David's amazing life story. Anything else you want to say to prep these guys for uh, what, what's about to happen? Yes, like I said in my small and brief introduction was, you know, basically this is about a habit. This, you know, there was no mental toughness class when I was growing up. I had to figure out an indestructible toolbox to get through my life. And what I figured out along the way is your mind has the tactical advantage over you. And that's what I'm trying to fix here for everybody listening to this. Your mind has a tactical advantage. So what do I mean there? What I mean is your mind knows your insecurities. It knows your fears. And your mind can only process so much. And all that stuff that it takes a long time to process, it starts to filter out. So what that means is pain, insecurities, fear. It wants to get rid of it. It doesn't want to face it. That's a challenge that the mind has no time for. So these tools are going to teach you to start facing your fears, start tripling down on your insecurities, tripling down on your fears, tripling down on your weaknesses, tripling down on being uncomfortable. And that's where you start becoming, mentally, you know, just mentally tough. That's where it happens. And it comes from ownership, ownership of your life completely. And that's exactly what I'm doing here. And that is the hardest part about my story, Adam, is... For me to set the example, I have to put all of my shit out there for everyone to see. I have to own my life. Situation. You are in danger of living a life so comfortable and soft that you will die without ever realizing your true potential. Mission. To unshackle your mind. Ditch your victim's mentality forever on all aspects of your life completely. Build an unbreakable foundation. Execution. Read this cover to cover. 
Study the techniques within. Accept all 10 challenges. Repeat. Repetition will callous your mind. If you do your job to the best of your ability, this will hurt. This mission is not about making yourself feel better. This mission is about being better and having a greater impact on the world. Don't stop when you're tired. Stop when you're done. Classified. This is an origin story of a hero. The hero is you. Introduction. Do you know who you really are and what you're capable of? I'm sure you think so, but just because you believe something doesn't make it true. Denial is the ultimate comfort zone. Don't worry, you aren't alone. In every town, in every country, all over the world, millions roam the streets, dead-eyed as zombies, addicted to comfort, embracing a victim's mentality and unaware of their true potential. I know this because I meet and hear from them all the time, and because just like you, I used to be one of them. I had a damn good excuse, too. Life dealt me a bad hand. I was born broken, grew up with beatdowns, was tormented in school, and called nigger more times than I can count. We were once poor, surviving on welfare, living in government-subsidized housing, and my depression was smothering. I lived life at the bottom of the barrel, and my future forecast was bleak as fuck. Very few people know how the bottom feels, but I do. It's like quicksand. It grabs you, sucks you under, and won't let go. When life is like that, it's easy to drift and continue to make the same comfortable choices that are killing you over and over again. But the truth is we all make habitual, self-limiting choices. It's as natural as a sunset and as fundamental as gravity. It's how our brains are wired, which is why motivation is crap. Even the best pep talk or self-help hack is nothing but a temporary fix. It won't rewire your brain. It won't amplify your voice or uplift your life. Motivation changes exactly nobody. The bad hand that was my life was mine and mine alone to fix. So I sought out pain, fell in love with suffering, and eventually transformed myself from the weakest piece of shit on the planet into the hardest man God ever created. Or so I tell myself. Odds are you have had a much better childhood than I did, and even now might have a damn decent life. But no matter who you are, who your parents are or were, where you live, what you do for a living, or how much money you have, you're probably living at about 40% of your true capability. Damn shame. We all have the potential to be so much more. Years ago, I was invited to be on a panel at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. I'd never set foot in a university lecture hall as a student. I'd barely graduated high school. Yet I was at one of the most prestigious institutions in the country to discuss mental toughness with a handful of others. At some point in the discussion, an esteemed MIT professor said that we each have genetic limitations, hard ceilings, that there are some things we just can't do, no matter how mentally tough we are. When we hit our genetic ceiling, he said, mental toughness doesn't enter into the equation. Everyone in that room seemed to accept his version of reality because this senior, tenured professor was known for researching mental toughness. It was his life's work. It was also a bunch of bullshit. And to me, 
he was using science to let us all off the hook. I'd been quiet until then, because I was surrounded by all these smart people feeling stupid. But someone in the audience noticed the look on my face and asked if I agreed. And if you ask me a direct question, I won't be shy. There's something to be said for living it instead of studying it, I said, then turned toward the professor. What you said is true for most people, but not 100%. There will always be the 1% of us who are willing to put in the work to defy the odds. I went on to explain what I knew from experience, that anybody can become a totally different person and achieve what so-called experts like him claim is impossible. But it takes a lot of heart, will, and an armored mind. Heraclitus, a philosopher born in the Persian Empire back in the 5th century BC, had it right when he wrote about men on the battlefield. Out of every 100 men, he wrote, 10 shouldn't even be there. 80 are just targets. Nine are the real fighters, and we are lucky to have them, for they make the battle. Ah, but the one. One is a warrior. From the time you take your first breath, you become eligible to die. You also become eligible to find your greatness and become the one warrior. But it is up to you to equip yourself for the battle ahead. Only you can master your mind, which is what it takes to live a bold life filled with accomplishments most people consider beyond their capability. I am not a genius like those professors at MIT, but I am that one warrior. And the story you are about to hear, the story of my fucked up life, will illuminate a proven path to self-mastery and empower you to face reality, hold yourself accountable, push past pain, learn to love what you fear, relish failure, live to your fullest potential, and find out who you really are. Human beings change through study, habit, and stories. Through my story, you will learn what the body and mind are capable of when they're driven to maximum capacity and how to get there. Because when you're driven, whatever's in front of you, whether it's racism, sexism, injuries, divorce, depression, obesity, tragedy, or poverty, becomes fuel for your metamorphosis. The steps laid out here amount to the evolutionary algorithm, one that obliterates barriers, glimmers with glory, and delivers lasting peace. I hope you're ready. It's time to go to war with yourself. Anything to add here, David? I hope this story doesn't motivate you. I know a lot of you are thinking, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Motivation is crap. Why do I say that? It comes and it goes. You're very motivated on those days when your life is perfect. When the sun is out, when the bills are paid, when the wife or husband, everything is everything's in its right place. That's when most of us are nice and motivated. So it comes and goes. Let's say right now you read this book and you find motivation from this book and you're living in Chicago. Let's say it's December in Chicago. Chicago in December time is real cold and you're motivated to go out for a two mile run. You open that door and that wind chill hits your face. If you're motivated, you're gonna shut that door and go back and sit down on that couch and watch TV. Those people who find more than motivation from this, maybe a little drive, or maybe even a little obsession to change their life. When they open that door, 
and that wind chill hits their face, they're going to close it just to go back to their closet and put warm clothes on so they can go back out there and tackle whatever's in front of them. When you're driven and obsessed, you no longer care what's in front of you. If your bills aren't paid because you can't figure out a way to do it, if, you're, you know, if your life isn't perfect, it doesn't matter. You realize that's just life. It's not going to be perfect. But that's not going to derail me from what I have to do to get better. Chapter 1. I Should Have Been a Statistic We found hell in a beautiful neighborhood. In 1981, Williamsville offered the tastiest real estate in Buffalo, New York. Leafy and friendly, its safe streets were dotted with dainty homes filled with model citizens. Doctors, attorneys, steel plant executives, dentists, and professional football players lived there with their adoring wives and their 2.2 kids. Cars were new, roads swept, possibilities endless. We're talking about a living, breathing American dream. Hell was a corner lot on Paradise Road. That's where we lived in a two-story, four-bedroom, white wooden home with four square pillars framing a front porch that led to the whitest, greenest lawn in Williamsville. We had a vegetable garden out back and a two-car garage stocked with a 1962 Rolls-Royce Silver Cloud, a 1980 Mercedes 450 SLC, and in the driveway was a sparkling new 1981 black Corvette. Everyone on Paradise Road lived near the top of the food chain. And based on appearances, most of our neighbors thought that we, the so-called happy, well-adjusted Goggins family, were the tip of that spear. But glossy surfaces reflect much more than they reveal. They'd see us most weekday mornings gathered in the driveway at 7 a.m. My dad, Trunus Goggins, wasn't tall, but he was handsome and built like a boxer. He wore tailored suits, his smile warm and open, he looked every bit the successful businessman on his way to work. My mother Jackie was 17 years younger, slender and beautiful, and my brother and I were clean-cut, well-dressed in jeans and pastel Izod shirts, and strapped with backpacks just like the other kids, the white kids. In our version of affluent America, each driveway was a staging ground for nods and waves before parents and children rode off to work and school. Neighbors saw what they wanted. Nobody probed too deep. Good thing. The truth was the Goggins family had just returned home from another all-nighter in the hood. And if Paradise Road was hell, that meant I lived with the devil himself. As soon as our neighbor shut the door or turned the corner, my father's smile morphed into a scowl. He barked orders and went inside to sleep another one off, but our work wasn't done. My brother, Trunus Jr., and I had somewhere to be, and it was up to our sleepless mother to get us there. I was in first grade in 1981, and I was in a school daze for real. Not because the academics were hard, at least not yet, but because I couldn't stay awake. The teacher's sing-song voice was my lullaby, my crossed arms on my desk a comfy pillow, and her sharp words, once she caught me dreaming, an unwelcome alarm clock that wouldn't stop blaring. Children that young are infinite sponges. They soak up language and ideas at warp speed to establish a fundamental foundation upon which most people build lifelong skills, like reading and spelling and basic math. But because I worked nights, I couldn't concentrate on anything most mornings, except trying to stay awake. Recess and P.E. were a whole different minefield. 
Out on the playground, staying lucid was the easy part. The hard part was the hiding. Couldn't let my shirt slip. Couldn't wear shorts. Bruises were red flags I couldn't show because if I did, I knew I'd catch even more. Still, on that playground and in the classroom, I knew I was safe. For a little while, at least. It was the one place he couldn't reach me. At least not physically. My brother went through a similar dance in sixth grade. His first year in middle school. He had his own wounds to hide and sleep to harvest. Because once that bell rang, real life began. The ride from Williamsville to the Maston District in East Buffalo took about a half an hour, but it may as well have been a world away. Like much of East Buffalo, Maston was a mostly black working-class neighborhood in the inner city that was rough around the edges. Though, in the early 1980s, it was not yet completely ghetto as fuck. Back then, the Bethlehem steel plant was still humming, and Buffalo was the last great American steel town. Most men in the city, black and white, worked solid union jobs and earned a living wage, which meant business in Maston was good. For my dad, it always had been. By the time he was 20 years old, he owned a Coca-Cola distribution concession and four delivery routes in the Buffalo area. That's good money for a kid, but he had bigger dreams and an eye on the future. His future had four wheels and a disco funk soundtrack. When a local bakery shut down, he leased the building and built one of Buffalo's first roller skating rinks. Fast forward 10 years and Skateland had been relocated to a building on Ferry Street that stretched nearly a full block in the heart of the Maston District. He opened a bar above the rink, which he named the Vermilion Room. In the 1970s, that was the place to be in East Buffalo. And it's where he met my mother when she was just 19 and he was 36. It was her first time away from home. Jackie grew up in the Catholic Church. Trunus was the son of a minister and knew her language well enough to masquerade as a believer, which appealed to her. But let's keep it real. She was just as drunk on his charm. Trunus Jr. was born in 1971. I was born in 1975, and by the time I was six years old, the roller disco craze was at its absolute peak. Skateland rocked every night. We usually get there around 5 p.m., and while my brother worked the concession stand, popping corn, grilling hot dogs, loading the cooler, and making pizzas, I organized the skates by size and style. Each afternoon, I stood on a step stool to spray my stock with aerosol deodorizer and replace the rubber stoppers. That aerosol stink would cloud all around my head and live in my nostrils. My eyes looked permanently bloodshot. It was the only thing I could smell for hours. But those were the distractions I had to ignore to stay organized and on hustle. Because my dad, who worked the DJ booth, was always watching. And if any of those skates went missing, it meant my ass. Before the doors opened, I'd polish the skate rink floor with a dust mop that was twice my size. At around 6 p.m., my mother called us to dinner in the back office. That woman lived in a permanent state of denial. But her maternal instinct was real, and it made a big fucking show of itself, grasping for any shred of normalcy. Every night in that office, she'd set out two electric burners on the floor, sit with her legs curled behind her, and prepare a full dinner, roast meat, potatoes, green beans, and dinner rolls, while my dad did the books and made calls. The food was good, but even at six and seven years old, I knew our family dinner was a bullshit facsimile compared to what most families had. Plus, we ate fast. There was no time to enjoy it because at 7 p.m. when the doors opened, it was showtime, and we all had to be in our places with our stations prepped. My dad was the sheriff, and once he stepped into the DJ booth, he had us triangulated. He scanned that room like an all-seeing eye, and if you fucked up, 
you'd hear about it, unless you felt it first. The room didn't look like much under the harsh overhead house lights, but once he dimmed them, the show lights bathed the rink in red and glanced off the spinning mirror ball, conjuring a skate disco fantasy. Weekend or weeknight, hundreds of skaters piled through that door. Most of the time, they came in as a family, paying their $3 entrance fee and half-dollar skate fee before hitting the floor. I rented out the skates and managed that entire station by myself. I carried that step stool around like a crutch. Without it, the customers couldn't even see me. The bigger size skates were down below the counter, but the smaller sizes were stored so high I'd have to scale the shelves, which always made the customers laugh. Mom was the one and only cashier. She collected everyone's cover charge, and to Trunus, money was everything. He counted the people as they came in, calculating his take in real time, so he had a rough idea of what to expect when he counted out the register after we closed up, and it had better all be there. All the money was his. The rest of us never earned a cent for our sweat. In fact, my mother was never given any money of her own. She had no bank account or credit cards in her name. He controlled everything, and we all knew what would happen if her cash drawer ever came up short. None of the customers who came through our doors knew any of this, of course. To them, Skateland was a family-owned and operated dream cloud. My dad spun the fading vinyl echoes of disco and funk and the early rumbles of hip-hop. Bass bounced off the red walls, courtesy of Buffalo's favorite son, Rick James, George Clinton's Funkadelic, and the first tracks ever released by hip-hop innovators Run DMC. Some of the kids were speed skating. I liked to go fast, too, but we had our share of skate dancers, and that floor got funky. For the first hour or two, the parents stayed downstairs and skated, or watched their kids spin the oval. But they would eventually leak upstairs to make their own scene, and when enough of them made their move, Trunus slipped out of the DJ booth so he could join them. My dad was considered the unofficial mayor of Maston, and he was a phony politician to the core. His customers were his marks, and what they didn't know was that no matter how many drinks he poured on the house and bro-hugs he shared, he didn't give a fuck about any of them. They were all dollar signs to him. If he poured you a drink for free, it was because he knew you would buy two or three more. While we had our share of all-night skates and 24-hour skate marathons, the skate land doors typically closed at 10 p.m. That's when my mother, brother, and I went to work fishing bloody tampons out of shit-filled toilets, airing the lingering cannabis haze out of both bathrooms, scraping bacteria-loaded gum off the rink floor, cleaning the concession kitchen, and taking inventory. Just before midnight, we'd slog into the office, half-dead. Our mother would tuck in my brother and me beneath a blanket on the office sofa, our heads opposite one another, as the ceiling shook with the sound of bass-heavy funk. Mom was still on the clock. As soon as she stepped inside the bar, Trunus had her working the door or hustling downstairs like a booze mule to fetch cases of liquor from the basement. There was always some menial task to perform, and she didn't stop moving, while my father kept watch from his corner of the bar, where he could take in the whole scene. In those days, Rick James, a Buffalo native and one of my father's closest friends, stopped by whenever he was in town, parking his Excalibur on the sidewalk out front. His car was a billboard that let the hood know a super freak was in the house. He wasn't the only celebrity that came through. O.J. Simpson was one of the NFL's biggest stars, and he and his Buffalo Bills teammates were regulars, as was Teddy Pendergrass and Sister Sledge. If you don't know the names, look them up. Maybe if I had been older, or my father had been a good man, I might have had some pride in being part of a cultural moment like that. But young kids aren't about that life. 
It's almost like no matter who our parents are and what they do, we're all born with a moral compass that's properly tuned. When you're six, seven, or eight years old, you know what feels right and what feels way the fuck off. And when you are born into a cyclone of terror and pain, you know it doesn't have to be that way. And that truth nags at you, like a splinter in your jacked-up mind. You can choose to ignore it, but the dull throbbing is always there, as the days and nights bleed together into one blurred memory. Some moments do stick out, though, and one I'm thinking of right now still haunts me. That was the night my mom stepped into the bar before she was expected and found my dad sweet-talking a woman about ten years her junior. Trunas saw her watching and shrugged while my mother eyeballed him and slugged two shots of Johnny Walker Red to calm her nerves. He noticed her reaction and didn't like it one damn bit. She knew how things were, that Trunas ran prostitutes across the border to Fort Erie in Canada, a summer cottage belonging to the president of one of Buffalo's biggest banks doubled as his pop-up brothel. He introduced Buffalo bankers to his girls whenever he needed a longer line of credit, and those loans always came through. My mom knew the young woman she was watching was one of the girls in his stable. She'd seen her before. Once she walked in on them fucking on the skateland off his sofa, where she tucked her children in damn near every night. When she found them together, the woman smiled at her. Trunis shrugged. No, my mom wasn't clueless, but seeing it with her own eyes always burned. Around midnight, my mother drove with one of our security guards to make a bank deposit. He begged her to leave my father. He told her to leave that very night. Maybe he knew what was coming. She did too, but she couldn't run because she had no independent means whatsoever, and she wasn't going to leave us in his hands. Plus, she had no rights to community property, because Trunis had always refused to marry her, which was a riddle she was only then starting to solve. My mother came from a solid middle-class family and had always been the virtuous type. He resented that, treated his hookers better than the mother of his sons, and as a result, he had her trapped. She was 100% dependent, and if she wanted to leave, she'd have to walk with nothing at all. My brother and I never slept well at Skateland. The ceiling shook too much because the office was directly below the dance floor. When my mother walked in that night, I was already awake. She smiled, but I noticed the tears in her eyes and remember smelling the scotch on her breath when she scooped me up in her arms as tenderly as she could. My father trailed in after her, sloppy and annoyed. He pulled a pistol from beneath the cushion where I slept. Yes, you heard that right. There was a loaded gun under the cushion on which I slept at six years old. He flashed it at me and smiled before concealing it beneath his pant leg in an ankle holster. In his other hand were two brown paper shopping bags filled with nearly $10,000 in cash. So far, it was a typical night. My parents didn't speak on the drive home, though the tension between them simmered. My mom pulled into the driveway on Paradise Road just before 6 a.m., a little early by our standards. Trunis stumbled from the car, disabled the alarm, dropped the cash on the kitchen table, and went upstairs. We followed him, and she tucked us both into our beds, kissed me on the forehead, and turned out the light before slipping into the master suite, where she found him waiting, stroking his leather belt. Trunis didn't appreciate being glared at by my mom, especially in public. This belt came all the way from Texas just to whip you, he said, calmly. Then he started swinging it, buckle first. Sometimes my mother fought back, and she did that night. She threw a marble candlestick at his head. He ducked and it thudded the wall. 
She ran into the bathroom, locked the door, and cowered on the toilet. He kicked the door down and backhanded her hard. Her head slammed into the wall. She was barely conscious when he grabbed a fistful of her hair and dragged her down the hall. By then, my brother and I had heard the violence, and we watched him drag her all the way down the stairs to the first floor, then crouch over her with a belt in his hand. She was bleeding from the temple and the lip, and the sight of her blood lit a fuse in me. In that moment, my hatred overcame my fear. I ran downstairs and jumped on his back, slammed my tiny fist into his back, and scratched at his eyes. I'd caught him off guard, and he fell to one knee. I wailed on him. Don't hit my mom, I yelled. He tossed me to the ground, stalked toward me, belt in hand, then turned toward my mother. You're raising a gangster, he said, half smiling. I curled into a ball when he started swinging his belt at me. I could feel bruises rise on my back as my mom crawled toward the control pad near the front door. She pressed the panic button, and the house exploded in alarm. He froze, looked toward the ceiling, mopped his brow with his sleeve, took a deep breath, looped and buckled his belt, and went upstairs to wash off all that evil and hate. Police were on their way, and he knew it. My mother's relief was short-lived. When the cops arrived, Trunus met them at the door. They looked over his shoulder toward my mom, who stood several paces behind him, her face swollen and caked with dried blood. But those were different days. There was no Me Too back then. That shit didn't exist, and they ignored her. Trunus told them it was all a whole lot of nothing just some necessary domestic discipline. Look at this house. Does it look like I mistreat my wife, he asked. I give her mink coats, diamond rings. I bust my ass to give her everything she wants, and she throws a marble candlestick at my head? She's spoiled. The police chuckled along with my father as he walked them to their car. They left without interviewing her. He didn't hit her again that morning. He didn't have to. The psychological damage was done. From that point on, it was clear to us that as far as trueness and the law were concerned, it was open season, and we were the hunted. Over the next year, our schedule didn't change much, and the beatings continued, while my mother tried to paper over the darkness with swatches of light. She knew I wanted to be a scout, so she signed me up for a local troop. I still remember putting on that navy blue Cub Scout button-down one Saturday. I felt proud wearing a uniform and knowing at least for a few hours I could pretend that I was a normal kid. My mom smiled as we headed for the door. My pride, her smile, wasn't just because of the damn Cub Scouts. They rose up from a deeper place. We were taking action to find something positive for ourselves in a bleak situation. It was proof that we mattered and that we weren't completely powerless. That's when my father came home from the Vermilion Room. Where are you two going? He glared at me. I stared at the floor. My mother cleared her throat. I'm taking David to his first Cub Scout meeting, she said softly. The hell you are. I looked up, and he laughed as my eyes welled up with tears. We're going to the track. Within the hour, we'd arrived at Batavia Downs, an old-school harness horse race track, the type where jockeys ride behind the horses in lightweight buggies. My dad grabbed a racing form as soon as we stepped through the gate. For hours, the three of us watched him place bet after bet, chain smoke, drink scotch, and raise holy hell, as every pony he bet on finished out of the money. With my dad raging at the gambling gods and acting a fool, I tried to make myself as small as possible whenever people walked by, but I still stuck out. 
I was the only kid in the stands dressed like a Cub Scout. I was probably the only black Cub Scout they'd ever seen, and my uniform was a lie. I was a pretender. Trunas lost thousands of dollars that day, and he wouldn't shut up about it on the drive home, his raspy throat raw from nicotine. My brother and I were in the cramped back seat, and whenever he spat out the window, his phlegm boomeranged into my face. Each drop of his nasty saliva on my skin burned like venom and intensified my hate. I'd long since learned that the best way to avoid a beatdown was to make myself as invisible as possible, avert my eyes, float outside my body, and hope to go unnoticed. It was a practice we'd all honed over the years, but I was done with that shit. I would no longer hide from the devil. That afternoon, as he veered onto the highway and headed home, he continued to rave on, and I mad-dogged him from the back seat. Have you ever heard the phrase, faith over fear? For me, it was hate over fear. He caught my eyes in the rearview mirror. You got something to say? We shouldn't have gone to the track anyway, I said. My brother turned and stared at me like I'd lost my damn mind. My mother squirmed in her seat. Say that one more time. His words came slow, dripping with dread. I didn't say a word, so he started reaching behind the seat trying to smack me. But I was so small it was easy to hide. The car veered left and right as he was half-turned in my direction, punching air. He'd barely touched me, which only stoked his fire. We drove in silence until he caught his breath. When we get home, you're going to take your clothes off, he said. That's what he'd say when he was ready to bestow a serious beatdown, and there was no avoiding it. I did what I was told. I went into my bedroom and took off my clothes, walked down the hall to his room, closed the door behind me, turned the lights off, then laid across the corner of the bed with my legs dangling, my torso stretched out in front of me, and my ass exposed. That was the protocol, and he'd designed it for maximum psychological and physical pain. The beatings were often brutal, but the anticipation was the worst part. I couldn't see the door behind me, and he'd take his time, letting my dread build. When I heard him open the door, my panic spiked. Even then, the room was so dark I couldn't see much with my peripheral vision, and couldn't prepare for the first smack until his belt hit my skin. It was never just two or three lickings, either. There was no particular count, so we never knew when or if he was going to stop. This beating lasted minutes upon minutes. He started on my butt, but the sting was so bad I blocked it with my hands, so he moved down and started whipping my thighs. When I dropped my hands to my thighs, he swung at my lower back. He belted me dozens of times and was breathless, coughing and slick with sweat by the time it was over. I was breathing heavy too, but I wasn't crying. His evil was too real, and my hate gave me courage. I refused to give that motherfucker the satisfaction. I just stood up, looked the devil in his eye, limped to my room, and stood in front of a mirror. I was covered in welts from my neck to the crease at the knees. I didn't go to school for several days. When you're getting beat consistently, hope evaporates. You stifle your emotions, but your trauma off-gasses in unconscious ways. After countless beatings she endured and witnessed, this particular beatdown left my mother in a constant fog, a shell of the woman I remembered from a few years before. She was distracted and vacant most of the time, except when he called her name. Then she'd hop to like she was his slave. 
I didn't know until years later that she was considering suicide. My brother and I took our pain out on each other. We'd sit or stand across from one another, and he would throw punches as hard as he could at me. It usually started out as a game, but he was four years older, much stronger, and he connected with all his power. Whenever I'd fall, I'd get up and he'd hit me again as hard as he could, yelling like a martial arts warrior at the top of his lungs, his face twisted with rage. You're not hurting me? Is that all you fucking have? I'd shout back. I wanted him to know that I could take more pain than he could ever deliver, but when it was time to fall asleep and there were no more battles to fight, no place to hide, I wet the bed nearly every night. My mother's every day was a lesson in survival. She was told she was worthless so often she started to believe it. Everything she did was an effort to appease him so he wouldn't beat her sons or whip her ass. But there were invisible tripwires in her world, and sometimes she never knew when or how she set them off until he slapped the shit out of her. Other times she knew she teed herself up for a vicious beatdown. One day I came home early from school with a nasty earache and laid down on my mother's side of their bed, my left ear throbbing in excruciating pain. With each throb, my hate spiked. I knew I wouldn't be going to the doctor because my father didn't approve of spending his money on doctors or dentists. We didn't have health insurance, a pediatrician, or a dentist. If we got injured or sick, we were told to shake it off because he wasn't down to pay for anything that didn't directly benefit Trunus Goggins. Our health didn't meet that standard, and that pissed me the fuck off. After about a half hour, my mother came upstairs to check on me, and when I rolled onto my back, she could see blood dribbling down the side of my neck and smeared all over the pillow. That's it, she said. Come with me. She got me out of bed, dressed me, and helped me to her car. But before she could start the engine, my dad chased us down. Where do you think you're going? The emergency room, she said, as she turned the ignition. He reached for the handle, but she peeled out first, leaving him in her dust. Furious, he stomped inside, slammed the door, and called out to my brother. Son, get me a Johnny Walker. Trunus Jr. brought over a bottle of Red Label and a glass from the wet bar. He poured and poured and watched my dad down shot after shot, each one fueled an inferno. You and David need to be strong, he raved. I'm not raising a bunch of faggots, and that's what you'll be if you go to the doctor every time you get a little boo-boo, understand? My brother nodded, petrified. Your last name is Goggins, and we shake it off. According to the doctor we saw that night, my mother got me to the ER just in time. My ear infection was so bad that if we'd waited any longer, I would have lost my hearing in my left ear for life. She risked her ass to save mine, and we both knew she'd pay for it. We drove home in eerie silence. My dad was still stewing at the kitchen table by the time we turned onto Paradise Road, and my brother was still pouring him shots. Trunus Jr. feared our father, but he also worshipped the man and was under his spell. As the firstborn son, he was treated better. Trunus would still lash out at him, but in his warped mind, Trunus Jr. was his prince. When you grow up, I'm going to want to see you be the man of your house, Trunus told him, and you're going to see me be a man tonight. Moments after we walked through the front door, Trunus beat our mother senseless, but my brother couldn't watch. Whenever the beatings exploded like a thunderstorm overhead, he'd wait them out in his room. He ignored the darkness because the truth was way too heavy for him to carry. I always paid close fucking attention. During the summers, there was no midweek respite from Trunus, but my brother and I learned to hop on our bikes and stay far away for as long as we could. 
One day I came home for lunch and entered the house through the garage like normal. My father usually slept deep into the afternoon, so I figured the coast was clear. I was wrong. My father was paranoid. He did enough shady deals to attract some enemies, and he'd set the alarm after we left the house. When I opened the door, sirens screamed and my stomach dropped. I froze, backed up against the wall, and listened for footsteps. I heard the stairs creak and knew I was fucked. He came downstairs in his brown terry cloth robe, pistol in hand, and crossed from the dining room into the living room, his gun out front. I could see the barrel come around the corner slowly. As soon as he cleared the corner, he could see me standing just 20 feet away, but he didn't drop his weapon. He aimed it right between my eyes. I stared straight at him, blank as possible, my feet anchored to the floorboards. There was no one else in the house, and part of me expected him to pull the trigger, but by this time in my life I no longer cared if I lived or died. I was an exhausted eight-year-old kid, plain old fucking tired of being terrified of my father, and I was sick of Skateland too. After a minute or two he lowered his weapon and went back upstairs. By now it was becoming clear that someone was going to die on Paradise Road. My mother knew where Trunus kept his thirty-eight. Some days she timed and followed him, envisioned how it would play out. They'd take separate cars to Skateland. She'd grab his gun from beneath the office sofa cushions before he could get there, bring us home early, put us to bed, and wait for him by the front door with his gun in hand. When he pulled up, she'd step out the front door and murder him in his driveway leave his body for the milkman to find. My uncles, her brothers, talked her out of it, but they agreed she needed to do something drastic or she'd be the one lying dead. So, David, you were something that we didn't put in this book is that you your your uncles actually tried to talk her into um, having them do something, right? Right. So what happened here was my uncle is a horse trainer, he's a horse whisperer, and he also is a great dog trainer. So he had these canines, and he trained these canines, and he trained them in German. And his idea was, look, Jackie, we need to get you out of here, and what's gonna happen is you go get the boys, get David and Chernus, and drive to Indiana. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna come in from California, I'm gonna go to Buffalo, and I'm going to bring two of my canines with me. And when Trunis, my dad, walks out of Skateland, I'm going to turn my dogs loose. And my mom was like, this plan's not going to work because basically he has a gun. And my uncle was like, well, he can only kill one of my dogs because the other dog's going to go for the guy's throat. So that was the big plan on how to take my dad out. Obviously, it never went down. And I don't believe my uncle was going to ever let it go down. But my mom was at such a horrible place that the only way my mom was going to ever, you know, kind of be satisfied was if someone had a plan to kill him. So that's kind of how that whole thing went. Hmm. So he wasn't ever really going to do it, but he was trying to placate her and commit just to get her to leave. You know what? I have to think to myself, I know my uncle pretty well. I don't think he was going to do it. But you never know when your sister has been getting tortured like this for years. You never know what's in a man's mind. No. I mean, that's and that's the thing is, is that when when this it, it heats up like a kettle, you know, it's like when when domestic violence, it, you know, even even 
whether it's violent or, or abuse, even emotional abuse, it just kind of it starts to boil and shit happens. And it could have ended up being your uncle who got it, who, who ends up in jail for, for trying to defend her. I mean, that's, that's the kind of stuff that happens. A hundred percent. Somebody was going to end up in jail or dead for sure in that house. It was an old neighbor who showed her a way. Betty used to live across the street from us, and after she moved, they stayed in touch. Betty was 20 years older than my mom and had the wisdom to match. She encouraged my mother to plan her escape weeks in advance. The first step was getting a credit card in her name. That meant she had to re-earn Trunus's trust because she needed him to co-sign. Betty also reminded my mother to keep their friendship a secret. For a few weeks, Jackie played Trunus treated him like she did when she was a 19-year-old beauty with stars in her eyes. She made him believe she worshipped him again. And when she slipped a credit card application in front of him, he said he'd be happy to score her a little buying power. When the card arrived in the mail, my mother felt its hard plastic edges through the envelope as relief saturated her mind. She held it at arm's length and admired it. It glowed like a golden ticket. A few days later, she heard my father talking shit about her on the phone to one of his friends while he was having breakfast with my brother and me at the kitchen table. That did it. She walked over to the table and said, I'm leaving your father. You two can stay or you can come with me. My dad was stunned silent and so was my brother, but I shot out of that chair like it was on fire, grabbed a few black garbage bags and went upstairs to start packing. My brother eventually started gathering his things too. Before we left, the four of us had one last powwow at the kitchen table. Trunus glared at my mother, filled with shock and contempt. You have nothing, and you are nothing without me, he said. You're uneducated. You don't have any money or prospects. You'll be a prostitute inside a year. He paused, then shifted his focus to my brother and me. You two are going to grow up to be a couple of faggots. And don't think about coming back, Jackie. I'll have another woman here to take your place five minutes after you leave. She nodded and stood. She'd given him her youth, her very soul, and she was finally finished. She packed as little of her past as possible. She left the mink coats and the diamond rings. He could give them to his whore girlfriend as far as she was concerned. Trunus watched us load up into my mom's Volvo, the one vehicle he owned that he wouldn't ride in, our bikes already strapped to the back. We drove off slowly, and at first he didn't budge, but before she turned the corner, I could see him move toward the garage. My mother floored it. Give her credit. She'd planned for contingencies. She figured he'd tail her, so she didn't head west to the interstate that would take us to her parents' place in Indiana. Instead, she drove to Betty's house down a dirt construction road that my dad didn't even know about. Betty had the garage door open when we arrived. We pulled in, Betty yanked the door down, and while my father shot out on the highway in his Corvette to chase after us, we waited right under his nose until just before nightfall. By then, we knew he'd be at Skateland opening up. He wasn't going to miss a chance to make some money, no matter what. Shit went wrong about 90 miles outside of Buffalo when the old Volvo started burning oil. Huge plumes of inky exhaust choked from the tailpipe, and my mother spun into panic mode. It was as if she'd been holding it all in, stuffing her fear down deep, hiding it beneath a mask of forced composure until an obstacle emerged and she fell apart. Tears streaked her face. What do I do? My mom asked, her eyes wide as saucers. My brother never wanted to leave and he told her to turn around. I was riding shotgun. She looked over expectantly. 
What do I do? We gotta go, Mom, I said. Mom, we gotta go. She pulled into a gas station in the middle of nowhere. Hysterical, she rushed to a payphone and called Betty. I can't do this, Betty, she said. The car broke down. I have to go back. Where are you? Betty asked calmly. I don't know, my mom replied. I have no idea where I am. Betty told her to find a gas station attendant. Every station had those back then, and put him on the phone. He explained we were just outside of Erie, Pennsylvania, and after Betty gave him some instructions, he put my mother back on the line. Jackie, there's a Volvo dealer in Erie. Find a hotel tonight and take the car there tomorrow morning. The attendant is going to put enough oil in the car to get you there. My mother was listening, but she didn't respond. Jackie, are you hearing me? Do what I say and it will be okay. Yeah, okay, she whispered, emotionally spent. Hotel, Volvo dealer, got it. I don't know what Erie is like now, but back then there was only one decent hotel in town, a Holiday Inn, not far from the Volvo dealership. My brother and I followed my mom to the reception desk where we were hit with more bad news. They were fully booked. My mother's shoulders slumped. My brother and I stood on either side of her, holding our clothes in black trash bags. We were the picture of desperation, and the night manager saw it. Look, I'll set you up with some rollaway beds in the conference room, he said. There's a bathroom down there, but you have to be out early because we have a conference starting at 9 a.m. Grateful, we bedded down in that conference room with its industrial carpet and fluorescent lights, our own personal purgatory. We were on the run and on the ropes, but my mother hadn't folded. She laid back and stared at the ceiling tiles until we nodded off. Then she slipped into an adjacent coffee shop to keep an anxious eye on our bikes and on the road all night long. We were waiting outside that Volvo dealership when the garage opened up, which gave the mechanics just enough time to source the part we needed to get us back on the road before their day was done. We left Erie at sunset and drove all night, arriving at my grandparents' house in Brazil, Indiana, eight hours later. My mom wept as she parked next to their old wooden house before dawn, and I understood why. Our arrival felt significant, then and now. I was still only eight years old, but already in a second phase of life. I didn't know what awaited me, what awaited us in that small, rural, southern Indiana town, and I didn't much care. All I knew was that we'd escaped from hell, and for the first time in my life, we were free from the devil himself. We stayed with my grandparents for the next six months, and I enrolled in second grade, for the second time, at a local Catholic school called Annunciation. I was the only eight-year-old in second grade, but none of the other kids knew I was repeating a year, and there was no doubt that I needed it. I could barely read, but I was lucky enough to have Sister Catherine as my teacher. Short and petite, Sister Catherine was 60 years old and had one gold front tooth. She was a nun but didn't wear the habit. She was also grumpy as hell and took no shit, and I loved her thug ass. Annunciation was a small school. Sister Catherine taught all of first and second grade in a single classroom, and with only 18 kids to teach, she wasn't willing to shirk her responsibility and blame my academic struggles or anybody's bad behavior on learning disabilities or emotional problems. She didn't know my backstory and didn't have to. All that mattered to her was that I turned up at her door with a kindergarten education, and that it was her job to shape my mind. She had every excuse in the world to farm me out to some specialist or label me a problem, but that wasn't her style. She started teaching before labeling kids was a normal thing to do, and she embodied the no-excuses mentality that I needed if I was going to catch up. 
Sister Catherine is the reason why I'll never trust a smile or judge a scowl. My dad smiled a hell of a lot, and he didn't give two shits about me. But grouchy Sister Catherine cared about us, cared about me. She wanted us to be our very best. I know this because she proved it by spending extra time with me, as much time as it took, until I retained my lessons. Before the year was out, I could read at a second grade level. Trunus Jr. hadn't adjusted nearly as well. Within a few months, he was back in Buffalo, shadowing my father and working that skateland detail like he'd never left. By then, we'd moved into a place of our own, a 600-square-foot, two-bedroom apartment at Lamplight Manor, a public housing block that cost us $7 a month. My father, who earned thousands every night, sporadically sent $25 every three or four weeks, if that, for child support, while my mother earned a few hundred dollars a month with her department store job. In her off hours, she was taking courses at Indiana State University, which cost money too. The point is, we had gaps to fill, so my mother enrolled in welfare and received $123 a month and food stamps. They wrote her a check for the first month, but when they found out she owned a car, they disqualified her, explaining that if she sold her car, they'd be happy to help. The problem is, we lived in a rural town with a population of about 8,000 that didn't have a mass transit system. We needed that car so I could get to school and she could get to work and take night classes. She was hell-bent on changing her life circumstances and found a workaround through the Aid to Dependent Children program. She arranged for our check to go to my grandmother, who signed it over to her. But that didn't make life easy. How far can 123 bucks really go? I vividly recall one night we were so broke, we drove home on a gas tank that was near empty to a bare refrigerator and a past-due electric bill with no money in the bank. Then I remembered that we had two mason jars filled with pennies and other loose change. I grabbed them off the shelf. Mom, let's count our change. She smiled. Growing up, her father had taught her to pick up the change she found on the street. He was molded by the Great Depression and knew what it was like to be down and out. You never know when you might need it, he'd say. When we lived in hell, carrying home thousands of dollars every night, the notion that we would ever run out of money sounded ludicrous. But my mother retained her childhood habit. Trunus used to belittle her for it, but now it was time to see how far found money could take us. We dumped that change out on the living room floor and counted out enough to cover the electric bill, fill the gas tank, and buy groceries. We even had enough to buy burgers at Hardee's on the way home. These were dark times, but we were managing, barely. My mother missed Trunus Jr. terribly, but she was pleased that I was adjusting and making friends. I'd had a good year at school, and from our first night in Indiana, I hadn't wet the bed once. It seemed that I was healing, but my demons weren't gone. They were dormant, and when they came back, they hit hard. Third grade was a shock to my system, not just because we had to learn cursive when I was still getting the hang of reading block letters, but because our teacher, Miss D, was nothing like Sister Catherine. Our class was still small, we had about 20 kids total, split between 3rd and 4th grade, but she didn't handle it nearly as well and wasn't interested in taking the extra time I required. My trouble started with the standardized tests we took during our first couple of weeks of class. Mine came back a mess. I was still way behind the other kids, and I had trouble building on lessons from the previous days, let alone the previous academic year. Sister Catherine considered similar signs as cues to dedicate more time with her weakest student and she challenged me daily. Miss D looked for a way out. Within the first month of class, she told my mother that I belonged in a different school, one for special students. Every kid knows what special means, 
means you are about to be stigmatized for the rest of your damn life. It means that you are not normal. The threat alone was a trigger, and I developed a stutter almost overnight. My thought-to-speech flow was jammed up with stress and anxiety, and it was at its worst in school. Imagine being the only black kid in class, in an entire school, and enduring the daily humiliation of also being the dumbest. I felt like everything I tried to do or say was wrong, and it got so bad that instead of responding and skipping like scratched vinyl whenever the teacher called my name, I often chose to keep quiet. It was all about limiting exposure to save face. Miss D didn't even attempt to empathize. She went straight to frustration and vented it by yelling at me, sometimes when she was leaning down, her hand on the back of my chair, her face just inches from my own. She had no idea the Pandora's box she was tearing open. Once, school was a safe harbor, the one place I knew I couldn't be hurt, but in Indiana, it morphed into my torture chamber. Miss D wanted me out of her classroom, and the administration supported her until my mother fought for me. The principal agreed to keep me enrolled if my mother signed off on time with a speech therapist and put me into group therapy with a local shrink they recommended. The psychologist's office was adjacent to a hospital, which was exactly where you'd want to put it if you were trying to make a little kid doubt himself. It was like a bad movie. The shrink set up seven chairs in a semicircle around him, but some of the kids wouldn't or couldn't sit still. One child wore a helmet and banged his head against the wall repeatedly. Another kid stood up while the doctor was mid-sentence, walked toward a far corner of the room, and pissed in the trash can. The kid sitting next to me was the most normal person in the group, and he had set his own house on fire. I can remember staring up at the shrink on my first day, thinking, there's no way I belong here. That experience kicked my social anxiety up several notches. My stutter was out of control. My hair started falling out, and white splotches bloomed on my dark skin. The doctor diagnosed me as an ADHD case and prescribed Ritalin, but my problems were more complex. I was suffering from toxic stress. The type of physical and emotional abuse I was exposed to has been proven to have a range of side effects on young children, because in our early years, the brain grows and develops so rapidly. If during those years, your father is an evil motherfucker hell-bent on destroying everyone in his house, stress spikes, and when those spikes occur frequently enough, you can draw a line across the peaks. That's your new baseline. It puts kids in a permanent fight-or-flight mode. Fight-or-flight can be a great tool when you're in danger because it amps you up to battle through or sprint from trouble, but it's no way to live. I'm not the type of guy to try to explain everything with science, but facts are facts. I've read that some pediatricians believe toxic stress does more damage to kids than polio or meningitis. I know firsthand that it leads to learning disabilities and social anxiety, because according to doctors, it limits language development and memory, which makes it difficult for even the most gifted student to recall what they have already learned. Looking at the long game, when kids like me grow up, they face an increased risk for clinical depression, heart disease, obesity, and cancer. Not to mention smoking, alcoholism, and drug abuse. Those raised in abusive households have an increased probability of being arrested as a juvenile by 53%. Their odds of committing a violent crime as an adult are increased by 38%. I was the poster child of that generic term we've all heard before, at-risk youth. My mother wasn't the one raising a thug. Look at the numbers and it's clear. If anyone put me on a destructive path, it was Trunus Goggins. I didn't stay in group therapy for long, and I didn't take Ritalin either. My mom picked me up after my second session, and I sat in the front seat of her car wearing a thousand-yard stare. Mom, I'm not going back, I said. These boys are crazy. She agreed. But I was still a damaged kid. 
And while there are proven interventions on the best way to teach and manage kids who suffer from toxic stress, it's fair to say that Miss D didn't get those memos. I can't blame her for her own ignorance. The science wasn't nearly as clear in the 1980s as it is now. All I know is, Sister Catherine toiled in the trenches with the same malformed kid that Miss D dealt with, but she maintained high expectations and didn't let her frustration overwhelm her. She had the mindset of, look, everybody learns in a different way and we're going to figure out how you learn. She deduced that I needed repetition, that I needed to solve the same problems over and over again in a different way to learn, and she knew that took time. Miss D was all about productivity. She was saying, keep up or get out. Meanwhile, I felt backed into a corner. I knew if I didn't show some improvement, I would eventually be shipped out to that special black hole for good. So I found a solution. I started cheating my ass off. Studying was hard, especially with my fucked up brain, but I was a damn good cheat. I copied friends' homework and scanned my neighbor's work during tests. I even copied the answers on the standardized tests that didn't have any impact on my grades. It worked. My rising test scores placated Miss D, and my mother stopped getting calls from school. I thought I'd solved a problem when really I was creating new ones by taking the path of least resistance. My coping mechanism confirmed that I would never learn squat at school and that I would never catch up, which pushed me closer toward a flunked-out fate. The saving grace of those early years in Brazil was that I was way too young to understand the kind of prejudice I would soon face in my new hick hometown. Whenever you're the only one of your kind, you're in danger of being pushed toward the margins, suspected and disregarded, bullied and mistreated by ignorant people. That's just the way life is, especially back then. And by the time that reality kicked me in the throat, my life had already become a full-fledged fuck-you fortune cookie. Whenever I cracked it open, I got the same message. You were born to fail. Man, David Goggins. That's a tough eight, nine years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, uh, it, it definitely did damage on me, man. It did a lot of damage on me. We made a choice here when you were talking about, you know, we talked about maybe a half dozen or more beatdowns when we were going through it. And, and uh, you zeroed in on these ones as kind of the symbolic ones that you wanted to focus on. Right. And I'm curious uh, why you chose these and um, was it hard to, to minimize? Did, do you, was there ever part of you that felt like you're actually minimizing what you went through? Oh, I was definitely minimizing it. But I, I can give you a great answer on why I chose these. It was kind of like a, uh, I guess, the most bang for your buck. And the reason why I say that is I actually, to, for a young kid to physically see your mom, physically and mentally, see your mom changing. And these moments are some of the breaking moments of my mom. Like, my mom was a rock. Mm. She was a rock throughout most of this because she had to be for myself and my brother. But this moment with the whole Cub Scout scene and when I got home, that beating, I mean, it was, it was something that she witnessed. And the, the look on her face, it was even worse than the beating I received. Hmm. I, had, I had just gotten the VFW award for, the, um, for, for um, Americanism, the Americanism VFW award. And I was thanking people up there. And I was thanking my uncle, and I was, you know, thanking the service men and women. That was earlier summer 2018, right? Right, right. It just happened. That's long ago. And I was thanking people, and I got to my mom, and um, I had thousands of people staring at me, 
And I had delivered several speeches before in my life. And when I was trying to thank her, the flood of this memory um, kind of came to my mind. And I had to put my head down for the fact that I was choked up and tearing up. And it wasn't the, the beating I got. Her face is tattooed, is forever tattooed in my mind. And that's why I chose this one, because this one was the one that literally changed me. And it changed my mom. The one of the Cub Scout one or the one after the ear earache? Sorry about that. There was a couple of them there. There was It was the one after the Cub Scout one when my dad had me laying across the bed for about 45 minutes. Because when I walked out, the you know, it usually takes a while for kind of welts to kind of get there. Yep. These welts were immediate. Hmm. And um, the the black and blue, and I was trying to hide in my bedroom. And when she walked in my bedroom, I was in the bed. And when she pulled the covers out and she saw my body, that's that's when it all it all changed. And I was a part of that moment when I saw the look in her eye and um, we kind of met eyes. And it was like, oh, man, this was you don't want to ever see your mom look like that. It was just horrible. See, this is the, the behind the scenes shit right here, because it's it, most people, if they just read the book, they'd feel like, OK, the arc that you're sharing in this chapter is the arc of you kind of going through the beatings when right. in reality you chose them because it's the arc of your mother's kind of destruction. And it, exactly. Another thing we don't talk about here is I, as, as embarrassing as it is to me, I went to bed every night in Buffalo, New York and my mom, um, she would go in almost every night. So she'd wake up almost every night and she would take my sheets and hide them and try to wash them because my dad would beat me senselessly for wetting the bed because, you know, that was all about, you know, you're not a man. You know, you you peeing in the bed was not a man, but I was a big tough guy when it came to challenging my father. But at nighttime, that demon, that demon would come and roost in my head when I would sleep. And that's why I would pee in the bed every night because I was truly afraid and I was overcoming myself to protect my mom so often. But something's got to give. And that's what gave. Hmm. And if you could approximate how many times you you were beaten by your father or you saw your mother beaten, would it be in the hundreds? I would say it would easy be in the hundreds. I would get I would get a whip. And there's one time I had my bike. As we were talking about my bike here, me and my brother ride bikes. There was one time my dad told me he was at the kitchen table, and the kitchen table had a had a window that looked out, and he said, "David, don't ride in the street." We all know what that means. Don't ride in the street. Roger that. I'm not going to ride in the street. So I was turning my bike around and my bike wheel, I was in someone's driveway and my dad could see me from the window where he was sitting at. And I was turning my bike around and my front tire literally touched the street as I was turning around. I didn't ride in the street. I was turning around. My front tire gr literally grazed the actual street. And I got back on the sidewalk. When I got inside that house, he beat the shit out of me for that. So it didn't have to be a big reason. It just had to be like if he thought that you disobeyed him. It was it, it was game on. It was game on. Crazy, man. Well, um, I think it's it's amazing that you're sharing this much. And I know you're gonna about to ask the the readers and the listeners to kind of divulge their material here in the first challenge um and so i, I want to go through the challenge and then we can talk about 
this challenge and kind of why you know why you decided to challenge your readers and listeners in the book. I'll just start. I'll start going through it now, if you don't mind. No, it's perfect, man. Let's do it. Challenge number one: My bad cards arrived early and stuck around a while, but everyone gets challenged in life at some point. What was your bad hand? What kind of bullshit did you contend with growing up? Were you beaten, abused, bullied? Did you ever feel insecure? Maybe your limiting factor is that you grew up so supported and comfortable, you never pushed yourself. What are the current factors limiting your growth and success? Is someone standing in your way at work or school? Are you underappreciated and overlooked for opportunities? What are the long odds you're up against right now? Are you standing in your own way? Break out your journal. If you don't have one, buy one. Or start one on your laptop, tablet, or in the Notes app on your smartphone. And write them all out in minute detail. Don't be bland with this assignment. I showed you every piece of my dirty laundry. If you are hurt or are still in harm's way, tell the story in full. Give your pain shape. Absorb its power. Because you are about to flip that shit. You will use your story, this list of excuses, these very good reasons why you shouldn't amount to a damn thing, to fuel your ultimate success. Sounds fun, right? Yeah, it won't be. But don't worry about that yet. We'll get there. For now, just take inventory. Once you have your list, share it with whoever you want. For some, it may mean logging onto social media, posting a picture, and writing out a few lines about how your own past or present circumstances challenge you to the depth of your soul. If that's you, use the hashtags, hashtag bad hand, hashtag can't hurt me. Otherwise, acknowledge and accept it privately. Whatever works for you. I know it's hard, but this act alone will begin to empower you to overcome. So obviously, you know, judging on this chapter, you know, you feel like there's power in, in taking inventory and owning your story. Do you want to explain this challenge and, and why it's so important? Well, I realized what, so all this stuff made me so weak because it's how I looked at it. I looked at it that I had a jacked up foundation. I looked at it that my mom, you know, my mom became, my, my dad took her soul. And so as, as you read further and further on, that my mindset was controlling my destiny. When you have a poopy pants type of mentality and this happened to me and that happened to me and woe is me and you're kicking rocks down the street with your head down versus looking at this. And you have to find power. You have to find power in everything negative in your life. You have to do that. So by you writing this stuff down, by you owning it, you have to, this is now a part of your life, whether you like it or not. So, so if that's a fact, if it's a fact that this is now a part of my life, whether I like it or not, you better go ahead and start liking it. You better find power within your own story. You better look at your story, if it's a bad one, as, hey, motherfucker, you can't hurt me. Whatever that may be, you better start owning that and flipping and start saying to yourself, yeah, there's a lot of people out here who might have had a better life than you. And they may have a little bit of a head start on life than what you had. But that should be very powerful you know, for, for you or anybody else. Why is that powerful? I can tell you why. Because from that right there alone, you can start slowly catching these people, realizing where you come from. Realizing the pain you endured, the suffering you endured. If you were bullied, if you have a bad, you know, bad family, whatever. You have to use this and flip the negative upside down and find positive power to fuel you forward. 
Stop kicking a rock down the road. Own it and make it a part of your life. As, as if the survival through a trying experience, a suf- experience that, where you suffered, if you survive that right there, that's power, right? I mean, you can use it to, to continue to push you further. That's right. And it's a lot more than surviving. You want to thrive. You want to be that person who was given a fucked up deck of hand, you know, like just, just a fucked up hand. Yeah. And the person says, okay, you know what? I have a bunch of twos and threes. There's a, there's a card game called War. And in War, what happens is you want to have the highest cards. One person flips over a card, and then you flip over a card. The highest card wins. I looked at my life at this time as having a bunch of twos, threes, fours, and fives, maybe one ten. And having that messed up hand, if you can still win the game of War, that gives you a ton of power. So it's about more than survival. It's about thriving in a situation that most people think is impossible for you to be truly amazing. Yeah, I mean, this is what you, you're laying out. You had a bad hand. You were the at-risk youth. You had all the excuses. The Chapter one is your list of excuses. You could have packed it in. That's right. I should have been a statistic. You know, I, I should have been a statistic, which is the beauty of it all. That's the power of it all. People start seeing where I gauge my power is from the crap I lived in. There's so much power in this crap that we live in that people just don't look at it that way. But there's, it's, a, it's just a powerful thing that, that, that we can harness if we know how to look at it the right way. We have to learn how to look at it the right way. And looking at it the right way is owning it first. Hmm. But it would be a little while before you were able to fully start to harness it in any productive way. 100%. This is, it's, it's a long time coming. It's a long, long, long time coming. And, and just a quick word on why you decided to include challenges in your book. Well, the thing about it is you have to have something that you can look at and say, okay, how can I fix this part of my life? And like we talk about, everything everything in life is about repetition. How, you know, Sister Catherine, I thought for sure there was no way in hell I was going to ever even pass the second grade. But Sister Catherine taught me one thing. Through reps, you have to put the repetition in. And these challenges are doing exactly that. A lot of people, they do something once and they give up on it. This is something that you have to do every single day of your life. You have to hold yourself at this standard. It can't be something you do every now and then and you know, then you get tired of it and you move on. This is a discipline. Right now, challenge one is starting the road down self-discipline. No one is going to come to help you. No one's coming to save you. All that crap is now yours. You have to develop the key word there is self-discipline. And that's how you're going to overcome every single challenge of your life. This is challenge one that I'm giving you in my book. Tons of you have tons of challenges that you're facing every day. But it comes to repetition and self-discipline. So you set up a um, kind of a protocol to be able to, and some of these challenges the reader can go back to over and over again whenever they have trouble. And the idea is to is to go through these challenges to develop the discipline and the mental toughness to to push forward and, and to progress in their lives. Exactly, exactly. It's all about progressing. If you're not moving forward, either you're getting better or you're getting worse. If, you, if you're telling somebody, oh, I'm about the same, that means you're getting worse. These challenges are also, they're, they're huge. And, you know, I, I wrote this book, 
you know, I'm my own hero. And what that's all about is, you know, we, we live our lives. We look up to so many people. We look up to, maybe you look up to a golfer or a, or a scientist or a basketball player, whatever. These people, normal people, we are all normal people. We will all, you know, someone will always let you down. Bottom line. So the whole thing about this is these challenges are here for you to be your own hero. I don't want you to look up to me. You know, hopefully somewhere in here, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be your hero. I am not. I want you to get these challenges, flip these challenges upside down, make these challenges work for you so you, then you can be your own hero and start seeing yourself the way, you know, you were here to be seen. I love that. It's, 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 it's very much in line with the way humans have always told each other's stories and, and finding the hero story because within the hero story is a message for you. And, and to, for you to not only tell your story, but then to give a framework for people to then do that for themselves, uh, I think that's really empowering. And that's one of the reasons I'm super excited to be reading this book and working on it with you. Well, I think the biggest takeaway through this whole book will always be coming back to the individual. I want the individual to always know that this, this isn't about me. Yeah, yeah you are reading my life. You are reading my life. When I say can't hurt me, I want everybody out there to take that as their own. So just understand that you need to be your own hero. So that's where it all starts at, right there. Chapter 2. Truth Hurts. Wilmoth Irving was a new beginning. Up until he met my mother and asked for her phone number, all I'd known was misery and struggle. When the money was good, our lives were defined by trauma. Once we were free of my father, we were swept under by our own PTSD-level dysfunction and poverty. Then, when I was in fourth grade, she met Wilmoth, a successful carpenter and general contractor from Indianapolis. She was attracted to his easy smile and laid-back style. There was no violence in him. He gave us permission to exhale. With him around, it felt like we had some support, like something good was finally happening to us. She laughed when they were together. Her smile was bright and real. She stood up a little straighter. He gave her pride and made her feel beautiful again. As for me, Wilmoth became as close to a healthy father figure as I've ever had. He didn't coddle me. He didn't tell me he loved me or any of that fake-ass sappy shit. But he was there. Basketball had been an obsession of mine since grade school. It was the core of my relationship with my best friend, Johnny Nichols, and Wilmoth had game. He and I hit the courts together all the time. He showed me moves, tuned up my defensive discipline, and helped me develop a jump shot. The three of us celebrated birthdays and holidays together, and the summer before eighth grade, he got down on one knee and asked my mother to make it official. Wilmoth lived in Indianapolis, and our plan was to move in with him the following summer. Though he wasn't nearly as rich as Trunus, he made a nice living, and we looked forward to city life again. Then, in 1989, the day after Christmas... Everything stopped. We hadn't made the full-time move to Indy yet, and he'd spent Christmas Day with us at my grandparents' place in Brazil. The next day, he had a basketball game in his men's league, and he'd invited me to sub for one of his teammates. I was so excited I'd packed my bags two days early, but that morning he told me I couldn't come after all. I'm going to keep you back here this time, little David, he said. I dropped my head and sighed. He could tell I was upset and tried to reassure me. Your mom is going to drive up in a few days, and we can play ball then. 
I nodded reluctantly, but I wasn't raised to pry into the affairs of adults and knew I wasn't owed an explanation or makeup game. My mother and I watched from the front porch as he backed out of the carport, smiled and gave us that crisp single wave of his. Then he drove off. It was the last time we'd ever see him alive. He played in his men's league game that night as planned and drove home alone to the house with the white lions. Whenever he gave directions to friends, family, or delivery guys, that's how he always described his ranch-style house, its driveway framed by two white lion sculptures elevated on pillars. He pulled between them and into the garage, where he could enter the house directly, oblivious to the danger moving in from behind. He never did close that garage door. They'd been staking him out for hours, waiting for a window, and as he climbed out from the driver's side door, they stepped from the shadows and fired from close range. He was shot five times in the chest. When he dropped to the floor of his garage, the gunman stepped over him and delivered a kill shot right between his eyes. Wilmoth's father lived a few blocks away, and when he drove by the White Lions the next morning, he noticed his son's garage door open and knew something was wrong. He walked up the driveway and into the garage where he sobbed over his dead son. Wilmoth was just 43 years old. I was still at my grandmother's house when Wilmoth's mother called moments later. She hung up and motioned me to her side to break the news. I thought about my mom. Wilmoth had been her savior. She'd been coming out of her shell, opening up, ready to believe in good things. What would this do to her? Would God ever give her a damn break? It started as a simmer, but within seconds my rage overwhelmed me. I broke free of my grandmother, punched the refrigerator, and left a dent. We drove to our place to find my mother, who was already frantic because she hadn't heard from Wilmoth. She called his house just before we arrived, and when a detective picked up the phone, it puzzled her. But she didn't expect this. How could she? We saw her confusion as my grandmother walked over, peeled the phone from her fingers, and sat her down. She didn't believe us at first. Wilmoth was a prankster, and this was just the kind of fucked-up stunt he might try to pull off. Then she remembered he'd been shot two months before. He told her that the guys who'd done it weren't after him, that those bullets were meant for someone else, and because they merely grazed him, she decided to forget about the whole thing. Until that moment, she never suspected that Wilmoth had some secret street life she knew nothing about, and the police never did find out exactly why he was shot and killed. The speculation was that he was involved in a shady business deal or a drug deal gone bad. My mother was still in denial when she packed a bag, but she included a dress for his funeral. When we arrived, his house was wrapped in a ribbon of yellow police tape, like a fucked up Christmas gift. This was no prank. My mom parked, ducked under the tape, and I followed right behind her to the front door. On the way, I remember glancing to my left, trying to get a glimpse of the scene where Wilmoth had been killed. His cold blood was still pooled on the garage floor. I was a 14-year-old wandering through an active crime scene, but nobody, not my mother, not Wilmoth's family, and not even the police seemed disturbed by me being there, absorbing the heavy vibe of my would-be stepfather's murder. As fucked up as it sounds, the police allowed my mom to stay in Wilmoth's house that night. Rather than stay alone, she had her brother-in-law there, armed with his two guns in case the killers came back. I wound up in a back bedroom at Wilmoth's sister's place, a dark and spooky house a few miles away, and left alone all night. 
The house was furnished with one of those analog cabinet television sets, with 13 channels on a dial. Only three channels came in static-free, and I kept it on the local news. They ran the same tape on a loop every 30 minutes. Footage of my mom and me ducking under police tape, then watching Wilmoth get wheeled on a gurney toward a waiting ambulance, a sheet over his body. It was like a horror scene. I sat there all alone, watching the same footage over and over. My mind was a broken record that kept skipping into darkness. The past had been bleak, and now our sky-blue future had been blown the fuck up too. There would be no reprieve, only my familiar fucked-up reality choking out all light. Each time I watched, my fear grew until it filled the room, and still, I could not stop. A few days after we buried Wilmoth, and just after the new year, I boarded a school bus in Brazil, Indiana. I was still grieving, and my head was spinning because my mother and I hadn't decided whether or not we were staying in Brazil or moving to Indianapolis as planned. We were in limbo, and she remained in a state of shock. She still hadn't cried over Wilmoth's death. Instead, she became emotionally vacant again. It was as if all the pain she'd experienced in her life resurfaced as one gaping wound she disappeared into, and there was no reaching her in that void. In the meantime, school was starting up, so I played along, looking for any shred of normal I could hang on to. But it was hard. I rode a bus to school most days, and my first day back I couldn't shake a memory I'd buried from the year before. That morning, I slid into a seat above the back left tire overlooking the street as usual. When we arrived at school, the bus pulled up to the curb. We needed to wait for the ones ahead of us to move before we could get off. In the meantime, a car pulled alongside us, and a cute, overeager little boy ran toward our bus carrying a platter of cookies. The driver didn't see him. The bus jerked forward. I noticed the alarmed look on his mother's face before the sudden crush of blood splattered my window. His mother howled in horror. She wasn't among us anymore. She looked and sounded like a fierce, wounded animal as she literally pulled the hair from her head by the roots. Soon, sirens wailed in the distance and screamed closer by the second. The little boy was about six years old. The cookies were a present for the driver. We were all ordered off the bus, and as I walked by the tragedy, for some reason, call it human curiosity, call it the magnetic pull of dark to dark, I peeked under the bus and saw him. His head was nearly as flat as paper. His brains and blood mingled under the carriage like spent oil. For a full year, I hadn't thought of that image even once, but Wilma's death reawakened it, and now it was all I could think about. I was beyond the pale. Nothing mattered to me. I'd seen enough to know that the world was filled with human tragedy and that it would just keep piling up in drifts until it swallowed me. Man, I, I remember when you first told me that story. And we were first starting to work together. And I'm like skeptical journalist guy. And even though I I listened to your podcast and was a fan even before, you know, we'd ever hooked up. Right. I was like, when you told me this story, I thought to myself, man, can that be true? (laughs) (laughs) And, and it is, you know, it is true. There's, there's, there's newspaper reports over it and everything that you say in this book, we've checked out a hundred different ways. And I mean, it's it is almost impossible to believe that so much you could have seen and witnessed so much, but it's hundred percent true. And I can't even imagine that scene. Um, and the, the funny thing is, not funny, but like the odd thing is, you actually suppress this memory. 
you lived it, you felt it, but you didn't even talk about it. You didn't brought it up to your mother. Nothing ever happened. And then after Wilma's death, a full year later, that's when it came out. Right. So what I was really good at growing up was I realized my mom was severely damaged. And I became the man of the house. And my whole job was to show no weakness. You know, she had enough to worry about, and I didn't want her ever worrying about me. So when that little boy, I mean, I it was it was uh, it was horrible. It was it was just horrible to uh, to 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 see that. And I was in seventh grade, and and my little brain was just you know I couldn't even comprehend what I just saw. And to see a mom, to 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 that that scene, to see a woman yanking her hair out of her head and just, just going all at it. And, and then I didn't know what that blood was. Hmm. I didn't even know that it was blood. I didn't know what had even happened because I didn't, I, I looked forward and when I looked forward, all I heard was screaming. And when I looked over at the screaming, the lady was literally right across from me and I saw little specks of like, I, I didn't know it was blood then, but I saw little specks of, it looked like brown stuff mm. on my window. Mm. And I just saw the woman looking down. So I got my my window and it was, you know, it was in the dead of winter. So that's the thing about it. It was literally December around the 22nd, 23rd, 24th. A year before Wilmoth died, he got murdered the day after Christmas. So it was almost a year to the day mm. when this happened. So I got the window and I, and I pulled it down and I looked down, and what I saw was this. It looked like a, like a just a flas of pancake. It's just flas of pancake, man. It's 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 even hard to talk about now, and um, that that stuck with me forever. But the thing about it, I I always would get things, put them back in my head, and move on. Just you know, get hard. And what did it for me was I came home after seeing this little boy get run over by a bus. And once again, it was that gurney. I, it was on TV and I saw that gurney and I think watching that gurney with that little boy and then seeing Wilmoth repeatedly in the gurney, mm -hmm. those two gurneys, you know, just seeing that on TV, it just sparked up this stuff and I just, and I'll never forget it, man. And then getting back on the bus, so it was almost like you were going into this deja vu right. you couldn't get out of. Right, and it was horrible and yeah. I, and I literally couldn't sleep in my bed. I'll never forget, you know, after Wilmoth got murdered and all this stuff kind of all these, all these horrible demons came to roost in my head. I just couldn't sleep in the bed. And I remember sleeping on the floor in the fetal position for months, for months. And there was one night, you know, I thought I was very like, you know, like, like what's wrong with me? So I actually went, went to my mom's room one night to just, you know, talk to her. And I walked in her room. I'll never forget finding her in her chair in the fetal position. And then years later, she would tell me that, you know, she couldn't sleep in her bed years later so 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 she slept in the chair and i slept in the floor you know both of us in the fetal position i couldn't sleep in bed anymore neither could my mother she slept in her armchair with the television on blast or with a book in her hands for a little while i tried to curl up in bed at night but would always wake in the fetal position on the floor eventually i gave in and bedded down low to the ground Maybe because I knew if I could find comfort at the bottom place, there would be no more falling. We were two people in dire need of the fresh start we thought we had coming, so even without Wilmoth, we made the move to Indianapolis. My mother set me up for entry exams at Cathedral High School, a private college preparatory academy in the heart of the city. 
As usual, I cheated, and off a smart motherfucker too. When my acceptance letter and class schedule came in the mail the summer before freshman year, I was looking at a full slate of AP classes. I hacked my way through, cheating and copying, and managed to make the freshman basketball team, which was one of the best freshman teams in the entire state. We had several future college players, and I started at point guard. That was a confidence boost, but not the kind I could build on because I knew I was an academic fraud. Plus, the school cost my mom way too much money, so after only one year at Cathedral, she pulled the plug. I started my sophomore year at North Central High School, a public school with 4,000 kids in a majority black neighborhood, and on my first day I turned up like some preppy-ass white boy. My jeans were definitely too tight, and my collared shirt was tucked into a waistline cinched with a braided belt. The only reason I didn't get completely laughed out of the building was because I could ball. My sophomore year was all about being cool. I switched up my wardrobe, which was increasingly influenced by hip-hop culture, and hung out with gangbangers and other borderline delinquents, which meant I didn't always go to school. One day my mom came home in the middle of the day and found me sitting around our dining room table with what she described as ten thugs. She wasn't wrong. Within a few weeks she packed us up and moved us back to Brazil, Indiana. I enrolled at Northview High School the week of basketball tryouts, and I remember showing up at lunchtime when the cafeteria was full. There were 1,200 kids enrolled at Northview, only five of which were black, and the last time any of them had seen me, I looked a lot like them. Not anymore. I strolled into school that day wearing pants five sizes too big and sagged way down low. I also wore an oversized Chicago Bulls jacket with a backward hat, cocked to the side. Within seconds, all eyes were upon me. Teachers, students, and administrative staff stared at me like I was some exotic species. I was the first thuggish black kid many of them had seen in real life. My mere presence had stopped the music. I was the needle being dragged across vinyl, scratching a whole new rhythm. And like hip-hop itself, everybody noticed, but not everyone liked what they heard. I strutted through the scene like I gave no fucks. But that was a lie. I acted all kinds of cocky, and my entrance was brash as hell, but I felt very insecure going back there. Buffalo had been like living in a blazing inferno. My early years in Brazil were a perfect incubator for post-traumatic stress, and before I left I was delivered a double dose of death trauma. Moving to Indianapolis had been an opportunity to escape pity and leave all that behind. Class wasn't easy for me, but I'd made friends and developed a new style. Now, coming back, I looked different enough on the outside to perpetuate an illusion that I'd changed. But in order to change, you have to work through shit, confront it, and get real. I hadn't done a shred of that hard work. I was still a dumb kid with nothing solid to lean on, and basketball tryouts ripped away any confidence I had left. When I got to the gym, they made me suit up in uniform rather than wear my more generic gym clothes. Back then, the style was getting baggy and oversized, which Chris Weber and Jalen Rose of the Fab Five would make famous at the University of Michigan. The coaches in Brazil didn't have their fingers on that pulse. They put me in the tidy-whitey version of basketball shorts, which strangled my balls, hugged my thighs super tight, and felt all kinds of wrong. I was trapped in the coach's preferred dream state, a Larry Bird time warp, which made sense because Larry Legend was basically a patron saint in Brazil and all of Indiana. In fact, his daughter went to our school. We were friends, but that didn't mean I wanted to dress like him. Then there was my etiquette. In Indianapolis, the coaches let us talk shit on the court. If I made a good move or hit a shot in your face, I talked about your mama or your girlfriend. In India, I'd done research on my shit talking. I got good at it. 
I was the Draymond Green of my school, and it was all part of basketball culture in the city. Back in farm country, that cost me. When tryouts started, I handled the rock a bunch, and when I crossed some of the kids over and made them look bad, I let them and the coaches know. My attitude embarrassed the coaches, who were apparently ignorant that their hero, Larry Legend, was an all-time great trash talker. And it wasn't long before they took the ball out of my hands and put me in the front court, a position I'd never played before. I was uncomfortable down low and played like it. That shut me up good. Meanwhile, Johnny was dominating. My only saving grace that week was getting back with Johnny Nichols. We'd stayed close while I was away, and our marathon one-on-one -on -one battles were back on full swing. Though he was undersized, he was always a nice player, and he was one of the best on the floor during tryouts. He was draining shots, seeing the open man, and running the court. It was no surprise when he made the varsity squad, but we were both shocked that I barely made JV. I was crushed, and not because of basketball tryouts. To me, that outcome was another symptom of something else I'd been feeling. Brazil looked the same, but shit felt different this time around. Grade school had been hard academically, but even though we were one of only a few black families in town, I didn't notice or feel any palpable racism. As a teenager, I experienced it everywhere, and it wasn't because I'd become ultra-sensitive. Outright racism had always been there. Not long after moving back to Brazil, my cousin Damien and I went to a party way out in the country. We stayed out well past curfew. In fact, we were up all night long, and after daybreak, we called our grandmother for a ride home. Excuse me, she asked. You disobeyed me, so you may as well start walking. Roger that. She lived ten miles away, down a long country road, but we joked around and enjoyed ourselves as we started to stroll. Damien lived in Indianapolis, and we were both sagging our baggy jeans and dressed in oversized starter jackets, not exactly typical gear on Brazil's country roads. We'd walked seven miles in a few hours when a pickup truck came bouncing down the tarmac in our direction. We edged to the side of the road to let it pass, but it slowed down, and as it crept past us, we could see two teenagers in the cab and a third standing in the bed of the truck. The passenger pointed and yelled through his open window, Niggers! We didn't overreact. We put our heads down and kept walking at the same pace until we heard that beat-to-shit truck squeal to a stop on a patch of gravel and kick up a dust storm. That's when I turned and saw the passenger, a scruffy-looking redneck, exit the cab of the truck with a pistol in his hand. He aimed it at my head as he stalked toward me. Where the fuck you from and why the fuck you here in this fucking town? Damien eased down the road while I locked eyes with the gunman and said nothing. He stepped within two feet of me. The threat of violence doesn't get much more real than that. Chills rippled my skin, but I refused to run or cower. After a few seconds, he got back in the truck and they sped off. It wasn't the first time I'd heard the word. Not long before that, I was hanging out in Pizza Hut with Johnny and a couple of girls, including a brunette I liked named Pam. She liked me too, but we'd never acted on it. We were two innocents enjoying one another's company, but when her father arrived to take her home, he caught sight of us, and when Pam saw him, her face went ghost white. He burst into the packed restaurant and stalked towards us with all eyes on him. He never addressed me. He just locked eyes with her and said, I don't want to ever see you sitting with this nigger again. She hustled out the door after him, her face red with shame as I sat paralyzed, staring at the floor. It was the most humiliating moment of my life, and it hurt much more than the gun incident because it happened in public and the word had been spewed by a grown-ass man. I couldn't understand how or why he was filled with so much hate, and if he felt that way, 
How many other people in Brazil shared his point of view when they saw me walking down the street? It was the sort of riddle you didn't want to solve. They won't call on me if they can't see me. That was how I operated during my sophomore year in high school in Brazil, Indiana. I would hide out in the back rows, slump low in my chair, and sidestep my way through each and every class. Our high school made us take a foreign language that year, which was funny to me. Not because I couldn't see the value, but because I could barely read English, let alone understand Spanish. By then, after a good eight years of cheating, my ignorance had crystallized. I kept leveling up in school, on track, but hadn't learned a damn thing. I was one of those kids who thought he was gaming the system when, the whole time, I'd been gaming myself. One morning, about halfway through the school year, I milled into Spanish class and grabbed my workbook from a back cupboard. There was technique involved in skating by. You didn't have to pay attention, but you did have to make it seem like you were. So I slumped into my seat, opened up my workbook, and fixed my gaze on the teacher who lectured from the front of the room. When I looked down at the page, the whole room went silent, at least to me. Her lips were still moving, but I couldn't hear, because my attention had narrowed on the message left for me, and me alone. We each had our own assigned workbook in that class, and my name was written in pencil at the top right corner of the title page. That's how they knew it was mine. Below that, someone had drawn an image of me in a noose. It looked rudimentary, like something out of the hangman game we used to play as kids. Below that were the words, Nigger, we're gonna kill you. They'd misspelled it, but I had no clue. I could barely spell myself, and they'd made their fucking point. I looked around the room as my rage gathered like a typhoon until it was literally buzzing in my ears. I'm not supposed to be here, I thought to myself. I'm not supposed to be back in Brazil. I took inventory of all the incidents I'd already experienced and decided I couldn't take much more. The teacher was still talking when I rose up without warning. She called my name, but I wasn't trying to hear. I left the classroom, notebook in hand, and bolted to the principal's office. I was so enraged, I didn't even stop at the front desk. I walked right into his office and dropped the evidence on his desk. I'm tired of this shit, I said. Kirk Freeman was the principal at that time. And to this day, he still remembers looking up from his desk and seeing tears in my eyes. It wasn't some mystery why all this shit was happening in Brazil. Southern Indiana had always been a hotbed of racist, and he knew it. Four years later, in 1995, the Ku Klux Klan would march down Brazil's main drag on Independence Day in full hooded regalia. The KKK was active in Centerpoint, a town located not 15 minutes away, and kids from there went to our school. Some of them sat behind me in history class and told racist jokes for my benefit nearly every damn day. I wasn't expecting some investigation into who did it. More than anything, in that moment, I was looking for some compassion. And I could tell, from the look in the Principal Freeman's eyes, he felt bad about what I was going through, but he was at a loss. He didn't know how to help me. Instead, he examined the drawing and the message for a long beat, then raised his eyes to mine, ready to console me with his words of wisdom. David, this is sheer ignorance, he said. They don't even know how to spell nigger. My life had been threatened, and that was the best he could do. The loneliness I felt leaving his office is something I'll never forget. It was scary to think that there was so much hate flowing through the halls and that someone I didn't even know wanted me dead because of the color of my skin. The same question kept looping through my mind. Who the fuck is out here who hates me like this? I had no idea who my enemy was. Was it one of the rednecks from history class? Or was it somebody I thought I was cool with but who really didn't like me at all? 
It was one thing staring down the barrel of a gun on the street or dealing with some racist parent. At least that shit was honest. Wondering who else felt that way in my school was a different kind of unnerving, and I couldn't shake it off. Even though I had plenty of friends, all of them white, I couldn't stop seeing the hidden racism scrawled all over the walls in invisible ink, which made it extremely hard to carry the weight of being the only. It's tough, you know, for me to read this. It's almost, you know, it's almost, it's, it's almost me saying the word doesn't even feel right because, <laughs> because right. you know, because it's not, it's not for me to say. Right. And uh, to feel it, it, you know, I just, I, it's, it's difficult even for me to read it. I can't even imagine you having to go through it. Well, the thing about it is, I was, uh, I had, there was two different people when I was going through high school, especially in high school. No one knew about any of this stuff. It wasn't like I walked around and said, you know, what was me? Feel sorry for me. You know, I didn't tell anybody anything. I told Kurt Freeman, who was the principal, and, you know, most people didn't know, you know, like um, like what I was going through, what I was dealing with, because I was trying to be so cool. I didn't want to be the kid that was, you know, secretly being bullied. Mm. You, know, those, you know, those kids aren't, aren't looked at as cool. Right. You know, they're looked at as, you know, you're just a little punk kid. So I was keeping up this big front, sagging my pants, wearing big coats, making up hairstyles, whatever the hell I was doing. But inside, I was broken. Yeah. Inside, you know, I didn't want to go home and tell my mom how bad things were because, you know, she was working tons of jobs and trying to make ends meet for us. And once again, my whole thing was protect your mom. Protect your mom. I'd rather me suffer than to see her how bad my, my life was. So you couldn't share it with her. You're not going to share it with your friends because you don't want them thinking of you as some charity case. Right. So you had to care. And the principal couldn't help you because he just was basically intimidated by the whole thing. Right. And it was up to you to kind of, you, you ended up internalizing it. And what's funny about all that is when I went to the principal's office, I actually just left Spanish class. I didn't ask for permission. As you read it there, I just got my book, my, my, my workbook and walked right out. Walked down the hallway, and once I talked to uh, Kurt Freeman, I just walked back in class. Mm. You know, I, I think maybe the teacher asked me what was wrong. I probably lied to her. You know, I uh, became a really good liar at this time in my life. You know, I didn't want anybody knowing who the hell I really was. So it was just, um, you know, you, you hide all those insecurities, man. You hide everything going wrong with you because, like I said, there was two parts of David Goggins, and what I wanted people to see was I'm some tough guy that nothing could hurt me. But shit was fucking me up in a major way. Most, if not all, minorities, women and gay people in America, know that strain of loneliness well, of walking into rooms where you are the only one of your kind. Most white men have no idea how hard it can be. I wish they did, because then they'd know how it drains you. How some days all you want to do is stay home and wallow because to go public is to be completely exposed, vulnerable to a world that tracks and judges you. At least that's how it feels. The truth is, you can't tell for sure when or if that is actually happening in a given moment. But it often feels like it, which is its own kind of mindfuck. In Brazil, I was the only everywhere I went. At my table in the cafeteria, where I chilled at lunch with Johnny and our crew, and every class I took, even in the damn basketball gym. By the end of that year, I turned 16, and my grandfather bought me a used doo-doo brown Chevy Citation. One of the first mornings I ever drove it to school, someone spray-painted the word nigger on my driver's side door. 
This time they spelled it correctly, and Principal Freeman was again at a loss for words. The fury that churned within me that day was indescribable, but it didn't radiate out. It broke me down from within, because I hadn't yet learned what to do or where to channel that much emotion. Was I supposed to fight everybody? I'd been suspended from school three times for fighting, and by now I was almost numb. Instead, I withdrew and fell into the well of black nationalism. Malcolm X became my prophet of choice. I used to come home from school and watch the same video of one of his early speeches every damn day. I was trying to find comfort somewhere, and the way he analyzed history and spun black hopelessness into rage nourished me, though most of his political and economic philosophies went over my head. It was his anger at a system made by and for white people that I connected with, because I lived in a haze of hate, trapped in my own fruitless rage and ignorance. But I wasn't Nation of Islam material. That shit took discipline, and I had none of that. Instead, by my junior year, I went out of my way to piss people off by becoming the exact stereotype racist white people loathed and feared. I wore my pants down below my ass every day. I ghetto-wired my car stereo to house speakers which filled the trunk of my citation. I rattled windows when I cruised down Brazil's main drag, blasting Snoop's gin and juice. I put three of those shag carpet covers over my steering wheel and dangled a pair of fuzzy dice from the rear view. Every morning before school, I stared into our bathroom mirror and came up with new ways to fuck with the racists at my school. I even concocted wild hairdos. Once I gave myself a reverse part, shaving away all my hair save a thin radial line on the left side of my scalp. It wasn't that I was unpopular. I was considered the cool black kid in town. But if you'd have bothered to drill down a little deeper, you'd see that I wasn't about black culture and that my antics weren't really trying to call out racism. I wasn't about anything at all. Everything I did was to get a reaction out of the people who hated me most, because everyone's opinion of me mattered to me, and that's a shallow way to live. I was full of pain, had no real purpose, and if you were watching from afar, it would have looked like I'd given up on any chance of success, that I was heading for disaster. But I hadn't let go of all hope. I had one more dream left. I wanted to join the Air Force. My grandfather had been a cook in the Air Force for 37 years, and he was so proud of his service that even after he retired, he'd wear his dress uniform to church on Sundays and his workaday uniform midweek just to sit on the damn porch. That level of pride inspired me to join the Civil Air Patrol, the civilian auxiliary of the Air Force. We met once a week, marched in formation, and learned about the various jobs available in the Air Force from officers, which is how I became fascinated with pararescue, the guys who jump out of airplanes to pull down pilots out of harm's way. I attended a week-long course during the summer before my freshman year called PJOC, the Pararescue Jump Orientation Course. As usual, I was the only. One day, a pararescue man named Scott Guerin came to speak, and he had a motherfucker of a story to tell. During a standard exercise on a high-altitude jump from 13,000 feet, Guerin deployed his chute with another skydiver right above him. That wasn't out of the ordinary. He had the right of way, and per his training, he'd waved off the other jumper except the guy didn't see him, which placed Guerin in grave danger because the jumper above him was still mid-freefall, hurtling through the air at over 120 miles per hour. He went into a cannonball, hoping to avoid clipping Guerin, but it didn't work. Guerin had no clue what was coming when his teammate flew through his canopy, collapsing it on contact, and slammed into Guerin's face with his knees. Guerin was knocked unconscious instantly and wobbled into another freefall, his crushed chute creating very little drag. The other skydiver was able to deploy his chute and survive with minor injuries. Guerin didn't really land. 
he bounced like a flat basketball three times. But because he'd been unconscious, his body was limp, and he didn't come apart despite crashing to the ground at 100 miles per hour. He died twice on the operating table, but the ER docs brought him back to life. When he woke in a hospital bed, they said he wouldn't make a full recovery and would never be a pararescueman again. Eighteen months later, he defied medical odds, made that full recovery, and was back on the job he loved. David. Scott Gearin. Yeah, this guy right here was a, it was a fucking badass, especially for a, for a young kid who was just looking for anything to sink his hands in that, that gave, you know, that, that gave me some hope. So I was at this PGOC camp, and basically how he was introduced was this guy named Bill Burton, who is now dead. He was a pararescueman also. Bill Burton gave this guy an introduction. He said, hey, I want you all to, you know, kind of stand up and put your hands together for Scott Guerin. And when this guy came out, when, when, when Scott came out, the first thing I noticed was his throat. His throat had been cut open to, to, to get an open airway. Hmm from his accident. So I I will get to that in a little bit. But when Scott came out, he sounded just like Clint Eastwood, you know, because, you know, they had messed up his throat so bad and he was telling this story. And so he went on and went on telling the story. So for seven days, man, I would literally sit outside my tent and this guy would come out of his little, of his little hut and he would do push-ups and sit-ups and flutter kicks all day long. So I became obsessed with Scott Guerin. Did he look fucked up aside from his throat? No, he didn't look fucked up at all. He looked like 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 a daggone Greek god. Hmm. And so, I I became obsessed with Scott Guerin. So we leave, we leave the uh, pararescue or or the PGOC training, and I go back home, and I keep thinking about this guy. And this is before you know Google and all that shit where you can find somebody. So we had no money. So I go on this hunt for Scott Guerin. <laughs> And I'm literally Googling, or not, not Googling, but calling all these Air Force bases. Hey, are there any pararescue men there? No. So there's very few bases that have pararescue men. So I finally locate a base. And I'm like, hey, pararescue men, yes. So then I'm, I'm, I'm tied into now all the PJs, all the pararescue men. So I start getting a little bit of traction. So long story short, man, I spent over $500 on a phone bill, trying to track this guy down. You were wearing out 411, huh? Oh, my God. It was unbelievable. So I tracked the guy down, and he, so I so I leave him a message, and he actually calls me, but my mom answers the phone. And she's like, oh, my God, like, my, my son's going to lose his mind. And he's like, who the hell is your son? And my mom's like, he was like the only black guy in PJ training, in pararescue training. So, you know, to, to, to cut to the chase, I I go stay with this guy for like two weeks. So I'm like, I'm like begging him, can I please come stay with you? Now, I know the guy for a week. We never had any interaction. I'm begging this guy to come live with him for a week. So he was a scuba instructor in um, Key West, Florida hmm. at the Special Forces Scuba School. So I go down and stay with him for two weeks. And while I'm down there, he's telling me the stories about how this kind of parachute accident happened. So his his parachute accident, it's all true how it went down. But the day before the parachute accident, he was actually teaching two Navy SEALs who were not medics. He was teaching these two guys on how to cut the throat to open up an airway 
if something happened. So Scott and these guys go for a parachute jump. The guy goes through his parachute, knocks Scott unconscious, as you all have just heard. He hit the ground, bounced twice, and the Navy SEALs that he just taught the day before, they land on the ground, go over to Scott and actually open his airway. So if Scott didn't teach these guys how to open up an airway, Scott would be dead today. That's amazing. It's I mean, truly amazing. That's an amazing story. Um, and that's why you audiobook listeners are stoked because you are getting the annotated version of this amazing book. Right. You know, it's just, it's just too much to put in the actual book, man. So, you know, I can go on and, and kind of freestyle some of this stuff. Amazing stuff. Um, and so for years, you were obsessed with Scott's story and, and kind of changed your life after meeting him. Yeah, it, it changed my life. But, you know, I kind of went back to my old ways. Yeah. And um, But as you all hear here pretty soon, I went back to my old ways. But, um, yeah, he was just, a, you know, just that person that was like, it is possible. There was a real live Rambo out there. So it gave me some hope. For years, I was obsessed with that story because he'd survived the impossible, and I resonated with his survival. After Wilmoth's murder, with all those racist taunts raining down on my head, I won't bore you with every single episode. Just know there were many more. I felt like I was free-falling with no fucking shoot. Garen was living proof that it's possible to transcend anything that doesn't kill you. And from the time I heard him speak, I knew I would enlist in the Air Force after graduation, which only made school seem more irrelevant especially after I was cut from the varsity basketball team during my junior year. I wasn't cut because of my skills. The coaches knew I was one of the best players they had and that I loved the game. Johnny and I played it night and day. Our entire friendship was based on basketball. But because I was angry at the coaches for how they used me on the JV team the year before, I didn't attend summer workouts. And they took that as a lack of commitment to the team. They didn't know or care that when they cut me, they'd eliminated any incentive I'd had to keep my GPA up, which I'd barely managed to do through cheating anyway. Now I had no good reason to attend school. At least that's what I thought, because I was clueless about the emphasis that the military places on education. I figured they'd take anybody. Two incidents convinced me otherwise and inspired me to change. The first was when I failed the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery Test, ASVAB, during my junior year. The ASVAB is the Armed Forces version of the SATs. It's a standardized test that allows the military to assess your current knowledge and future potential for learning at the same time, and I showed up for that test prepared to do what I did best, cheat. I'd been copying on every test in every class for years, but when I took my seat for the ASVAB, I was shocked to see that the people seated to my right and left had different tests than I did. I had to go it alone and scored a 20 out of a possible 99 points. The absolute minimum standard to be admitted to the Air Force is only 36, and I couldn't even get there. The second sign that I needed to change arrived with a postmark just before school let out for the summer after junior year. My mother was still in her emotional black hole after Wilmoth's murder, and her coping mechanism was to take on as much as possible. She worked full-time at DePaul University and taught night classes at Indiana State University, because if she stopped hustling long enough to think, she would realize the reality of her life. She kept it moving, was never around, and never asked to see my grades. After the first semester of our junior year, I remember Johnny and me bringing home F's and D's. We spent two hours doctoring the ink. We turned F's into B's and D's into C's, and were laughing the whole damn time. 
I actually remember feeling a perverse pride in being able to show my fake grades to my mother, but she never even asked to see them. She took my damn word for it. We lived parallel lives in the same house, and since I was more or less raising myself, I stopped listening to her. In fact, about ten days before the letter arrived, she'd kicked me out because I refused to come home from a party before curfew. She told me that if I didn't, I shouldn't come home at all. In my mind, I had already been living by myself for several years. I made my own meals, cleaned my own clothes. I wasn't angry at her. I was cocky and figured I didn't need her anymore. I stayed out that night, and for the next week and a half, I crashed at Johnny's place or with other friends. Eventually, the day came when I'd spent my last dollar. By chance, she called me at Johnny's that morning and told me about a letter from school. It said I'd missed over a quarter of the year due to unexcused absences, that I had a D average, and unless I showed significant improvement in my GPA and attendance during my senior year, I would not graduate. She wasn't emotional about it. She was more exhausted than exasperated. I'll come home and get the note, I said. No need for that, she replied. I just wanted you to know that you were flunking out. I showed up on her doorstep later that day with my stomach growling. I didn't ask for forgiveness, and she didn't demand an apology. She just left the door open and walked away. I stepped into the kitchen and made myself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. She passed me the letter without saying a word. I read it in my room, where the walls were papered over with layers of Michael Jordan and special ops posters. Inspiration for twin passions slipping through my fingers. That night, after taking a shower, I wiped the steam away from our corroded bathroom mirror and took a good look. I didn't like who I saw staring back. I was a low-budget thug with no purpose and no future. I felt so disgusted, I wanted to punch that motherfucker in the face and shatter glass. Instead, I lectured him. It was time to get real. Look at you, I said. Why do you think the Air Force wants your punk ass? You stand for nothing? You are an embarrassment. I reached for the shaving cream, smoothed the thin coat over my face, unwrapped a fresh razor and kept talking as I shaved. You are one dumb motherfucker. You read like a third grader. You're a fucking joke. You've never tried hard at anything in your life besides basketball. And you have goals? That's fucking hilarious. After shaving peach fuzz from my cheeks and chin, I lathered up my scalp. I was desperate for a change. I wanted to become someone new. You don't see people in the military sagging their pants. You need to stop talking like a wannabe gangster. None of this shit is going to cut it. No more taking the easy way out. It's time to grow the fuck up. Steam billowed all around me. It rippled off my skin and poured from my soul. What started as a spontaneous venting session had become a solo intervention. It's on you, I said. Yeah, I know shit is fucked up. I know what you've been through. I was there, bitch. Merry fucking Christmas. Nobody is coming to save your ass. Not your mommy. Not Wilmoth. Nobody. It's up to you. By the time I was done talking, I was shaved clean. Water purled on my scalp, streamed from my forehead, and dripped down the bridge of my nose. I looked different, and for the first time, I'd held myself accountable. A new ritual was born, one that stayed with me for years. It would help me get my grades up, whip my sorry ass into shape, and see me through graduation and into the Air Force. The ritual was simple. I'd shave my face and scalp every night, get loud, and get real. I set goals wrote them on post-it notes, and tagged them to what I now call the accountability mirror, because each day I'd hold myself accountable to the goals I'd set. At first, my goals involved shaping up my appearance and accomplishing all my chores without having to be asked. 
Make your bed like you're in the military every day. Pull up your pants. Shave your head every morning. Cut the grass. Wash all dishes. The accountability mirror kept me on point from then on, and though I was still young when this strategy came through me, since then I found it useful for people at any stage in life. You could be on the cusp of retirement, looking to reinvent yourself. Maybe you're going through a bad breakup or have gained weight. Perhaps you're permanently disabled, overcoming some other injury, or are just coming to grips with how much of your life you've wasted living without purpose. In each case, that negativity you're feeling is your internal desire for change. But change doesn't come easy, and the reason this ritual worked so well for me was because of my tone. I wasn't fluffy. I was raw because that was the only way to get myself right. That summer between my junior and senior year in high school, I was afraid. I was insecure. I wasn't a smart kid. I'd blown off all accountability for my entire teenage existence and actually thought I was getting over on all the adults in my life, getting over on the system. I duped myself into a negative feedback loop of cheating and scamming that on the surface looked like advancement until I hit a brick fucking wall called reality. That night when I came home and read the letter from my school, there was no denying the truth, and I delivered it hard. I didn't dance around and say, geez, David, you're not taking your education very seriously. No, I had to own it in the raw because the only way we can change is to be real with ourselves. If you don't know shit and have never taken school seriously, then say, I'm dumb. Tell yourself that you need to get your ass to work because you're falling behind in life. If you look in the mirror and you see a fat person, don't tell yourself that you need to lose a couple of pounds. Tell the truth. You're fucking fat. It's okay. Just say you're fat if you're fat. The dirty mirror that you see every day is going to tell you the truth every time. So why are you still lying to yourself? So you can feel better for a few minutes and stay the fucking same? If you're fat, you need to change the fact that you're fat because it's very fucking unhealthy. I know because I've been there. If you have worked for 30 years doing the same shit you've hated day in and day out because you are afraid to quit and take a risk, you've been living like a pussy. Period. Point blank. Tell yourself the truth. That you've wasted enough time and that you have other dreams that will take courage to realize so you don't die a fucking pussy. Call yourself out. Nobody likes to hear the hard truth. Individually and as a culture, we avoid what we need to hear most. This world is fucked up. There are major problems in our society. We are still dividing ourselves up along racial and cultural lines, and people don't have the balls to hear it. The truth is, racism and bigotry still fucking exist, and some people are so thin-skinned they refuse to admit that. To this day, many in Brazil claim that there is no racism in their small town. That's why I have to give Kirk Freeman props. When I called him in the spring of 2018, he remembered what I went through very clearly. He's one of the few who isn't afraid of the truth. But if you are the only, and you aren't stuck in some real-world genocidal twilight zone, you'd better get real too. Your life is not fucked up because of overt racists or hidden systemic racism. You aren't missing out on opportunities, making shit money, and getting evicted because of America or Donald fucking Trump, or because your ancestors were slaves, or because some people hate immigrants or Jews or harass women or believe gay people are going to hell. If any of that shit is stopping you from excelling in life, I've got some news. You are stopping you. You are giving up instead of getting hard. Tell the truth about the real reasons for your limitations and you will turn that negativity, which is real, into jet fuel. Those odds stacked against you will become a damn runway. There is no more time to waste. Hours and days evaporate like creeks in the desert. That's why it's okay to be cruel to yourself, as long as you realize you're doing it to become better. We all need thicker skin to improve in life. 
being soft when you look in the mirror isn't going to inspire the wholesale changes we need to shift our present and open up our future. The morning after that first session with the accountability mirror, I trashed the shag steering wheel and the fuzzy dice. I tucked my shirt in and wore my pants with a belt, and once school started up again, I stopped eating at my lunch table. For the first time, being liked and acting cool were a waste of my time, and instead of eating with all the popular kids, I found my own table and ate alone. Mind you, the rest of my progress could not be described as a blink-and-you'll-miss-it metamorphosis. Lady Luck did not suddenly show up, run me a hot, soapy bath, and kiss me like she loved me. In fact, the only reason I didn't become just another statistic is because at the last possible moment, I got to work. During my senior year in high school, all I cared about was working out, playing basketball, and studying. And it was the accountability mirror that kept me motivated to keep pushing towards something better. I woke up before dawn and started going to the YMCA most mornings at 5 a.m., before school to hit the weights. I ran all the damn time, usually around the local golf course after dark. One night I ran 13 miles, the most I'd ever run in my entire life. On that run I came to a familiar intersection. It was the same street where that redneck had pulled a gun on me. I avoided it and ran on, covering a half mile in the opposite direction before something told me to turn back. When I arrived at that intersection a second time, I stopped and contemplated it. I was scared shitless of that street. My heart was leaping from my chest, which is exactly why I suddenly started charging down its fucking throat. Within seconds, two snarling dogs got loose and chased me as the woods leaned in on both sides. It was all I could do to stay a step ahead of the beasts. I kept expecting that truck to reappear and run me the fuck down like some scene from Mississippi circa 1965, but I kept running faster and faster until I was breathless. Eventually the hounds of hell gave up and loped off, and it was just me, the rhythm and steam of my breath, and that deep country quiet. It was cleansing. By the time I turned back, my fear was gone. I owned that fucking street. From then on, I brainwashed myself into craving discomfort. If it was raining, I would go run. Whenever it started snowing, my mind would say, get your fucking running shoes on. Sometimes I wussed out and had to deal with it at the accountability mirror. But facing that mirror, facing myself, motivated me to fight through uncomfortable experiences. And as a result, I became tougher. And being tough and resilient helped me meet my goals. Nothing was as hard for me as learning. The kitchen table became my all-day, all-night study hall. After I'd failed the ASVAB a second time, my mother realized that I was serious about the Air Force. So she found me a tutor who helped me figure out a system I could use to learn. That system was memorization. I couldn't learn just by scratching a few notes and memorizing those. I had to read a textbook and write each page down in my notebook, then do it again a second and third time. That's how knowledge stuck to the mirror of my mind, not through learning, but through transcription, memorization, and recall. I did that for English. I did that for history. I wrote out and memorized formulas for algebra. If my tutor took an hour to teach me a lesson, I had to go back over my notes from that session for six hours to lock it in. My personal study hall schedule and goals became post-it notes on my accountability mirror. And guess what happened? I developed an obsession for learning. Over six months, I went from having a fourth grade reading level to that of a senior in high school. My vocabulary mushroomed. I wrote out thousands of flashcards and went over them for hours, days, and weeks. I did the same for mathematical formulas. Part of it was survival instinct. I damn sure wasn't going to get into college based on academics. And though I was a starter on the varsity basketball team my senior year, no college scouts knew my name. All I knew was that I had to get the fuck out of Brazil, Indiana. 
that the military was my best chance, and to get there I had to pass the ASVAB. On my third try, I met the minimum standard for the Air Force. Living with purpose changed everything for me, at least in the short term. During my senior year in high school, studying and working out gave my mind so much energy that hate flaked from my soul like used-up snakeskin. The resentment I held toward the racists in Brazil, the emotion that had dominated me and was burning me up inside, dissipated because I'd finally considered the fucking source. I looked at the people who were making me feel uncomfortable and realized how uncomfortable they were in their own skin. To make fun of or try to intimidate someone they didn't even know based on race alone was a clear indication that something was very wrong with them, not me. But when you have no confidence, it becomes easy to value other people's opinions, and I was valuing everyone's opinion without considering the minds that generated them. That sounds silly, but it's an easy trap to fall into, especially when you are insecure on top of being the only. As soon as I made that connection, being upset with them was not worth my time, because if I was going to kick their ass in life, and I was, I had way too much shit to do. Each insult or dismissive gesture became more fuel for the engine revving inside me. By the time I graduated, I knew that the confidence I'd managed to develop didn't come from a perfect family or God-given talent. It came from personal accountability, which brought me self-respect, and self-respect will always light a way forward. For me, it lit up a path straight out of Brazil, forever. But I didn't get away clean. When you transcend a place in time that has challenged you to the core, it can feel like you've won a war. Don't fall for that mirage. Your past, your deepest fears, have a way of going dormant before springing back to life at double strength. You must remain vigilant. For me, the Air Force revealed that I was still soft inside. I was still insecure. I wasn't yet hard of bone and mind. This is a good principle, the accountability mirror. Yes, man, the accountability mirror is something that started it all for me. And it was so much easier to be someone else. That's why, you know, acting like I was cool, acting like a wannabe thug, sagging my pants. I was just living a dream world. Let's not be David Goggins. Let's just be this uh, funny looking character that's not dealing with his own problems. So it made my life so much easier to not deal with this fucked up life that I had. But I, at the same time, I could see how you do it. Like you, you were kind of thriving. The comedy aspect of it does help you deal with it to some sense. It was almost like it almost like was a painkiller. The comedy aspect of it, right? Oh yeah, the, yeah. It, it. You know what's funny? It's exact. I mean, it's the honest truth what you say. But the scary thing about it is, you accomplish nothing. Right. Nothing gets accomplished. So, yeah, it helped me kind of uh, get by. Yeah. But that's all I was doing was getting by. And I was afraid. I was really afraid to go back in that pile of shit. And by 18, 19 years old, I already had so much crap that I had to go through. I just kept putting it off. Mm. And the scary thing about it was I always knew that I had it in me. I always knew I had it in me to learn. I always knew I had it in me to be better. But I knew that it was going to take me so many more hours than the normal person. I knew that I was coming into the game at such a deficit. And, you know, I didn't have these great parents. I didn't have this great foundation. So I had to almost by myself start rebuilding a house. Mm. And I knew what kind of work that was going to take for me to do this. So I just kept running away from the work. 
What what made you decide that it was the post-it notes? Because at first I could see you talking to yourself in the mirror and it becoming like its own trance. Right. But how did you decide to go to the post-it notes and start to actually make them kind of work detail? So what was crazy about it is that my mind, the way it works, is if I don't have constant reminders, I will... Your path is I'm, like, you know, your your mind is constantly looking for the path of least resistance. So if you're not constantly challenging yourself every day for a person like me, if I'm not constantly looking at, OK, the task at hand today on my post-it notes on this mirror is to do this. My mind's going to say, hey, let's not do that today. Let's go over here, go to Johnny's house, play basketball and just fuck around. So I had to have a constant reminder of, hey, all right, David, we have to do X, Y, and Z today, or we can't do this and that. So I had to earn everything in my life from that point forward. I remember Johnny, uh, when we talked to Johnny, uh, saying that all, it was almost like you just disappeared. Like <laughs> he wanted to play basketball and you'd be, you'd be at the kitchen table studying because you hadn't knocked it out yet. You know what's funny about that, man? I didn't pick up a basketball. So this happened my junior year and then my senior year I played basketball. I didn't pick up a basketball for about 20 years. Really? Yep. And that's something I don't tell anybody. So basketball was my love. But I realized that basketball became my escape. Hmm. And I low I, I I no longer could escape from my life. So I started choosing Whatever made me uncomfortable, I realized that I had to start gravitating towards that. And it was a long process. It wasn't like I woke up one morning, looked in the accountability mirror and figured out, oh, let me write some post-it notes down here and start doing this. We all have a voice in our head. We all have a voice in our head that is trying to direct you to a place where you can be better. We also have another voice in our head that's saying, ah, fuck that. Let's not do that. So... Whatever that voice was saying that kind of sucked, that, that sucky voice that made me very uncomfortable, I started realizing that that's the only voice I can listen to. The other voice was a voice of comfort, and I had to stop listening to that voice because it always took me down the path of least resistance. Mm. So this challenge that we set up is, is, to, is for your readers and listeners to set up their own accountability mirror. Right. And you've never really laid out that challenge to your uh, followers before, have you? No, this is something brand new. I've, I've, I've never even, well, I talk about the accountability mirror every now and then, but this is definitely brand new. Where you're breaking out like how-tos about it. Exactly. Challenge number two, it's time to come eyeball to eyeball with yourself and get raw and real. This is not a self-love tactic. You can't fluff it. Don't massage your ego. This is about abolishing the ego and taking the first step toward becoming the real you. I tack post-it notes on my accountability mirror, and I'll ask you to do the same. Digital devices won't work. Write all your insecurities, dreams, and goals on post-its and tag up your mirror. If you need more education, remind yourself that you need to start working your ass off because you aren't smart enough. Period. Point blank. If you look in the mirror and see someone who is obviously overweight... That means you're fucking fat. Own it. It's okay to be unkind with yourself in these moments because we need thicker skin to improve in life. Whether it's a career goal, quit my job, start a business, a lifestyle goal, lose weight and get more active, 
or an athletic one, run my first 5K, 10K, or marathon. You need to be truthful with yourself about where you are and the necessary steps it will take to achieve those goals, day by day. Each step, each necessary point of self-improvement, should be written as its own note. That means you have to do some research and break it all down. For example, if you're trying to lose 40 pounds, your first post-it may be to lose 2 pounds in the first week. Once that goal is achieved, remove the note and post the next goal of 2 to 5 pounds until your ultimate goal is realized. Whatever your goal, you'll need to hold yourself accountable for the small steps it will take to get there. Self-improvement takes dedication and self-discipline. The dirty mirror you see every day is going to reveal the truth. Stop ignoring it. Use it to your advantage. If you feel it, post an image of yourself staring into your tagged-up accountability mirror on social media with the hashtags, hashtag can't hurt me, hashtag accountability mirror. Talk about the tone and what, and what it means to be, have thicker skin and why that's so important. You know, we live in a world nowadays, especially now, it's... Uh... We live in a soft generation, man. Um, people are, are, are very soft and people hate to admit that they're wrong. They hate to admit that they're wrong. Like, I mean, even for very simple things, it's, it's much easier to blame somebody. People, that whole accountability thing, it sounds so simple. But how many times do you sit in a room when somebody messes up and no one really says, hey, I messed up. Hey, I apologize, I messed up. That's one of the hardest things to do. So that whole thick skin is to be able to take criticism, be able to criticize yourself. Why? We, we live in this society and we believe that everybody is so great and so perfect, but we haven't really realized that everybody's fucked up. Everybody's fucked up, even the people who are judging you. All that they're doing better than you is they're hiding. They're able to hide better than you are. So they make you feel like you're a piece of shit because they don't want to hold themselves accountable. So the whole thick skin thing is whatever you are, own it. The only way you're going to lose weight is to say, hey, I'm overweight. I'm fat. You might be obese. The only way you're going to fix being smarter is say, you know what? I'm not the smartest cat in the world. I need to fix these things that I'm, that, you know, that I'm lacking in. And that's the only way I got better was to develop thick skin. You know, back in the day, somebody would have called me dumb. You know, yeah, it hurts your feelings, but are you dumb? Are you dumb? Yeah, mm. it's hurtful. It hurts your feelings. Yeah, no one wants to hear it. But sometimes bullies are just telling you the fucking truth in a very mean way. And that's how you got to look at it. You got to look at, you know what, man? I, I'm not the smartest cat in the world. But use that strength Use like, you know, if you're getting bullied in a way, if they're calling you fat, don't go home and put your head down. Go home and say, you know what? I am fat, but I'm going to lose some fucking weight and go back to school or go back to whatever and say, hey, look at me now. Take a different vantage point in life. Don't look at it as always being hurt. Grow that thick skin. Grow, grow daggone alligator skin mm. to where nothing can hurt you. Not thick skin, grow alligator skin. And that's right there is where you start getting the tactical advantage over everything, over yourself. Like I said before, your mind is always at the tactical advantage. It knows your fears. It knows your insecurities. You can't outrun them. So you, so, so you might as well face them, hold yourself accountable, and then start to fix them. Yeah, it's like in these, these days, everyone wants to sit in their feelings and, and have their feelings validated. Like, this is my emotional process. This is that. But what you're saying is... 
you know, you, there's a lot more to what you feel. You can't believe everything you feel. Right. And sometimes you have to go deeper and find your find uh, find your way out of the feeling. Right. And even deeper than that is that a lot of people start to hang around people that, you know, allow them to have no accountability. Mm. You know, they have friends that say, oh, yeah, it's their fault. They 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 start to tell you everything you want to hear. And that's how you group your friends. You got that run friend that comes in there and says, hey, man, no, you're kind of fucked up. You need to change your way. You no longer want to hang with that person. Yeah. So, you know, we got to look at, so this is all encompassing about everything you do in life. Pick the people around you that are going to hold you to a higher standard, not a lower standard that makes you feel better. I like it. I think that's one of the biggest problems in society is that people are, afraid to hear what they don't want to hear and it's and it makes us all worse off a hundred percent man and especially nowadays yeah it's a much kinder gentler world where everybody's winning and at the end of the day all you're doing is losing chapter three the impossible task it was past midnight and the streets were dead I steered my pickup truck into another empty parking lot and killed the engine. In the quiet, all I could hear were the eerie halogen hum of the street lamps and the scratch of my pen as I checked off another franchise feed trough. The latest in a never-ending series of fast food and dine-in industrial kitchens that received more nightly visitors than you'd care to know about. That's why guys like me showed up to places like this in the wee hours. I stuffed my clipboard under the armrest, grabbed my gear, and began restocking rat traps. They're everywhere those little green boxes. Look around almost any restaurant and you'll find them, hidden in plain sight. My job was to bait, move, or replace them. Sometimes I hit pay dirt and found a rat carcass, which never caught me by surprise. You know death when you smell it. This wasn't the mission I signed up for when I enlisted in the Air Force with dreams of joining a pararescue unit. Back then I was 19 years old and weighed 175 pounds. By the time I was discharged four years later, I had ballooned to nearly 300 pounds and was on a different kind of patrol. At that weight, even bending down to bait the traps took effort. I was so damn fat I had to sew an athletic sock into the crotch of my work pants so they wouldn't split when I dropped to one knee. No bullshit. I was a sorry fucking sight. With the exterior handled, it was time to venture indoors, which was its own wilderness. I had keys to almost every restaurant in this part of Indianapolis, and their alarm codes too. Once inside, I pumped my hand-held silver canister full of poison and placed a fumigation mask over my face. I looked like a damn space alien in that thing, with its dual filters jutting out from my mouth, protecting me from toxic fumes, protecting me. If there was anything I liked about that job, it was the stealth nature of working late, moving in and out of inky shadows. I loved that mask for the same reason. It was vital, and not because of any damn insecticide. I needed it because it made it impossible for anyone to see me, especially me. Even if by chance I caught my own reflection in a glass doorway or on a stainless steel countertop, it wasn't me I was seeing. It was some janky-ass low-budget stormtrooper, the kind of guy who would palm yesterday's brownies on his way out the door. It wasn't me. Sometimes I'd see roaches scurry for cover when I flipped the lights on to spray down the counters and the tiled floors. I'd see dead rodents stuck to sticky traps I'd laid on previous visits. I bagged and dumped them. I checked the lighting systems I'd installed to catch moths and flies and clean those out too. Within a half hour I was gone, rolling on to the next restaurant. I had a dozen stops every night and had to hit them all before dawn. 
Maybe this kind of gig sounds disgusting to you. When I think back, I'm disgusted too, but not because of the job. It was honest work, necessary. Hell, in Air Force boot camp, I got on the wrong side of my first drill sergeant and she made me the latrine queen. It was my job to keep the latrines in our barracks shining. She told me that if she found one speck of dirt in that latrine at any moment, I would get recycled back to day one and join a new flight. I took my discipline. I was happy just to be in the Air Force and I cleaned the hell out of that latrine. You could have eaten off that floor. Four years later, the guy who was so energized by opportunity that he was excited to clean latrines was gone, and I didn't feel anything at all. They say there's always light at the end of the tunnel, but not once your eyes adjust to the darkness, and that's what happened to me. I was numb, numb to my life, miserable in my marriage, and I'd accepted that reality. I was a would-be warrior turned cockroach sniper on the graveyard shift. Just another zombie selling his time on Earth, going through the motions. In fact, the only insight I had into my job at that time was that it was actually a step up. When I first discharged from the military, I got a job at St. Vincent's Hospital. I worked security from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. for minimum wage and cleared about $700 a month. Every now and then, I'd see an Ecolab truck pull up. We were on the exterminator's regular rotation, and it was my job to unlock the hospital kitchen for him. One night we got to talking, and he mentioned that Ecolab was hiring, and that the job came with a free truck and no boss looking over your shoulder. It was also a 35% pay raise. I didn't think about the health risks. I didn't think at all. I was taking what was being offered. I was on that spoon-fed path of least resistance, letting dominoes fall on my head, and it was killing me slowly. But there's a difference between being numb and clueless. In the dark night, there weren't a lot of distractions to get me out of my head, and I knew that I had tipped the first domino. I'd started the chain reaction that put me on Ecolab duty. The Air Force should have been my way out. That first drill sergeant did end up recycling me into a different unit, and in my new flight, I became a star recruit. I was six foot two and weighed about 175 pounds. I was fast and strong. Our unit was the best flight in all of boot camp, and soon I was training for my dream job, Air Force Pararescue. We were guardian angels with fangs, trained to drop from the sky behind enemy lines and pull down pilots out of harm's way. I was one of the best guys in that training. I was one of the best at push-ups and the best at sit-ups, flutter kicks, and running. I was one point behind honor grad, but there was something they didn't talk about in the lead-up to pararescue training. Water confidence. That's a nice name for a course where they try to drown your ass for weeks, and I was uncomfortable as hell in the water. Although my mom got us off the public dole and out of subsidized housing within three years, she still didn't have extra cash for swim lessons, and we avoided pools. It wasn't until I attended Boy Scout camp when I was 12 years old that I was finally confronted with swimming. Leaving Buffalo allowed me to join the Scouts, and camp was my best opportunity to score all the merit badges I'd need to stay on the path to becoming an Eagle Scout. One morning it was time to qualify for the swimming merit badge, and that meant a one-mile swim in a lake course marked off with buoys. All the other kids jumped in and started getting after it, and if I wanted to save face, I had to pretend I knew what I was doing, so I followed them into the lake. I dog-paddled the best I could, but kept swallowing water, so I flipped onto my back and ended up swimming the entire mile with a fucked-up backstroke I'd improvised on the fly. Merit badge secured. When it came time to take the swim test to get into pararescue, I needed to be able to swim for real. This was a timed 500-meter freestyle swim, and even at 19 years old, I didn't know how to swim freestyle. So I took my stunted ass down to Barnes & Noble, 
bought swimming for dummies, studied the diagrams, and practiced in the pool every day. I hated putting my face in the water, but I managed for one stroke, then two, and before long I could swim an entire lap. I wasn't as buoyant as most swimmers. Whenever I stopped swimming, even for a moment, I'd start to sink, which made my heart pound with panic, and my increased tension just made it worse. Eventually I passed that swim test, but there is a difference between being competent and comfortable in the water. Another big gap from comfortable to confident, and when you can't float like most people, water confidence does not come easy. Sometimes it doesn't come at all. In pararescue training, water confidence is part of the 10-week program, and it's filled with specific evolutions designed to test how well we perform in the water under stress. One of the worst evolutions for me was called bobbing. The class was divided into groups of five, lined up from gutter to gutter in the shallow end, and fully kitted up. Our backs were strapped with twin 80-liter tanks made from galvanized steel, and we wore 16-pound weight belts, too. We were loaded the fuck down, which would have been fine, except in this evolution, we weren't allowed to breathe from those tanks. Instead, we were told to walk backward, down the slope of the pool, from the three-foot section to the deep end, about ten feet down. And on that slow walk into position, my mind swirled with doubt and negativity. What the fuck are you doing here? This isn't for you. You can't swim. You're an imposter, and they will find you out. Time slowed down, and those seconds seemed like minutes. My diaphragm lurched, trying to force air into my lungs. Theoretically, I knew that relaxation was the key to all the underwater evolutions, but I was too terrified to let go. My jaw clenched as tight as my fists. My head throbbed as I worked to stave off panic. Finally, we were all in position, and it was time to start bobbing. That meant pushing up from the bottom to the surface without the benefit of finning, getting a gulp of air, and sinking back down. It wasn't easy getting up fully loaded, but at least I was able to breathe, and that first breath was a salvation. Oxygen flooded my system, and I started to relax until the instructor yelled, Switch! That was our cue to take our fins from our feet, place them on our hands, and use one pull with our arms to propel ourselves to the surface. We were allowed to push off the floor of the pool, but we couldn't kick. We did that for five minutes. Shallow water and surface blackouts aren't uncommon during water confidence training. It goes along with stressing the body and limiting oxygen intake. With the flippers on my hands, I'd barely get my face high enough out of the water to breathe, and in between, I was working hard and burning oxygen. And when you burn too much too fast, your brain shuts down, and you will black the fuck out. Our instructors called that meeting the wizard. As the clock ticked, I could see stars materializing in my peripheral vision, and felt the wizard creeping close. I passed that evolution, and soon, finning with my arms or feet became easy for me. What stayed hard from beginning to end was one of our simplest tasks, treading water without our hands. We had to keep our hands and our chins high above the water, using only our legs, which we'd swirl in a blender-like motion for three minutes. That doesn't sound like much time, and for most of the class it was easy. For me, it was damn near impossible. My chin kept hitting the water, which meant the time would start again from triple zero. All around me, my classmates were so comfortable their legs were barely moving, while mine were whirring at top speed, 
and I still couldn't get half as high as those white boys who looked to be defying gravity. Every day it was another humiliation in the pool. Not that I was embarrassed publicly. I passed all the evolutions, but inside I was suffering. Each night I'd fixate on the next day's task and become so terrified I couldn't sleep. And soon my fear morphed into resentment toward my classmates, who, in my mind, had it easy, which dredged up my past. I was the only black man in my unit, which reminded me of my childhood in rural Indiana, and the harder the water confidence training became, the higher those dark waters would rise, until it seemed I was also being drowned from the inside out. While the rest of my class was sleeping, that potent cocktail of fear and rage thrummed through my veins and my nocturnal fixations became their own kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. One where failure was inevitable, because my unchecked fear was unleashing something I couldn't control. The quitting mind. It all came to a head six weeks into the training, with the buddy breathing exercise. We partnered up. Each pair gripped one another by the forearm and took turns breathing through just one snorkel. Meanwhile, the instructors thrashed us, trying to separate us from our snorkel. All of this was supposed to be happening at or near the surface, but I was negatively buoyant, which meant I was sinking into the middle waters of the deep end, dragging my partner down with me. He'd take a breath and pass the snorkel down to me. I'd swim to the surface, exhale, and attempt to clear the water from our snorkel and get a clean breath before passing it back to him, but the instructors made that almost impossible. I'd usually only clear the tube halfway and inhale more water than air. From the jump, I was operating from an oxygen deficit while fighting to stay near the surface. In military training, it's the instructor's job to identify weak links and challenge them to perform or quit, and they could tell I was struggling. In the pool that day, one of them was always in my face, yelling and thrashing me, while I choked, trying and failing to gulp air through a narrow tube to stave off the wizard. I went under and remember looking up at the rest of the class, splayed out like serene starfish on the surface, calm as can be. They passed their snorkels back and forth with ease, while I fumed. I know now that my instructor was just doing his job, but back then I thought, this fucker's not giving me a fair shot. I passed that evolution too, but I still had 11 more evolutions and four more weeks of water confidence training to go. It made sense. We would be jumping out of airplanes over water. We needed it. I just didn't want to do it anymore. And the next morning, I was offered a way out I hadn't seen coming. Weeks earlier, we'd had our blood drawn during a med check, and the doctors had just discovered I carried the sickle cell trait. I didn't have the disease, sickle cell anemia, but I had the trait, which was believed at the time to increase the risk of sudden exercise-related death due to cardiac arrest. The Air Force didn't want me dropping dead in the middle of an evolution and pulled me out of training on a medical. I pretended to take the news hard, as if my dream was being ripped away. I made a big fucking act of being pissed off, but inside, I was ecstatic. Later that week, the doctors reversed their decision. They didn't specifically say it was safe for me to continue, but they said the trait wasn't yet well understood and allowed me to decide for myself. When I reported back to training, the master sergeant informed me that I'd missed too much time and that if I wanted to continue, I would have to start over from day one, week one. Instead of less than four weeks, I'd have to endure another 10 weeks of the terror, rage, and insomnia that came with water confidence. These days, that kind of thing wouldn't even register on my radar, 
You tell me to run longer and harder than everyone else just to get a fair shake? I'd say, roger that, and keep moving. But back then, I was still half-baked. Physically, I was strong, but I was not even close to mastering my mind. The master sergeant stared at me, awaiting my response. I couldn't even look him in the eye when I said, You know what, master sergeant? The doctor doesn't know much about this sickle cell thing, and it's bothering me. He nodded, emotionless, and signed the papers pulling me out of the program for good. He cited sickle cell, and on paper I didn't quit, but I knew the truth. If I had been the guy I am today, I wouldn't have given two fucks about sickle cell. I still have the sickle cell trait. You don't just get rid of it, but back then an obstacle had appeared, and I'd folded. I moved on to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, told my friends and family that I was forced from the program on a medical, and served out my four years in the Tactical Air Control Party, TACP, which works with some special operations units. I trained or liaise between ground units and air support, fast movers like F-15s and F-16s, behind enemy lines. It was challenging work with intelligent people, but sadly I was never proud of it and didn't see the opportunities offered because I knew I was a quitter who had let fear dictate my future. I buried my shame in the gym and at the kitchen table. I got into powerlifting and layered on the mass. I ate and worked out, worked out and ate. In my last days in the Air Force, I weighed 255 pounds. After my discharge, I continued to bulk up with both muscle and fat until I weighed nearly 300 pounds. I wanted to be big because being big hid David Goggins. I was able to tuck this 175-pound person into those 21-inch biceps and that flabby belly. I grew a burly mustache and was intimidating to everyone who saw me. But inside, I knew I was a pussy, and that's a haunting feeling. The morning I began to take charge of my destiny started out like any other. When the clock struck 7 a.m., my Ecolab shift ended, and I hit the Steak and Shake drive through to score a large chocolate milkshake. Next stop, 7-Eleven, for a box of Hostess Mini Chocolate Donuts. I gobbled those on my 45-minute drive home to a beautiful apartment on a golf course in Pretty Carmel, Indiana, which I shared with my wife, Pam, and her daughter. Remember that Pizza Hut incident? I married that girl. I married a girl whose dad called me a nigger. What does that say about me? We couldn't afford that life. Pam wasn't even working, but in those credit card debt-loading days, nothing made much sense. I was doing 70 miles per hour on the highway, mainlining sugar and listening to a local classic rock station when sound of silence poured from the stereo. Simon and Garfunkel's words echoed like truth. Darkness was a friend indeed. I worked in the dark, hid my true self from friends and strangers. Nobody would have believed how numb and afraid I was back then because I looked like a beast that no one would dare fuck with. But my mind wasn't right, and my soul was weighed down by too much trauma and failure. I had every excuse in the world to be a loser and used them all. My life was crumbling, and Pam dealt with that by fleeing the scene. Her parents still lived in Brazil, just 70 miles away. We spent most of our time apart. I arrived home from work around 8 a.m., and the phone rang as soon as I walked in the door. It was my mother. She knew my routine. Come on over for your staple, she said. My staple was a breakfast buffet for one, the likes of which few could put down in a single sitting. Think eight Pillsbury cinnamon rolls, a half dozen scrambled eggs, a half pound of bacon, and two bowls of fruity pebbles. Don't forget, I had just decimated a box of donuts and a chocolate shake. I didn't even have to respond. 
She knew I was coming. Food was my drug of choice, and I always sucked up every last crumb. I hung up, flipped on the television, and stomped down the hall to the shower, where I could hear a narrator's voice filter through the steam. I caught snippets. Navy SEALs, toughest, the world. I wrapped a towel around my waist and rushed back into the living room. I was so big, the towel barely covered my fat ass, but I sat down on the couch and didn't move for 30 minutes. The show followed basic underwater demolition SEAL, BUDS, training class 224, through Hell Week, the most arduous series of tasks in the most physically demanding training in the military. I watched men sweat and suffer as they tore through muddy obstacle courses, ran on the soft sand holding logs overhead, and shivered in icy surf. Sweat purled on my scalp. I was literally on the edge of my seat as I saw guys, some of the strongest of them all, ring the bell and quit. Made sense. Only one-third of the men who begin buds make it through Hell Week. And in all of my time in pararescue training, I couldn't remember feeling as awful as these men looked. They were swollen, chafed, sleep-deprived, and dead on their feet. And I was jealous of them. The longer I watched, the more certain I became that there were answers buried in all that suffering. Answers that I needed. More than once, the camera panned over the endless, frothing ocean, and each time I felt pathetic. The seals were everything I wasn't. They were about pride, dignity, and the type of excellence that came from bathing in the fire, getting beat the fuck down, and going back for more, again and again. They were the human equivalent of the hardest, sharpest sword you could imagine. They sought out the flame, took the pounding for as long as necessary, longer even, until they were fearless and deadly. They weren't motivated. They were driven. The show ended with graduation. Twenty-two proud men stood shoulder to shoulder in their dress whites before the camera pushed in on their commanding officer. In a society where mediocrity is too often the standard and too often rewarded, he said, there is intense fascination with men who detest mediocrity, who refuse to define themselves in conventional terms, and who seek to transcend traditionally recognized human capabilities. This is exactly the type of person Buzz is meant to find. The man who finds a way to complete each and every task to the best of his ability. The man who will adapt and overcome any and all obstacles. In that moment, it felt as though the commanding officer was talking directly to me. But after the show ended, I walked back to the bathroom, faced the mirror, and stared myself down. I looked every bit of 300 pounds. I was everything all the haters back home said I would be. Uneducated, with no real-world skills, zero discipline, and a dead-end future. Mediocrity would have been a major promotion. I was at the bottom of the barrel of life, pooling in the dregs. But for the first time in way too long, I was awake. I barely spoke to my mother during breakfast and only ate half my staple because my mind was on unfinished business. I'd always wanted to join an elite special operations unit, and beneath all the rolls of flesh and layers of failure, that desire was still there. Now it was coming back to life, thanks to a chance viewing of a show that continued to work on me like a virus moving cell to cell, taking over. It became an obsession I couldn't shake. Every morning after work for almost three weeks, I called active duty recruiters in the Navy and told them my story. I called offices all over the country. I said I was willing to move as long as they could get me to SEAL training. Everyone turned me down. Most weren't interested in candidates with prior service. 
One local recruiting office was intrigued and wanted to meet in person, but when I got there, they laughed in my face. I was way too heavy, and in their eyes, I was just another delusional pretender. I left that meeting feeling the same way. After calling all the active duty recruiting offices I could find, I dialed the local unit of the Naval Reserves and spoke to Petty Officer Stephen Shaljo for the first time. Shaljo had worked with multiple F-14 squadrons as an electrician and instructor at NAS Miramar for eight years before joining the recruitment staff in San Diego, where the SEALs train. He worked day and night and rose quickly in the ranks. His move to Indianapolis came with a promotion and the challenge of finding Navy recruits in the middle of the corn. He'd only been on the job in Indy for 10 days by the time I called, and if I'd reached anyone else, you probably wouldn't be listening to this book. But through a combination of dumb luck and stubborn persistence, I found one of the finest recruiters in the Navy, a guy whose favorite task was discovering diamonds in the rough, prior service guys like me who are looking to re-enlist and hoping to land in special operations. Our initial conversation didn't last long, he said he could help me and that I should come in to meet in person. That sounded familiar. I grabbed my keys and drove straight to his office, but didn't get my hopes too high. By the time I arrived a half hour later, he was already on the phone with Bud's administration. Every sailor in that office, all of them white, were surprised to see me, except Shaljo. If I was a heavyweight, Shaljo was a lightweight at five foot seven, but he didn't seem phased by my size, at least not at first. He was outgoing and warm, like any salesman though I could tell he had some pit bull in him. He led me down a hall to weigh me in, and while standing on the scale, I eyed a weight chart pinned to the wall. At my height, the maximum allowable weight for the Navy was 191 pounds. I held my breath, sucked in my gut as much as I could, and puffed out my chest in a sorry attempt to stave off the humiliating moment where he let me down easy. That moment never came. You're a big boy, Shaljo said smiling and shaking his head as he scratched 297 pounds on a chart in his file folder. The Navy has a program that allows recruits in the reserves to become active duty. That's what we'll use for this. It's being phased out at the end of the year, so we need to get you classed up before then. Point is, you have some work to do, but you knew that. I followed his eyes to the weight chart and checked it again. He nodded, smiled, patted me on the shoulder, and left me to face my truth. I had less than three months to lose 106 pounds. It sounded like an impossible task, which is one reason I didn't quit my job. The other was the ASVAB. That nightmare test had come back to life like Frankenstein's fucking monster. I'd passed it once before to enlist in the Air Force, but to qualify for BUDS, I'd have to score much higher. For two weeks, I studied all day and zapped pests each night. I wasn't working out yet. Serious weight loss would have to wait. I took the test on a Saturday afternoon. The following Monday, I called Shaljo. Welcome to the Navy, he said. He downloaded the good news first. I'd done exceptionally well on some sections. I was now officially a reservist, but I'd only scored a 44 on mechanical comprehension. To qualify for BUDS, I needed a 50. I'd have to retake the entire test in five weeks. These days, Stephen Shaljo likes to call our chance connection fate. He said he could sense my drive the first moment we spoke, and that he believed in me from the jump, which is why my weight wasn't an issue for him. But after that ASVAB test, I was full of doubt. So maybe what happened later that night was also a form of fate, or a much-needed dose of divine intervention. I'm not going to drop the name of the restaurant where it went down, because if I did, you'd never eat there again, and I'd have to hire a lawyer. Just know, 
This place was a disaster. I checked the traps outside first and found a dead rat. Inside, there were more dead rodents, a mouse and two rats, on the sticky traps, and roaches in the garbage which hadn't been emptied. I shook my head, got down on my knees under the sink, and sprayed up through a narrow gap in the wall. I didn't know it yet, but I'd found their nesting column, and when the poison hit, they started to scatter. Within seconds, there was a skittering across the back of my neck. I brushed it off and craned my neck to see a storm of roaches raining down to the kitchen floor from an open panel in the ceiling. I'd hit the mother load of cockroaches and the worst infestation I ever saw on the job for Ecolab. They kept coming. Roaches landed on my shoulders and my head. The floor was writhing with them. I left my canister in the kitchen, grabbed the sticky traps, and burst outside. I needed fresh air and more time to figure out how I was going to clear the restaurant of vermin. I considered my options on my way to the dumpster to trash the rodents, opened the lid and found a live raccoon, hissing mad. He bared his yellow teeth and lunged at me. I slammed the dumpster shut. What the fuck? I mean, seriously, what the fucking fuck? When was enough truly going to be enough? Was I willing to let my sorry present become a fucked up future? How much longer would I wait? How many more years would I burn, wondering if there was some greater purpose out there waiting for me? I knew right then that if I didn't make a stand and start walking the path of most resistance, I would end up in this mental hell forever. I didn't go back inside that restaurant. I didn't collect my gear. I started my truck, stopped for a chocolate shake, my comfort tea at that time, and drove home. It was still dark when I pulled up. I didn't care. I stripped off my work clothes, put on some sweats, and laced up my running shoes. I hadn't run in over a year but I hit the streets ready to go four miles. I lasted 400 yards. My heart raced. I was so dizzy I had to sit down on the edge of the golf course to catch my breath before making the slow walk back to my house, where my melted shake was waiting to comfort me in yet another failure. I grabbed it, slurped, and slumped into my sofa. My eyes welled with tears. Who the fuck did I think I was? I was born nothing, I'd proven nothing, and I still wasn't worth a damn thing. David Goggins, a Navy SEAL? <laughs> yeah, right. What a pipe dream. I couldn't even run down the block for five minutes. All my fears and insecurities I'd bottled up for my entire life started raining down on my head. I was on the verge of giving in and giving up for good. That's when I found my old beat-to-shit VHS copy of Rocky, the one I'd had for 15 years. Slid it into the machine and fast-forwarded to my favorite scene, Round 14. The original Rocky is still one of my all-time favorite films because it's about a know-nothing journeyman fighter living in poverty with no prospects. Even his own trainer won't work with him. Then, out of the blue, he's given a title shot with a champion, Apollo Creed, the most feared fighter in history. A man that has knocked out every opponent he's ever faced. All Rocky wants is to be the first to go the distance with Creed. That alone will make him someone he could be proud of for the first time in his life. The fight is closer than anyone anticipated, bloody and intense, and by the middle rounds, Rocky is taking on more and more punishment. He's losing the fight, and in round 14 he gets knocked down early, but pops right back up in the center of the ring. Apollo moves in, stalking him like a lion. He throws sharp left jabs, hits a slow-footed Rocky with a staggering combination, lands a punishing right hook, and another. He backs Rocky into a corner. Rocky's legs are jelly. 
He can't even muster the strength to raise his arms in defense. Apollo slams another right hook into the side of Rocky's head, then a left hook, and a vicious right-handed uppercut that puts Rocky down. Apollo retreats to the opposite corner with his arms held high. But even face down in that ring, Rocky doesn't give up. As the referee begins his ten count, Rocky squirms toward the ropes. Mickey, his own trainer, urges him to stay down, but Rocky isn't hearing it. He pulls himself up to one knee, then all fours. The referee hits six as Rocky grabs the ropes and rises up. The crowd roars, and Apollo turns to see him still standing. Rocky waves Apollo over. The champ's shoulders slump in disbelief. The fight isn't over yet. I turned off the television and thought about my own life. It was a life devoid of any drive and passion. But I knew if I continued to surrender to my fear and my feelings of inadequacy, I would be allowing them to dictate my future forever. My only other choice was to try to find the power in the emotions that I had laid me low, harness and use them to empower me to rise up, which is exactly what I did. I dumped that shake in the trash, laced up my shoes, and hit the streets again. On my first run, I felt severe pain in my legs and my lungs at a quarter mile. My heart raced and I stopped. This time I felt the same pain. My heart raced like a car running hot, but I ran through it and the pain faded. By the time I bent over to catch my breath, I'd run a full mile. That's when I first realized that not all physical and mental limitations are real, and that I had a habit of giving up way too soon. I also knew that it would take every ounce of courage and toughness I could muster to pull off the impossible. I was staring at hours, days, and weeks of nonstop suffering. I would have to push myself to the very edge of my mortality. I had to accept the very real possibility that I might die, because this time I wouldn't quit, no matter how fast my heart raced, and no matter how much pain I was in. Trouble was, there was no battle plan to follow, no blueprint. I had to create one from scratch. The typical day went something like this. I'd wake up at 4.30 a.m., munch a banana, and hit the ASVAB books. Around 5 a.m., I'd take that book to my stationary bike, where I'd sweat and study for two hours. Remember, my body was a mess. I couldn't run multiple miles yet, so I had to burn as many calories as I could on the bike. After that, I'd drive over to Carmel High School and jump into the pool for a two-hour swim. From there, I hit the gym for a circuit workout that included the bench press, the incline press, and lots of leg exercises. Bulk was the enemy. I needed reps, and I did five or six sets of 100 to 200 reps each. Then it was back to the stationary bike for two more hours. I was constantly hungry. Dinner was my one true meal each day, but there wasn't much to it. I ate a grilled or sautéed chicken breast and some sautéed vegetables along with a thimble of rice. After dinner, I'd do another two hours on the bike, hit the sack, wake up and do it all over again, knowing the odds were stacked sky-high against me. What I was trying to achieve is like a D student applying to Harvard, or walking into a casino and putting every single dollar you own on a number in roulette and acting as if winning is a foregone conclusion. I was betting everything I had on myself with no guarantees. I weighed myself twice daily, and within two weeks I dropped 25 pounds. My progress only improved as I kept grinding, and the weight started peeling off. Ten days later I was at 250, light enough to begin doing push-ups, pull-ups, and to start running my ass off. I'd still wake up, hit the stationary bike, the pool, and the gym, but I also incorporated two, three, and four-mile runs. 
I ditched my running shoes and ordered a pair of Bates lights, the same boots SEAL candidates wear in buds, and started running in those. With so much effort, you'd think my nights would have been restful, but they were filled with anxiety. My stomach growled and my mind swirled. I dream of complex ASVAB questions and dread the next day's workouts. I was putting out so much on almost no fuel that depression became a natural side effect. My splintering marriage was veering toward divorce. Pam made it very clear that she and my stepdaughter would not be moving to San Diego with me, if by some miracle I could pull this off. They stayed in Brazil most of the time, and when I was all alone in Carmel, I was in turmoil. I felt both worthless and helpless as my endless stream of self-defeating thoughts picked up steam. When depression smothers you, it blots out all light and leaves you with nothing to cling onto for hope. All you see is negativity. For me, the only way to make it through that was to feed off my depression. I had to flip it and convince myself that all that self-doubt and anxiety was confirmation that I was no longer living an aimless life. My task may turn out to be impossible, but at least I was back on a motherfucking mission. Some nights when I was feeling low, I'd call Shaljo. He was always in the office early in the morning and late at night. I didn't confide in him about my depression because I didn't want him to doubt me. I used those calls to pump myself up. I told him how many pounds I dropped and how much work I was putting in, and he reminded me to keep studying for that ASVAB. Roger that. I had the Rocky soundtrack on cassette, and I'd listen to Going the Distance for inspiration. On long bike rides and runs, with those horns blasting in my brain, I'd imagine myself going through buds, diving into cold water, and crushing hell week. I was wishing, I was hoping, but by the time I was down to 250, my quest to qualify for the SEALs wasn't a daydream anymore. I had a real chance to accomplish something most people, including myself, thought was impossible. Still, there were bad days. One morning, not long after I dipped below 250, I weighed in, and I'd only lost a pound from the day before. I had so much weight to lose, I could not afford to plateau. That's all I thought about while running six miles and swimming two. I was exhausted and sore when I arrived in the gym for my typical three-hour circuit. After rocking over 100 pull-ups in a series of sets, I was back on the bar for a max set with no ceiling. Going in, my goal was to get to 12, but my hands were burning fire as I stretched my chin over the bar for the tenth time. For weeks, the temptation to pull back had been ever-present, and I always refused. That day, however, the pain was too much, and after my eleventh pull-up, I gave in, dropped down, and finished my workout, one pull-up shy. That one rep stayed with me, along with that one pound. I tried to get them out of my head, but they wouldn't leave me the fuck alone. They taunted me on the drive home and at my kitchen table while I ate a sliver of grilled chicken and a bland baked potato. I knew I wouldn't sleep that night unless I did something about it, so I grabbed my keys. You cut corners and you are not going to fucking make it, I said out loud as I drove back to the gym. There are no shortcuts for you, Goggins. I did my entire pull-up workout over again. One missed pull-up cost me an extra 250, and there would be similar episodes. Whenever I cut or run or swim short because I was hungry or tired, I'd always go back and beat myself down even harder. That was the only way I could manage the demons in my mind. Either way, there would be suffering. I had to choose between physical suffering in the moment and the mental anguish of wondering if that one missed pull-up that last lap in the pool, the quarter mile I skipped on the road or trail, would end up costing me an opportunity of a lifetime. It was an easy choice. When it came to the seals, I wasn't leaving anything up to chance. 
On the eve of the ASVAB, with four weeks to go before training, making weight was no longer a worry. I was already down to 215 pounds and was faster and stronger than I'd ever been. I was running six miles a day, bicycling over 20 miles, and swimming more than two, all of it in the dead of winter. My favorite run was the six-mile Monon Trail, an asphalt bike and walking path that laced through the trees in Indianapolis. It was the domain of cyclists and soccer moms with jogging strollers, weekend warriors and seniors. By then, Shaljo had passed along the Navy SEAL warning order. It included all the workouts I would be expected to complete during the first phase of BUDS, and I was happy to double them. I knew that 190 men usually class up for a typical SEAL training, and only about 40 people make it all the way through. I didn't want to be just one of those 40. I wanted to be the best. But I had to pass the damn ASVAB first. I'd been cramming every spare second. If I wasn't working out, I was at my kitchen table, memorizing formulas and cycling through hundreds of vocabulary words. With my physical training going well, all my anxieties stuck to the ASVAB like paper clips to a magnet. This would be my last chance to take the test before my eligibility for the SEALs expired. I wasn't very smart, and based on past academic performance, there was no good reason to believe I'd pass with a score high enough to qualify for the SEALs. If I failed, my dream would die, and I'd be floating without purpose once again. The test was held in a small classroom on Fort Benjamin Harrison in Indianapolis. There were about 30 people there, all of us young. Most were just out of high school. We were each assigned an old-school desktop computer. In the past month, the test had been digitized, and I wasn't experienced with computers. I didn't even think I could work the damn machine, let alone answer the questions. But the program proved idiot-proof, and I settled in. The ASVAB has ten sections, and I was breezing through until I reached mechanical comprehension, my truth serum. Within the hour, I would have a decent idea if I'd been lying to myself, or if I had the raw stuff necessary to become a SEAL. Whenever a question stumped me, I marked my worksheet with a dash. There were about 30 questions in that section, and by the time I completed the test, I'd guessed at least 10 times. I needed some of them to go my way, or I was out. After completing the final section, I was prompted to send the entire bundle to the administrator's computer at the front of the room, where the score would be tabulated instantly. I peeked over my monitor and saw him sitting there, waiting. I pointed, clicked, and left the room. Buzzing with nervous energy, I paced the parking lot for a few minutes before finally ducking into my Honda Accord, but I didn't start the engine. I couldn't leave. I sat in the front seat for 15 minutes with a thousand-yard stare. It would be at least two days before Shaljo would call with my results, but the answer to the riddle that was my future was already solved. I knew exactly where it was, and I had to know the truth. I gathered myself, walked back in, and approached the fortune teller. You gotta tell me what I got on this fucking test, man, I said. He peered up at me, surprised, but he didn't buckle. I'm sorry, son. This is the government. There's a system for how they do things, he said. I didn't make the rules, and I can't bend them. Sir, you have no idea what this test means to me, to my life. It's everything. He looked into my glassy eyes for what felt like five minutes, then turned toward his machine. I'm breaking every rule in the book right now, he said. Goggins, right? I nodded and came around behind his seat as he scrolled through files. There you are. Congratulations. You scored 65. That's a great score. He was referencing my overall, but I didn't care about that. Everything hinged on my getting a 50 spot where it counted most. What did I get on mechanical comprehension? He shrugged, clicked, and scrolled, and there it was. 
My new favorite number glowed on his screen. Fifty. Yes, I shouted. Yes, yes. There were still a handful of others taking the test, but this was the happiest moment in my life and I couldn't stifle it. I kept screaming, yes, at the top of my lungs. The administrator damn near fell out of his chair and everyone in that room stared at me like I was crazy. If they only knew how crazed I'd been. For two months, I dedicated my entire existence toward this one moment and I was damn well gonna enjoy it. I rushed to my car and screamed some more. Fuck yeah! On my drive home, I called my mom. She was the one person, aside from Shaljo, who witnessed my metamorphosis. I fucking did it, I told her, tears in my eyes. I fucking did it! I'm going to be a SEAL! When Shaljo came to work the next day, he got the news and called me up. He'd sent in my recruitment package and had just heard back that I was in. I could tell he was happy for me and proud that what he saw in me the first time we met turned out to be real. But it wasn't all happy days. My wife had given me an implied ultimatum, and now I had a decision to make. Abandon the opportunity I'd worked so hard for and stay married, or get divorced and go try and become a SEAL. In the end, my choice didn't have anything to do with my feelings for Pam or her father. He'd apologized to me, by the way. It was about who I was and who I wanted to be. I was a prisoner in my own mind, and this opportunity was my only chance to break free. I celebrated my victory the way any SEAL candidate should. I put the fuck out. The following morning, and for the next three weeks, I spent time in the pool, strapped with a 16-pound weight belt. I swam underwater for 50 meters at a time, and walked the length of the pool underwater with a brick in each hand, all in a single breath. The water would not own my ass this time. When I was done, I'd swim a mile or two, then head to a pond near my mother's home. Remember, this was Indiana, the American Midwest, in December. The trees were naked, icicles hung like crystals from the eaves of houses, and snow blanketed the earth in all directions. But the pond wasn't completely frozen yet. I waded into the icy water, dressed in camo pants, a brown, short-sleeved t-shirt, and boots, laid back and looked into the gray sky. The hypothermic water washed over me, the pain was excruciating, and I fucking loved it. After a few minutes, I got out and started running, water sloshing in my boots, sand in my underwear. Within seconds, my t-shirt was frozen to my chest, my pants iced at the cuffs. I hit the Monon Trail. Steam poured from my nose and mouth as I grunted and slalomed speedwalkers and joggers. Civilians. Their heads turned as I picked up speed and began sprinting like Rocky in downtown Philly. I ran as fast as I could, for as long as I could, from a past that no longer defined me toward a future undetermined. All I knew was that there would be pain, and there would be purpose, and that I was ready. That was an impossible task. <laughs> you know what, man? When I, when I hear you read that, um, still to this day, it makes me very emotional. And like that scene with uh, me taking the ASVAB test and me walking back out to the car and me walking around and then me getting in my car, then me coming back in and literally begging the guy. I mean, I was literally almost crying because my whole life was just sitting on that 50. Mm. And so what, what people never, you know, we, we did a good job of, of making that scene as powerful as it is. But, um, you know this this whole book of mine it went to auction as as you know adam and 
that scene that you just read, this this, this chapter that, that you just read, this is one of the main reasons why, you know, I got offered $300,000 for my book. Mm. And that chapter that you just read is a major reason why I couldn't sell my life to anybody. Hmm. Um, going back through, listening to you, you know, just pretty much read my life story in that in that section, and there's so much more things to come. It 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 made me realize why I this is the only trophy, this is the only trophy that I would truly, you know, have in my life. And that chapter is where this really started for me. I started really figuring out what what life was all about. You know, I didn't figure it out completely. But, you know, you you talking that, you know, you know, you reading that story, it lets me know why there wasn't any amount of money that I was going to take for the shit I put myself through to be where I'm at today. It's it's very interesting. I, I want to go on record as saying I encourage you to take that book deal, which is the wrong decision. <laughs> <laughs> right. as, we'll, as we'll soon know, it's the it would have been the wrong decision. So right. <laughs> never listen, <laughs> never listen to me about business. Um, but I will say that um, I could understand it because it seems to me that you are in a not just a physical bunker mentality, but a, a mo- mental and emotional bunker mentality. Yeah, your mom could penetrate the bunker a little bit. But really, you had to be in your own bunker. Right. And that's a very lonely and isolating place to be. I mean, you know, going through this journey with you and hearing what you had to go through, you know, my heart goes out to you because you had basically put it all on this. Now, you know, you might have come out of this if you failed. We don't know what would have happened. Would all of that hard work dissipated? Would you have just become, would you have had to go back and get some wage job? Would you have never achieved anything? We don't really know. But in your mind at that moment, you you couldn't afford that like there was you know there you didn't have the 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 slack to to give yourself right. you know you you had to go forward you had to do this or the odds were you were going to be the statistic that you were always supposed to be and that was the hard part about this was i i couldn't give myself even a just like a little break yeah and there was sometimes i would literally look at my running shoes for 30 to 40 minutes because when you're that big I mean, I was so broken every single day, you know. Yeah. I would literally look at all these, okay, now I I would get done running six miles and know I had, you know, two hours on the bike and then there are two hours at nighttime and I had to go swim two more miles and I had three hours in the gym. And just knowing that there was every single fucking day you were going to have to relive this hell. And there were some days I couldn't even get out of bed. I was so sore. And then to know that I had to get out of bed and literally like for the first hour and a half, you know, my body just didn't want to move and to, and, and to force and, and, it, it. Is it hard to also study and kind of do the do the hard intellectual work while you're sore like that? That must be really hard, right? I mean, it's not a break. Well, that's what sucked for me also was I was literally on the so I had to earn. I never sat down. I had to always earn my right to watch TV. So how I did that was I got a stationary bike, put it in my house, an old cheap Walmart stationary bike, and I would be there. And I had a, um, I kind of propped up some, um, you know, those like little eating tables. Mm. And I put my books on there and I was just studying. And I was study all, I was so obsessed. And that's one thing I talk about when I tell people about motivation. I, I always say motivation is crap. And people go, you know, how do you say that? All it is, you know, it's just a little bit of kindling. 
That's all it is. You know, you have to be like, 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 like for instance, some people are going to read this book and be so fucking motivated and they're going to have a bad day. Mm. And on that bad day, their motivation is going to be fucking gone. It's going to be gone. So I realized about, you know, that about the human mind that I had to be more than motivated. I had to be more than driven. I had to become literally obsessed to the point where people thought I was fucking nuts. You know, like like the colder it was, the better it was. The more I suffered, the more I, I, I had to just literally take all of this stuff and wrap it up and just be like, okay, fuck it. This is what's going to happen now. And I had to start really just callousing my mind. It's You know, I, I guess reading these chapters that we read today, and for the listeners, we're being super transparent. We're recording this over a period of five days. And these first three chapters are done in the first first session. And um, you know what I think is so interesting about this book and your life? It's the way you crack stereotypes. And I'm not talking about ethnic stereotypes. I'm talking about, you know, Sister Catherine, how you don't, you're never going to judge a smile or a scowl. Right. You know, it's the same idea when I hear this. It's like, we don't know what the people that we interact with in our hometowns and the cities that we live in, what they're going through. And, you know, I could picture you um, in bunker mentality, not giving anybody any smiles, being all business and people taking that personally, when in reality, you're trying to do something really important for yourself. And it's all about your own journey. And you didn't have any hate towards anybody else. Right. And, and, and that's, and there's people out there all the time going through what they're going through. And it, you just can't judge it. And it's very interesting. That's what I love about what you do, uh, because I think that you you kind of recalibrate um, what we expect from people right. and what and how to and how to appreciate people. And see, even now, you know, you guys have heard my story, at least a fraction of it about how I got called nigger. And, you know, I I I hate no one. I just like some people just because of some issues that we have. You know, when, when you are constantly judged your whole life, when you are, as we call it in the book, the only your whole life, how the fuck am I now going to walk around in my, you know, in this world I live in and judge anybody? Mm. Because I know how it feels to be judged. And what's so stupid is so many people who have been judged, they now judge other people. <laughs> we forget how it feels to be the only person, how it feels to be judged. I don't forget it. I remember, so I'm all about people being whoever the hell they are, be it, own it, wear it like a fucking badge of honor. Love it. And so the next challenge is, you're, it's kind of the first step on the journey towards callousing your mind. That's how we start the next challenge. And that's what this was, right? This is where you really started to callous your mind, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah, for sure. This is when I started literally trying to callous over that, that whole victim's mentality. Challenge three. The first step on the journey toward a calloused mind is stepping outside your comfort zone on a regular basis. Dig out your journal again and write down all the things you don't like to do or that make you uncomfortable, especially those things you know are good for you. Now go do one of them and do it again. In the coming pages, I'll be asking you to mirror what you just read to some degree, but there is no need for you to find your own impossible task and achieve it on the fast track. This is not about changing your life instantly. It's about moving the needle bit by bit and making those changes sustainable. That means digging down to the micro level and doing something that sucks every day. Even if it's as simple as making your bed, doing the dishes, ironing your clothes, or getting up before dawn and running two miles each day. 
Once that becomes comfortable, take it to five, then 10 miles. If you already do all those things, find something you aren't doing. We all have areas in our lives we either ignore or can improve upon. Find yours. We often choose to focus on our strengths rather than our weaknesses. Use this time to make your weaknesses your strengths. Doing things, even small things, that make you uncomfortable will help make you strong. The more often you get uncomfortable, the stronger you'll become, and soon you'll develop a more productive, can-do dialogue with yourself in stressful situations. Take a photo or video of yourself in the discomfort zone. Post it on social media describing what you're doing and why, and don't forget to include the hashtags. Hashtag discomfort zone. Hashtag path of most resistance. Hashtag can't hurt me. Hashtag impossible task. So this one, you're, you're not giving them a specific thing. You're asking them to look inside and figure out what they don't like to do. This is about really getting out of your comfort zone because that's what you had to do when you were kind of in your own fugue state with, with no purpose. Right. You know, one question I get all the time is, man, how did you become so damn mentally strong? How did you do this? I think everybody knows the answer. Everybody knows the answer, but they would love for me to give you a nice, simple, hey, it really is easy. That's what they want to hear. But the truth of the matter is this, man. Honestly, the only way you are ever going to become hard and learn to callous your mind is you have to do the things that you do not want to do. There's, there's no way around it. Like a lot of people, if you like running, they, they will run. They'll just keep on running. I'm not saying don't do things you don't enjoy. But I'm saying that if you're looking for the advantage, if you're trying to get the advantage, you have to do those things that kind of make you say, oh, man, I really don't want to do this shit right now. Hmm. I, 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 that, that's going to really challenge me mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Those are the things you have to start gravitating to. Like a lot of people say triple down on your strengths. Yeah, that's good for some things. But if you want to fucking really get hard and become that hard in person and get true mental toughness, you have to triple down on your weaknesses. And that's the only way you can start to callous that mind and start callousing over all of that. You know, you, you, you have to learn to callous over that victim's mentality. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that when people say triple down on your strengths, they're, they're basically implying pick a lane, do that, become an expert in one thing. But you're not talking to people about what you went through to make them, make them an expert in anything. Your whole thing about callousing the mind, becoming better, is to make them a more unbreakable human being. And that's emotionally and physically and mentally. And I think that that's a very different thing. And don't you think that's your purpose? I mean, you're not trying to get someone to become the best this or that. No. I mean, that's, that's, that's shallow, really, if you think about it's it. It's 100% shallow. And once again, you know, you're listening to my story right now. This isn't about me. This isn't about me. This is about me challenging you to look inward and to start, you know, developing that, that hero inside of you. And these are all steps for you to, you know, not even steps. These are things for you to take on board in your life and think about, you know what? I could be doing more. I am afraid of this. I don't want to do that. You know, so just look at yourself and start challenging yourself even more. 
You know, you saying that makes me think of something else is that we've talked about this before. And that is, you know, all of this thing, this great task that you just accomplished in this chapter, that didn't, that didn't give you anything really other than another opportunity to fail. You know what? That's a hundred percent correct, man. Like, you know, losing. So it wasn't like Steven Saljo came, you know, miracled me and said, Hey man, I'm going to, if you lose 106 pounds and you pass the ASVAB, I'm going to miracle uh, Navy SEAL Trident on your chest. No. You know, this was all a chance. And that's the, and that's the thing about life is a lot of us are not, if, if we're not guaranteed something, we don't want to take that chance. We're looking at it like right now I could easily sat back and said, oh, my God, losing 106 pounds. There's not even, a, you know, I may not even graduate buds or, you know, retake the ASVAB test. I may not even graduate buds. If that is your mindset and that is your thinking, you have already lost. You have already lost. All this is, is I was, you have to put yourself in a position to win. Some of us don't even want to put ourselves in a position to win. So I knew losing 106 pounds, taking the ASVAB test again, was just me putting myself in a position to succeed. But most of us don't have the courage to put ourselves in a position to win. Why? Because failing is almost too much to handle. So why even try? Why even try? Because if I never tried, I can never fail. So that's the mindset of a lot of people. But, you know, in this case, it's it's uh, it's not just a small risk. First of all, you're you're wa- you're preparing to walk away from your marriage. Right. And the, the success rate for a seal and buds is 20 percent. Exactly. And so you do all this, you put all this out and now you have a 20 percent chance of taking the next step. I mean, it, it, you still had a lot on the line and a lot and a lot ahead of you. But you know what the beauty of that is, Adam? is I had so much on the line and so much ahead of me, but what was happening, what was happening when I was losing that weight and I was passing the ASVAB and I was going through all these daily struggles, I started finding a whole new David Goggins. Mm. That was the power of all this. My confidence started growing. So if you can lose 106 pounds in three months, what the fuck else can I do? If I can go back and retake the ASVAB and fail and fail and fail and continue to, you know, strive for excellence and failure, all that was doing for me was making me more and more psyched up to be better. So I was just constantly fueling the machine. So even though it wasn't guaranteed I was going to get through SEAL training, my chances were looking pretty fucking good. So uh, before we get into some stuff from Buds, which I'm really excited to share with the readers, I know you are, um, let's just recap that. Because what you're talking about here is mindset. Isn't that right? Exactly. It's all about mindset. And throughout this whole book, you're going to realize that it's going to always come back to one thing, mindset. And it's your mindset. It's how you speak to yourself. It's, and it's also where you want to be at. So that means constantly monitoring what you're thinking and, and so that you're controlling it. You know, I always think about don't believe everything you feel 
because sometimes you might feel a certain way about some person or about some situation. But that first feeling isn't necessarily going to get you anything. It's not going to be a solution. It's usually something to ignore, wouldn't you say? Oh, 100%. Um, life is all about feelings. And a lot of times we create this reality. And it's a false reality. And we live in this false reality. And it starts to control our lives. And it takes a really strong person. It has to come from you. You have to create. It's not creating at all. You have to go to the real reality. Sometimes it's not as bad as you've made it out to be. And, you know, it all comes when, you know, for instance, like, basically life is relentless. It just keeps coming at you, man. So you got to be, you know, be prepared for it. You know, I was reading yesterday, uh, Nelson Mandela on his way out of prison. You know, he was wrongfully imprisoned for uh, 20 years or more. I forget exactly the number of decades uh, by white supremacists in South Africa. And on his way out, he knew, he, he's written about this, he knew he had to leave the bitterness behind him or he'd never be free. Exactly. And that's mindset, isn't it? It's 100% mindset. Like, for instance, life is going to constantly come at you. So we have to control the the things we can control. Like, for instance, this morning, I woke up this morning, and we got out of here pretty late yesterday. And I went home, got back to the room about, you know, midnight, and did my two-hour stretching. And I woke up at about 6 o'clock this morning and went for a seven-mile run. Hmm. I do all these things, not because I, I enjoy them, because I know once I leave my house... A lot of things are out of my control. So I am trying to like win these small battles, win these, you know, try to just have these small victories that I can take with me outside. So once I leave my house, if I've gotten up in the morning and I've, you know, done my routine as, as far as like going for a run, doing my push-ups, doing my pull-ups, I am basically trying to prepare my mind for the challenges that are going to come my way that I cannot control. So you always have to always constantly start to uh, kind of get your mind ready for what's to come. Perfect. And I think that's the perfect transition into Taking Souls, the next chapter. Um, just so you guys are clued in, this is day two here in the recording studio. Uh, it's a beautiful day outside and we are in separate dark cubicles <laughs> wired together <laughs> yes man i am back in the box we're in the box we're in the box man nothing in life is gonna you know it's not gonna be ideal mm. we are always looking for an ideal situation everything has to be perfect for us to succeed that is not what it's about we have to be super we have to be great in a situation that is not always perfect and if there's one thing about Hell Week is it wasn't perfect, was it? No, it was never perfect, but you had to find something more. That's what Taking Souls is all about. You had to find strength when there was no strength around. You had to, so sometimes you had to invent strength. Mm. Chapter 4, Taking Souls. The first concussion grenade exploded at close range, and from there everything unraveled in slow motion. One minute we were chilling in the common room, bullshitting, watching war movies, getting pumped up for the battle we knew was coming. Then that first explosion led to another, and suddenly Psycho Pete was in our faces, screaming at the top of his lungs. 
his cheeks flushed candy apple red, that vein in his right temple throbbing. When he screamed, his eyes bugged out and his whole body shook. Break the fuck out. Move, move, move. My boat crew sprinted for the door single file, just like we'd planned. Outside, Navy SEALs were firing their M60s into the darkness towards some invisible enemy. It was the bad dream we'd been waiting for our entire lives, the lucid nightmare that would define or kill us. Every impulse we had told us to hit the dirt, but at that moment, movement was our only option. The repetitive, deep bass thud of machine gun fire penetrated our guts. The orange halo from another explosion in the near distance provided a shock of violent beauty, and our hearts hammered as we gathered on the grinder, awaiting orders. This was war, all right, but it wouldn't be fought on some foreign shore. This one, like most battles we fight in life, would be won or lost in our own minds. Psycho Pete stomped the pocked asphalt, his brow slick with sweat, the muzzle of his rifle steaming in the foggy night. Welcome to Hell Week, gentlemen, he said, calmly this time, in that sing-song, Cali Surfer drawl of his. He looked us up and down like a predator eyeing his kill. It will be my great pleasure to watch you suffer. Oh, and there would be suffering. Psycho set the tempo, called out the push-ups, sit-ups, and flutter kicks, the jumping lunges and dive bombers. In between, he and his fellow instructors hosed us down with freezing water, cackling the whole damn time. There were countless reps and set after set, with no end in sight. My classmates were gathered close, each of us on our own stenciled frog footprints, overlooked by a statue of our patron saint, the Frogman, a scaly alien creature from the deep with webbed feet and hands, sharp claws, and a motherfucking six-pack. To his left was the infamous Brass Bell. Ever since that morning when I came home from cockroach duty and got sucked into the Navy SEAL show, it was this place that I'd sought, the Grinder a slab of asphalt dripping with history and misery. Bud's training is six months long and divided into three phases. First phase is all about physical training, or PT. Second phase is dive training, where we learn how to navigate underwater and deploy stealthy, closed-circuit diving systems that emit no bubbles and recycle our carbon dioxide into breathable air. Third phase is land warfare training, but when most people picture buds, they think of first phase, because those are the weeks that tenderize new recruits, until the class is literally ground down from about 120 guys to the hard, gleaming spine that are the 25 to 40 guys who are more worthy of the trident, the emblem that tells the world we are not to be fucked with. Buds instructors do that by working guys out beyond their perceived limits, by challenging their manhood and insisting on objective physical standards of strength, stamina, and agility. Standards that are tested. In those first three weeks of training, we had to, among other things, climb a vertical 10-meter rope, hammer a half-mile-long obstacle course studded with American Ninja Warrior-type challenges in under 10 minutes, and run four miles on the sand in under 32 minutes. But if you ask me, all that was child's play. It couldn't even compare to the crucible of first phase. Hell Week is something entirely different. It's medieval, and it comes at you fast, detonating in just the third week of training. 
When the throbbing ache in our muscles and joints was ratcheted up high, and we lived day and night with an edgy, hyperventilating feeling of our breath getting out front of our physical rhythm, of our lungs inflating and deflating, like canvas bags squeezed tight in a demon's fists, for 130 hours straight. That's a test that goes way beyond the physical and reveals your heart and character. More than anything, it reveals your mindset, which is exactly what it's designed to do. All of this happened at the Naval Special Warfare Command Center on Prisias Coronado Island, a Southern California tourist trap that tucks into slender Point Loma and shelters the San Diego Marina from the open Pacific Ocean. But even Cali's golden sun couldn't pretty up the grinder, and thank God for that. I liked it ugly. That slab of agony was everything I'd ever wanted. Not because I loved to suffer, but because I needed to know whether or not I had what it took to belong. Thing is, most people don't. By the time Hell Week started, at least 40 guys had already quit, and when they did, they were forced to walk over to the bell, ring it three times, and place their helmet on the concrete. The ringing of the bell was first brought in during the Vietnam era, because so many guys were quitting during evolutions and just walking off to the barracks. The bell was a way to keep track of guys, but since then it's become a ritual that a man has to perform to own the fact that he's quitting. To the quitter, the bell is closure. To me, every clang sounded like progress. I never liked Psycho much, but I couldn't quibble with the specifics of his job. He and his fellow instructors were there to cull the herd. Plus, he wasn't going after the runts. He was in my face plenty, and guys bigger than me too. Even the smaller dudes were studs. I was one man in a fleet of alpha specimens from back east and down south, the blue-collar and big-money surf beaches of California, a few from corn country like me, and plenty from the Texas rangeland. Every Bud's class has their share of hard-ass backcountry Texans. No state puts more seals in the pipeline. Must be something in the barbecue, but Psycho didn't play favorites. No matter where we were from or who we were, he lingered like a shadow we couldn't shake, laughing, screaming, or quietly taunting us to our face, attempting to burrow into the brain of any man he tried to break. Despite all that, the first hour of Hell Week was actually fun. During breakout, that mad rush of explosions, shooting, and shouting, you are not even thinking about the nightmare to come. You're riding an adrenaline high because you know you're fulfilling a rite of passage within a hallowed warrior tradition. Guys are looking around the grinder, practically giddy, thinking, yeah, we're in Hell Week, motherfuckers. Ah, but reality has a way of kicking everyone in the teeth sooner or later. You call this putting out? Psycho Pete asked no one in particular. This may be the single sorriest class we ever put through our program. You men are straight up embarrassing yourselves. He relished this part of the job, stepping over and between us, his boot print in our pooling sweat and saliva, snot, tears, and blood. He thought he was hard. All the instructors did. And they were, because they were SEALs. That fact alone placed them in rare air. You boys couldn't have held my jock when I went through Hell Week. I'll tell you that much. I smiled to myself and kept hammering as Psycho brushed by. He was built like a tailback, quick and strong. But was he a mortal fucking weapon during his hell week? Sir, I doubt that very fucking much, sir. He caught the eye of his boss, the first phase officer in charge. There was no doubt about him. He didn't talk a whole lot and didn't have to. He was six foot one, but he cast a longer shadow. Dude was jacked, too. I'm talking about 225 pounds of muscle, wrapped tight as steel, without an ounce of sympathy. He looked like a silverback gorilla. 
and loomed like a godfather of pain, making silent calculations, taking mental notes. Sir, my dick's getting stiff just thinking about these gaping vaginas, weeping and quitting like whiny little bitches this week, Psycho said. SBG offered half a nod as Psycho stared through me. Oh, and you will quit, he said softly. I'll make sure of that. Psycho's threats were spookier when he delivered them in a relaxed tone like that. But there were plenty of times when his eyes went dark, his brow twisted, the blood rushed to his face, and he unleashed a scream that built from the tips of his toes to the crown of his bald head. An hour into Hell Week, he knelt down, pressed his face within an inch of my own while I finished another set of push-ups, and let loose. Hit the surf, you miserable fucking turds! We'd been in buds for nearly three weeks by then, and we'd raced up and over the 15-foot berm that divided the beach from the cinder block sprawl of offices, locker rooms, barracks, and classrooms that is the Bud's compound plenty of times. Usually to lie back in the shallows, fully dressed, then roll in the sand, until we were covered in sand from head to toe, before charging back to the grinder, dripping heavy with salt water and sand, which ramped up the degree of difficulty on the pull-up bar. That ritual was called getting wet and sandy, and they wanted sand in our ears, up our noses, and in every orifice of our body. But this time we were on the verge of something called surf torture, which is a special kind of beast. As instructed, we charged into the surf, screaming like senseis. Fully clothed, arms linked, we waded into the impact zone. The surf was angry that moonless night, nearly head high, and the waves were rolling thunder that barreled and foamed in sets of three and four. Cold water shriveled our balls and swiped the breath from our lungs as the waves thrashed us. This was early May, and in the spring, the ocean off Coronado ranges from 59 to 63 degrees. We bobbed up and down as one, a pearl strand of floating heads scanning the horizon for any hint of swell we prayed we'd see coming before it towed us under. The surfers in our crew detected doom first and called out the waves so we could duck dive just in time. After ten minutes or so, Psycho ordered us back to land. On the verge of hypothermia, we scrambled from the surf zone and stood at attention while being checked by the doctor for hypothermia. That cycle would continue to repeat itself. The sky was smeared orange and red. The temperature dropped sharply as night loomed close. Say goodbye to the sun, gents, SBG said. He made us wave at the setting sun, a symbolic acknowledgement of an inconvenient truth. We were about to freeze our natural asses off. After an hour, we fell back into our six-man boat crews and stood nut to butt, huddling tight to get warm, but it was futile. Bones were rattling up and down that beach. Guys were jackhammering and sniffling, a physical state revealing the quaking conditions of splintering minds, which were just now coming to grips with the reality that this shit had only just begun. Even on the hardest days of first phase, prior to Hell Week, when the sheer volume of rope climbs and push-ups, pull-ups and flutter kicks crushes your spirit, you can find a way out, because you know that no matter how much it sucks, you'll head home that night, meet friends for dinner, see a movie, maybe get some pussy, and sleep in your own bed. The point is, even on miserable days, you can fixate on an escape from hell that's real. Hell Week offers no such love, especially on day one, when an hour in they had us standing, linking arms, facing the Pacific Ocean, wading in and out of the surf for hours. In between, we were gifted soft sand sprints to warm up, Usually they had us carry our rigid inflatable boat or a log overhead. But the warmth, if it ever arrived, was always short-lived because every ten minutes they rotated us back into the water. The clock ticked slowly that first night as the cold seeped in, 
colonizing our marrow so thoroughly the runs stopped doing any good. There would be no more bombs, no more shooting, and very little yelling. Instead, an eerie quiet expanded and deadened our spirit. In the ocean, all any of us could hear were the waves going overhead, the seawater we accidentally swallowed roiling in our guts and our own teeth chattering. When you're that cold and stressed, the mind cannot comprehend the next 120 plus hours. Five and a half days without sleep cannot be broken up into small pieces. There is no way to systematically attack it, which is why every single person who has ever tried to become a SEAL has asked himself one simple question during their first dose of surf torture. Why am I here? Those innocuous words bubbled up in our spinning minds each time we got sucked under a monster wave at midnight, when we were already borderline hypothermic. Because nobody has to become a SEAL. We weren't fucking drafted. Becoming a SEAL is a choice. And what that single softball question revealed in the heat of battle is that each second we remained in training was also a choice, which made the entire notion of becoming a SEAL seem like masochism. It's voluntary torture, and that makes no sense at all to the rational mind, which is why those four words unravel so many men. The instructors know all of this, of course, which is why they stopped yelling early on. Instead, as the night wore on, Psycho Pete consoled us like a concerned older brother. He offered us hot soup, a warm shower, blankets, a ride back to the barracks. That was the bait he set for quitters to snap up, and he harvested helmets left and right. He was taking the souls of those who caved because they couldn't answer that simple question. I get it. When it's only Sunday and you know you're going to Friday, and you're already far colder than you've ever been, you're tempted to believe that you can't hack it, and that nobody can. Married guys were thinking, I could be at home cuddled up to my beautiful wife instead of shivering and suffering. Single guys were thinking, I could be on the hunt for pussy right now. It's tough to ignore that kind of glittering lure. But this was my second lap through the early stages of Buds. I'd tasted the evil of Hell Week as part of Class 230. I didn't make it, but I didn't quit. I was pulled out on a medical after contracting double pneumonia. I defied doctor's orders three times and tried to stay in the fight, but they eventually forced me to the barracks and rolled me back to day one, week one, of Class 231. I wasn't all the way healed up from that bout of pneumonia when my second buds class kicked off. My lungs were still filled with mucus, and each cough shook my chest and sounded like a rake was scraping the inside of my alveoli. Still, I liked my chances a lot better this time around, because I was prepared, and because I was in a boat crew thick with bad motherfuckers. Buds boat crews are sorted by height, because those are the guys who will help you carry your boat everywhere you go once Hell Week begins. Size alone didn't guarantee your teammates will be tough, however and our guys were a crew of square-peg misfits. There was me, the exterminator, who had to drop 100 pounds and take the ASVAB test twice just to get to SEAL training, only to be rolled back almost immediately. We also had the late Chris Kyle. You know him as the deadliest sniper in Navy history. He was so successful, the Hajis in Fallujah put an $80,000 bounty on his head, and he became a living legend among the Marines he protected as a member of SEAL Team 3. He won a silver star and four bronze stars for valor, left the military, and wrote a book, American Sniper, that became a hit movie starring Bradley fucking Cooper. But back then he was a simple Texas hayseed rodeo cowboy who barely said a damn word. Then there was Bill Brown, a.k.a. Freak Brown. Most people just called him Freak, and he hated it because he'd been treated like one his whole damn life. In many ways, he was the white version of David Goggins, he came up tough in the river towns of South Jersey. 
Older kids in the neighborhood bullied him because of his cleft palate or because he was slow in class, which is how that nickname stuck. He got into enough fights over it that he eventually landed in a youth detention center for a six-month stretch. By the time he was 19, he was living on his own in the hood, trying to make ends meet as a gas station attendant. It wasn't working. He had no coat and no car. He commuted everywhere on a rusted-out 10-speed bike, literally freezing his balls off. One day after work, he stopped into a Navy recruitment office because he knew he needed structure and purpose and some warm clothes. They told him about the SEALs, and he was intrigued, but he couldn't swim. Just like me, he taught himself, and after three attempts, he finally passed the SEAL swim test. Next thing he knew, Brown was in Buds, where that freak nickname followed him. He rocked PT and sailed through first phase, but he wasn't nearly as solid in the classroom. Navy SEAL dive training is as tough intellectually as it is physically, but he scraped by and got within two weeks of becoming a Buds graduate when in one of his final land warfare evolutions, he failed reassembling his weapon in a timed evolution known as Weapons Practical. Brown hit his targets but missed the time, and he flunked out of buds at the bitter end. But he didn't give up. No, sir, Freak Brown wasn't going anywhere. I'd heard stories about him before he washed up with me in Class 231. He had two chips on his shoulders, and I liked him immediately. He was hard as hell and exactly the kind of guy I signed up to go to war with. When we carried our boat from the grinder to the sand for the first time, I made sure we were the two men at the front where the boat is at its heaviest. Freak Brown, I shouted. We will be the pillars of boat crew too. He looked over and I glared back. Don't fucking call me that, Goggins, he said with a snarl. Well, don't you move out of position, son. You and me, up front, all fucking weak. Roger that, he said. I took the lead of boat crew two from the beginning and getting all six of us through Hell Week was my singular focus. Everyone fell in line because I'd already proven myself, and not just on the grinder. In the days before Hell Week began, I got it into my head that we needed to steal the Hell Week schedule from our instructors. I told our crew as much one night when we were hanging in the classroom, which doubled as our lounge. My words fell on deaf ears. A few guys laughed, but everyone else ignored me and went back to their shallow-ass conversations. I understood why. It made no sense. How are we supposed to get a copy of their shit? And even if we did, wouldn't the anticipation make it worse? And what if we got caught? Was the reward worth the risk? I believed it was, because I'd tasted Hell Week. Brown and a few other guys had too, and we knew how easy it was to think about quitting when confronted with levels of pain and exhaustion you didn't think possible. 130 hours of suffering may as well be a thousand when you know you can't sleep, and that there will be no relief anytime soon. And we knew something else, too. Hell Week was a mind game. The instructors used our suffering to pick and peel away our layers, not to find the fittest athletes, to find the strongest minds. That's something the quitters didn't understand until it was too late. Everything in life is a mind game. Whenever we get swept under by life's dramas, large and small, we are forgetting that no matter how bad the pain gets, no matter how harrowing the torture, all bad things end. That forgetting happens the second we give control over our emotions and actions to other people, which can easily happen when pain is peaking. During Hell Week, the men who quit felt like they were running on a treadmill turned way the fuck up, with no dashboard within reach. But whether they figured it out or not, that was an illusion they fell for. I went into Hell Week knowing I put myself there, that I wanted to be there, and that I had all the tools I needed to win this fucked up game which gave me the passion to persevere and claim ownership of the experience. It allowed me to play hard, 
bend rules, and look for an edge wherever and whenever I could until the horn sounded on Friday afternoon. To me, this was war, and the enemies were our instructors, who'd blatantly told us that they wanted to break us down and make us quit. Having their schedule in our heads would help us whittle the time down by memorizing what came next. And more than that, it would gift us a victory going in, which would give us something to latch onto during Hell Week when those motherfuckers were beating us down. Yo, man, I'm not playing, I said. We need that schedule. I could see Kenny Bigby, the only other black man in class 231, raise an eyebrow from across the room. He'd been in my first Buds class and got injured just before Hell Week. Now he was back for seconds, too. Oh, shit, he said. David Goggins is back on the log. Kenny smiled wide, and I doubled over, laughing. He'd been in the instructor's office, listening in when the doctors were trying to pull me out of my first Hell Week. It was during a log PT evolution. Our boat crews were carrying logs as a unit up and down the beach, soaked, salty, and sandy as shit. I was running with a log on my shoulders, vomiting blood. Bloody snot streamed from my nose and mouth, and the instructors periodically grabbed me and sat me down nearby because they thought I might drop fucking dead. But every time they turned around, I was back in the mix, back on that log. Kenny kept hearing the same refrain over the radio that night. We need to get Goggins out of there, one voice said. Roger that, sir. Goggins is sitting down. Another voice crackled. Then after a beat, Kenny would hear that radio chirp again. Oh shit, Goggins is back on the log. I repeat, Goggins is back on the log. Kenny loved telling that story. At five foot ten and 170 pounds, he was smaller than I was and wasn't on our boat crew, but I knew we could trust him. In fact, there was nobody better for the job. During class 231, Kenny was tapped to keep the instructor's office clean and tidy, which meant that he had access. That night, he tiptoed into enemy territory, liberated the schedule from a file, made a copy, and slipped it back into position before anyone ever knew it was missing. Just like that, we had our first victory, before the biggest mind game of our lives had even begun. Of course, knowing something is coming is only a small part of the battle, because torture is torture, and in Hell Week, the only way to get past it is to go through it. With a look or a few words, I made sure our guys were putting out at all times. When we stood on the beach holding our boat overhead or running logs up and down that motherfucker, we went hard. And during surf torture, I hummed the saddest and most epic song from Platoon while we waded into the Pacific Ocean. I hope the listeners and the readers have seen that movie. What a great movie. Oh, man, it was it was seriously one of the most epic movies of all time. And that is like the ultimate scene, right? Yes. Yes. So there were several scenes in this movie that I took along with me as fuel. And there was a time when um, Elias, so this, you know, Platoon's about Barnes and Elias. And there was a scene where... Barnes couldn't stand Elias, and he ends up shooting Elias. And the the platoon is taken off in the chopper, and you know Barnes told everybody that Elias was dead because he you know he he shot Elias, and Elias went down in the woods or in the jungle, and so he left him for dead. 
So they start taking off in these choppers and Charlie Sheen looks out of the chopper and sees Elias. You know, he's been all shot up from Barnes and, and the Viet Cong is chasing this guy through the jungle and they're just shooting him. And you see this guy who's just trying to get to the chopper and he's like, he's falling down and they keep on shooting him. He keeps on getting up and he's falling down. In the very last scene, you see um, William Defoe, who is Elias, he's on his knees and he raises his arms up in the air as the choppers are going overhead. And the Viet Cong kind of like shoot him in his back for his last times and he kind of falls down on the ground. It's an epic scene, man, but it's just um, that music from that sound, you know, from the actual movie, man, it was just epic. And, you know, it just helped me out so much. Yeah, but it helped you out not because of the drama, because it, it was kind of comedy. Like you were saying that you were doing that for your guys, right? Right. I was doing it for my guys, but but what it did, it went from comedy to almost that song would almost like put them in a trance. I would I would, I was like almost transforming their mind. So it went from being very funny to being almost like, uh, all right, it's time to get to work now. Hmm. And so it became a very powerful song for us, or at least for my boat crew. Yeah, for your boat crew, more than more than the other guys, right? Because you, you know everyone's stretched out in the ocean. It's really just your boat crew that can hear it. Right, right. It got pretty loud though. <laughs> <laughs> Did everyone join in? No, you know what they? I think that's when I started getting a um, a very unique reputation for the guy who uh, smiled when everything got so fucked up in Hell Week and at at its worst is when I found strength hmm. and I was able to dig down when I saw everybody's face kind of hanging down low and I saw it was extremely horrible. I would come up with uh, something epic like that song or something else. I've always found inspiration in film. Rocky helped motivate me to achieve my dream of being invited to SEAL training, but Platoon would help me and my crew find an edge during the dark nights of Hell Week when the instructors were mocking our pain, telling us how sorry we were, and sending us into the head-high surf over and over again. Adagio and Strings was the score to one of my favorite scenes in Platoon, and with bone-chilling fog wrapping all around us, I stretched my arms out like Elias when he was getting gunned down by the Viet Cong and sang my ass off. We'd all watch that movie together during first phase, and my antics had a dual effect of pissing off the instructors and firing up my crew. Finding moments of laughter in the pain and delirium turned the entire melodramatic experience upside down for us. It gave us some control of our emotions. Again, this was all a mind game, and I damn sure wasn't going to lose. But the most important games within the game were the races that the instructors set up between boat crews. Damn near everything in Buds was a competition. We'd run boats and logs up and down the beach. We had paddle races, and we even did the damn O-course carrying a log or a boat between obstacles. We'd carry them while balancing on narrow beams over spinning logs and across rope bridges. We'd send it high over the wall, and we dropped it at the foot of the 30-foot-high cargo net while we climbed up and over that damn thing. The winning team was almost always rewarded with rest, and the losing teams got extra beatdowns from Psycho Pete. They were ordered to perform sets of push-ups and sit-ups in the wet sand, then do berm sprints, their bodies quivering with exhaustion, which felt like failure on top of failure. Psycho let them know it, too. He laughed in their face as he hunted quitters. You are absolutely pathetic, he said. I hope to God you fucking quit, because if they allow you in the field, you're going to get us all killed. 
Watching him berate my classmates gave me a dual sensation. I didn't mind him doing his job, but he was a bully, and I never liked bullies. He'd been coming at me hard since I got back to Bud's, and early on I decided I would show him that he couldn't get to me. Between bouts of surf torture, when most guys stand nut to butt to transfer heat, body to body, I stood apart. Everyone else was shivering. I didn't even twitch, and I saw how much that bothered him. The one luxury we had during Hell Week was chow. We ate like kings. We're talking omelets, roast chicken and potatoes, steak, hot soup, pasta with meat sauce, all kinds of fruit, brownies, soda, coffee, and a lot more. The catch is we had to run the mile there and back with that 200-pound boat on our heads. I always left chow hall with a peanut butter sandwich tucked in my wet and sandy pocket to scarf on the beach when the instructors weren't looking. One day after lunch, Psycho decided to give us a bit more than a mile. It became obvious at the quarter-mile marker, when he picked up his pace, that he wasn't taking us directly back to the grinder. You boys better keep the fuck up, he yelled. As one boat crew fell back, I checked my guys. We are staying on this motherfucker. Fuck him. Roger that, said Freak Brown. True to his word, he'd been with me on the front of that boat, the two heaviest points, since Sunday night, and he was only getting stronger. Psycho stretched us out on the soft sand for more than four miles. He tried like hell to lose us, too, but we were his shadow. He switched up the cadence. One minute he was sprinting, then he was crouching down, wide-legged, grabbing his nuts and doing elephant walks. Then he loped at a jogger's pace before breaking into another wind sprint down the beach. By then, the closest boat was a quarter mile behind, but we were clipping his damn heels. We mimicked his every step and refused to let our bully gain any satisfaction at our expense. He may have smoked everybody else, but he did not smoke Boat Crew 2. Hell Week is the devil's opera, and it builds like a crescendo, peaking in torment on Wednesday and staying right there until they call it on Friday afternoon. By Wednesday, we were all broke dick, chafed to holy hell. Our whole body was one big raspberry, oozing pus and blood. Mentally, we were zombies. The instructors had us doing simple boat raises, and we were all dragging. Even my crew could barely lift that boat. Meanwhile, Psycho and SBG and the other instructors kept close watch, looking for weaknesses, as always. I had a real hate for the instructors. They were my enemy, and I was tired of them trying to burrow into my brain. I glanced at Brown, and for the first time all week, he looked shaky. The whole crew did. Shit, I felt miserable too. My knee was the size of a grapefruit, and every step I took torched my nerves, which is why I was searching for something to fuel me. I locked in on Psycho Pete. I was sick of that motherfucker. The instructors looked composed and comfortable. We were desperate, and they had what we needed. Energy. It was time to flip the game and own real estate in their heads. When they clocked out that night and drove home after a pussy-ass eight-hour shift while we were still going hard, I wanted them thinking about boat crew, too. I wanted to haunt them when they slipped into bed with their wives. I wanted to occupy so much space in their minds that they couldn't even get it up. To me, that would be as powerful as putting a knife in their dick. So I deployed a process that I now call taking souls. I turned to Brown. You know why I call you freak? I asked. He looked over as we lowered the boat then lifted it up overhead like creaky robots on reserve battery power. Because you are one of the baddest men I've ever seen in my damn life. He cracked a smile. And you know what I say to these motherfuckers right here? 
I tipped my elbow at the nine instructors gathered on the beach, drinking coffee and talking bullshit. I say, they can go fuck themselves. Bill nodded and narrowed his eyes on our tormentors, while I turned to the rest of the crew. Now let's throw this shit up high and show them who we are. Fucking beautiful, Bill said. Let's do it. Within seconds, my whole team had life. We didn't just lift the boat overhead and set it down hard. We threw it up, caught it overhead, tapped the sand with it, and threw it up high again. The results were immediate and undeniable. Our pain and exhaustion faded. Each rep made us stronger and faster. And each time we threw the boat up, we all chanted, You can't hurt boat crew too. That was our fuck you to the instructors. And we had their full attention as we soared on a second wind. On the toughest day of the hardest week in the world's toughest training, boat crew two was moving at lightning speed and making a mockery of hell week. The look on the instructors' faces told a story. Their mouths hung open like they were witnessing something nobody had ever seen before. Some averted their eyes, almost embarrassed. Only SBG looked satisfied. Since that night in Hell Week, I've deployed the Taking Souls concept countless times. Taking Souls is a ticket to finding your own reserve power and riding a second wind. It's the tool you can call upon to win any competition or overcome every life obstacle. You can utilize it to win a chess match or conquer an adversary in a game of office politics. It can help you rock a job interview or excel at school. And yes, it can be used to conquer all manner of physical challenges. But remember, this is a game you are playing within yourself. Unless you're engaged in physical competition, I'm not suggesting that you try to dominate someone or crush their spirit. In fact, they never even need to know you're playing this game. This is a tactic for you to be your best when duty calls. It's a mind game you're playing on yourself. Taking someone's soul means you've gained a tactical advantage. Life is all about looking for tactical advantages, which is why we stole the Hell Week schedule, why we nipped Psycho's heels on that run, and why I made a show of myself in the surf, humming the platoon theme song. Each of those incidents was an act of defiance that empowered us. But defiance isn't always the best way to take someone's soul. It all depends upon your terrain. During BUDS, the instructors didn't mind if you looked for advantages like that. They respected it, as long as you were also kicking ass. You must do your own homework. Know the terrain you're operating in, when and where you can push boundaries, and when you should fall in line. Next, take inventory of your mind and body on the eve of battle. List out your insecurities and weaknesses, as well as your opponents. For instance, if you're getting bullied, and you know where you fall short or feel insecure, you can stay ahead of any insults or barbs a bully may throw your way. You can laugh at yourself along with them, which disempowers them. If you take what they do or say less personally, they no longer hold any cards. Feelings are just feelings. On the other hand, people who are secure with themselves don't bully other people. They look out for other people. So if you're getting bullied, you know that you're dealing with someone who has problem areas you can exploit or soothe. Sometimes the best way to defeat a bully is to actually help them. If you can think two or three moves ahead, you will commandeer their thought process. And if you do that, you've taken their damn soul without them even realizing it. Our SEAL instructors were our bullies, and they didn't realize the games I was playing during that week to keep boat crew too sharp, and they didn't have to. I imagine that they were obsessed with our exploits during Hell Week, but I don't know that for sure. It was a ploy I used to maintain my mental edge and help our crew prevail. In the same way, if you are up against a competitor for a promotion and you know where you fall short, 
You can shape up your game ahead of your interview or evaluation. In that scenario, laughing at your weaknesses won't solve the problem. You must master them. In the meantime, if you are aware of your competitors' vulnerabilities, you can spin those to your advantage. But all of that takes research. Again, know the terrain, know yourself, and you'd better know your adversary in detail. Once you're in the heat of battle, it comes down to staying power. If it's a difficult physical challenge, you will probably have to defeat your own demons before you can take your opponent's soul. That means rehearsing answers to the simple question that is sure to rise up like a thought bubble. Why am I here? If you know that moment is coming and have your answer ready, you will be equipped to make the split-second decision to ignore your weakened mind and keep moving. Know why you're in the fight to stay in the fight. And never forget that all emotional and physical anguish is finite. It all ends eventually. Smile at pain and watch it fade for at least a second or two. If you can do that, you can string those seconds together and last longer than your opponent thinks you can, and that may be enough to catch a second wind. There is no scientific consensus on second wind. Some scientists think it's the result of endorphins flooding your nervous system. Others think it's a burst of oxygen that can help break down lactic acid, as well as glycogen and triglycerides muscles need to perform. Some say it's purely psychological. All I know is that by going hard when we felt defeated, we were able to ride a second wind through the worst night in Hell Week. And once you have that second wind behind you, it's easy to break your opponent down and snatch a soul. The hard part is getting to that point, because the ticket to victory often comes down to bringing your very best when you feel your worst. That's some knowledge right there. So, uh, you know, you want to walk us through that, that, that concept that you developed and, and how that all happened? Yes. So this was years and years in the making. And taking souls is probably one of the most medieval things I do, you know, with a, so my whole mind works very different than most people's. And so I came up with this by kind of realizing how weak my mind was. I, I hated people being better than me. This is why I got, you know, so insecure. I hated so many different things. So I started studying my own mind. And I realized that a lot of people need to realize that there are so many insecure people out there. And I knew from studying my mind that even these Navy SEALs, these instructors that had, you know, had already gone through Navy SEAL training were supposed to be the elite of the elite, badasses, whatever. I knew that they all have demons. Mm. They don't want alpha males, especially alpha males. They hate seeing anyone be better than them. And so what I realized going through Hell Week is I knew that these alpha males, these, these Navy SEAL instructors, they were all on the beach judging us. They were sitting there in their parkas, nice and warm, drinking their coffees, and they were judging all the students, saying, okay, yeah, when I was in Tuesday of Hell Week, I was, I was better than that fucking guy right there, and I was better than that guy on Wednesday and all this stuff. So I, you have to know the human mind and how it works. So I knew that all I have to do right now to crack these men is I have to just find a little more strength. And so when they're imagining themselves on Wednesday, you know, they're, they're imagining themselves being beat down, mm. being like, oh, my God, man, I can't wait till Friday. So I knew that. I knew where their mind was at, even though they were warm, they weren't wet. They were thinking about themselves at the time I was at. And I was like, you know what, how can I do this? I was like, well, all I have to do is own some real estate in their mind. I have to show them 
that at their worst time in their life, I am at my best time. Mm. And I knew that that would totally fuck them up. So I kind of got my guys together and we went crazy, as you know, as, as you just read. And what it did was they literally stopped fucking with Boat Crew too, Because hmm. they realized then, hey, there's no way in hell we can get to these guys. Because I literally took their soul. And I guarantee you, when they went home that night, there was no sex that night. Because <laughs> they were thinking about not getting some, but they were thinking about, man, how the fuck did that Boat Crew do what I could have never done? Well, yeah, I mean, it's something that probably no boat crew had ever done where you're actually, and it, it's it's really strategic. You, It's almost like an illusion. You guys were still suffering just like everybody else, but you found that much more to do something that they hadn't even conceived of themselves, and that's what was shocking, right? And that's the whole thing about it, Adam. All you have to do to take someone's soul, let's say you're running, and you're neck for neck with a guy or a girl, whatever it may be, you have to last one more second. Let's say you're doing a, a, a marathon and at the 18 mile point, this guy's waiting for you to break. Once you break that person and that person drips off you, you can literally slow down. Mm. That person's broke. Mm. You have taken, that, that whole mindset now is, is, is just broken. It's just lasting one more second longer than the person beside you. And then you broke them. Yeah, you're both feeling the same pain. It's exactly. not like you don't feel the pain. Right, the pain is there. It's that person that can last a little bit longer or find the tactical advantage when everybody around you is suffering to say, okay, man, if I can muster up just enough strength. But what happens is like that second win you're talking about, it's a lot more powerful the, you know, than the second win because it was almost like day one for us. It was Wednesday, and by us looking at it's it's called the look. I looked at everybody around us and they had this look of disbelief that how the fuck are they doing that? So you're riding all these different emotions from, you know, they're like, how the fuck is Bo Crew 2 doing it? And it's literally just jacking you up even more and more and more watching the, all the disbelief around you. Yeah, so you're feeling the pain, then you start doing this thing, still feeling the pain, and then all of a sudden you're riding the energy wave. Exactly, and it's, and it's truly an amazing thing. It's truly, and it, and it works in all kind of situations, not just physical. It can be anything. When you're doing something that most people think is impossible, and that is what it's all about. You're just kind of cracking, just cracking a code a little bit to where everybody can do, anybody can do it. But you're just going to the next level. You're kind of taking off all these perceived limitations. Like everybody, they tell you on Wednesday. They tell you on Wednesday, you start getting tired. They've been saying this for 70 years. On Wednesday of Hell Week, everybody gets tired. So what happens is that gets in your head. Mm. So you believe what another man told you, not how you feel. So you get to Wednesday and your mind says, oh, everybody said I'm tired, so I'm, I must be tired. I didn't believe shit. I wasn't taking in all this knowledge from previous classes. I was like, you know what? They're not me. Don't take in what someone else felt. Hmm. Feel what you feel. Make that be your reality. Don't let their reality be your reality. So that's all it is. Like, like we always say in the book, life is one big mind game, but usually... You're playing against yourself. Yeah, because, you know, scientists have looked at, like, the way our minds operate, and we're basically always 
you know, the the human mind is always trying to find the easier path. Basically, it's always trying to find the easier path. So the, that's why mindset is so important because you're basically continually having to push your mind towards the harder path, which ultimately gets you a lot more. And that's very true because the mind has so much information in it that the reason why it does that is not so much for weakness. It has so much information in it that it's trying to say, okay, this is too much information. Let's go this way. So that's all it's doing, man. You have to reprogram it to say, oh, no, no, no. We're not doing that today. So usually the mind has the advantage over you. You have to get, this is your mind. This is your mind. We forget that. We think that this mind is somebody else's. Yes. And it's just walking you through life aimlessly. No, no, no. It is your mind. You must get it and program it to do what you want it to do at that specific time. Beautiful. Um, you said that after that, they stopped fucking with Boat Crew too, but they didn't stop fucking with you. We're about to get into a scene here, <laughs> which is pretty medieval. You know what? And this is what happens also, man. When you, uh, when you kind of rub people the wrong way with having this kind of mindset, they're going to look at every, they're, they're going to look for any advantage they can or any kind of opportunity they can to break your spirit. Because why? You just broke their spirit. You broke their spirit by making them feel less of a person. Mm. That's what it was all about to me. Hell Week and Buds, it was a war. Those instructors were the enemy. I was not friends with them. I did not like them. I challenged them, and I went to war with them, and a lot of them didn't like me. But that's what I was looking for. After rocking boat presses, the whole class was gifted an hour of sleep in a big green army tent. They'd set up on the beach and outfitted with military cots. Those motherfuckers had no mattresses, but may as well have been a cotton-topped cloud of luxury, because once we were horizontal, we all went limp. Oh, but Psycho wasn't done with me. He let me sleep for a solitary minute, then woke me up and led me back onto the beach for some one-on-one -on -one time. He saw an opportunity to get in my head at last, and I was disoriented as I staggered toward the water all alone but the cold woke me the fuck up. I decided to savor my extra hour of private surf torture. When the water was chest high, I began humming adagio in strings once more. Louder this time. Loud enough for that motherfucker to hear me over the crash of the surf. That song gave me life. I'd come to SEAL training to see if I was hard enough to belong and found an inner beast within that I never knew existed. A beast that I would tap into from then on, whenever life went wrong. By the time I emerged from that ocean, I considered myself unbreakable. If only. Hell Week takes its toll on everybody. And later that night, with 48 hours to go, I went to MedCheck to get a Toradol shot in my knee to bring the swelling down. By the time I was back on the beach, the boat crews were out at sea in the midst of a paddling drill. The surf was pounding, the wind swirling, Psycho looked over at SBG. What the fuck are we going to do with him? For the first time, he was hesitant and tired of trying to beat me down. I was good to go, ready for any challenge, but Psycho was over it. He was ready to give my ass a spa vacation. That's when I knew I'd outlasted him, that I had his soul. SBG had other ideas. He handed me a life jacket and attached a chem light to the back of my hat. Follow me, he said as he charged up the beach. I cut up and we ran north for a good mile. 
By then, we could barely see the boats and their bobbing lights through the mist and over the waves. All right, Goggins, now go swim out and find your fucking boat. He'd landed a hollow point on my deepest insecurity, pierced my confidence, and I was stunned silent. I gave him a look that said, are you fucking kidding me? I was a decent swimmer by then, and surf torture didn't scare me because we weren't that far from shore. But an open water, hypothermic swim, a thousand yards offshore in a storm, to a boat that had no fucking idea I was heading their way, that sounded like a death sentence, and I hadn't prepared for anything like it. But sometimes the unexpected descends like chaos. And without warning, even the bravest among us must be ready to take on risks and tasks that seem beyond our capabilities. For me, in that moment, it came down to how I wanted to be remembered. I could have refused the order, and I wouldn't have gotten in trouble because I had no swim buddy. In SEAL training, you always have to be with a swim buddy. And it was obvious that he was asking me to do something that was extremely unsafe. But I also knew that my objective coming into SEAL training was more than making it through to the other side with a trident. For me, it was the opportunity to go up against the best of the best and distance myself from the pack. So even though I couldn't see the boats out past the thrashing waves, there was no time to dwell on fear. There was no choice to make at all. What are you waiting on, Goggins? Get your fucking ass out there and do not fuck this up. Roger that, I shouted and sprinted into the surf. Trouble was, strapped to the buoyancy vest, nursing a wounded knee, wearing boots, I couldn't swim for shit, and it was almost impossible to duck dive through the waves. I had to flail over the whitewash, and with my mind managing so many variables, the ocean seemed colder than ever. I swallowed water by the gallon. It was as if the sea was prying open my jaws and flooding my system, and with each gulp my fear magnified. I had no idea that back on land, SBG was preparing for a worst-case scenario rescue. I didn't know he'd never put another man in that position before. I didn't realize that he saw something special in me, and like any strong leader, wanted to see how far I could take it, as he watched my light bob on the surface, nervous as hell. He told me all of that during a recent conversation. At the time, I was just trying to survive. I finally made it through the surf and swam another half-mile offshore, only to realize I had six boats bearing down on my head, teeter-tottering in and out of view, thanks to a four-foot windswell. They didn't know I was there. My light was faint, and in the trench I couldn't see a damn thing. I kept waiting for one of them to come barreling down from the peak of a swell and mow me the fuck down. All I could do is bark into the darkness like a horse sea lion. Boat crew two! Boat crew two! It was a minor miracle that my guys heard me. They wheeled our boat around, and Freak Brown grabbed me with his big-ass hooks and hauled me in like a prized catch. I lay back in the middle of the boat, my eyes closed, and jackhammered for the first time all week. I was so cold I couldn't hide it. Damn, Goggins, Brown said. You must be insane. You okay? I nodded once and got a hold of myself. I was the leader of that crew and couldn't allow myself to show weakness. I tensed every muscle in my body, and my shiver slowed to a stop in real time. That's how you lead from the motherfucking front, I said, coughing up salt water like a wounded bird. I couldn't keep a straight face for long. Neither could my crew. They knew damn well that that crazy-ass swim wasn't my idea. Dude, I gotta stop right there. I mean, not everybody who reads this or hears this is gonna know how it is in the ocean. Right. But, like... The thing about the ocean, it does come down to variables, right? Like people who aren't familiar with getting out in open water, 
um, at first, like just the sheer water could could make them feel uncomfortable because it's a place you're not supposed to be. You know, it's not it's hostile to human life out there. It's beautiful, but it can be hostile to human human life. And then you're you're adding on the night. You're adding on a wind, a, you know, wind swell and a stormy kind of sea. You're adding on being fully dressed where right. you can't even move. You know, those variables. Each one of those is like exponential difficulty. Well, let's not forget also, Adam, that I haven't slept yet. Right. <laughs> That's a variable. You know, my my whole, I've been up since Sunday and it's now, you know, what, Wednesday night? I mean. And my whole boat crew has, you know, everybody has gotten at least one hour of sleep. Yeah. And I have been up the whole time, man, and I am fucked. Well, I mean, you know, you know who's going to like appreciate this the most is like the, the people who are in the ocean all the time. Like surfer, uh, surfers, even big wave surfers are going to read this and they're going to be like, holy fucking shit. <laughs> well, and people have no idea how hard it is to have that big ass life jacket. Yes. On, you know, and you're literally just bobbing. Yeah, because you can't move around. No, you can't move, man. Yeah. So I would like swim and get pushed back in. And so what's, what's not on here is how many times... I got, you know, literally pushed back on to the daggone beach. Yeah, because it takes a, cr a crazy amount of strength to actually, you're, you're actually now become a boat yourself. Right. So, like I was, a, yeah. so I was going up and down the beach trying to find the right break to just try to get out past them. And it was it was a brutal, brutal. Yeah, you, you had to ride the rip, right? You right. had to find a rip tide that could just pull you out. Exactly. It yeah. was it, it was horrible. As the clock ran down on Hell Week, we were in the demo pit, just off Coronado's famous Silver Strand. The pit was filled with cold mud and topped off with icy water. There was a rope bridge, two separate lines, one for the feet and one for the hands, stretching across it from end to end. One by one, each man had to navigate their way across while the instructors shook the shit out of it, trying to make us fall. To maintain that kind of balance takes tremendous core strength, and we were all cooked, and at our wit's end. Plus, my knee was still fucked. In fact, it had gotten worse and required a pain shot every 12 hours. But when my name was called, I climbed onto that rope, and when the instructors went to work, I flexed my core and held on with all I had left. Nine months earlier, I had topped out at 297 pounds and couldn't even run a quarter mile. Back then, when I was dreaming of a different life, I remember thinking that just getting through Hell Week would be the biggest honor of my life so far. Even if I never graduated from BUDS, surviving Hell Week alone would have meant something. But I didn't just survive. I was about to finish Hell Week at the top of my class. And for the first time, I knew I was a bad motherfucker. Once I was so focused on failing, I was afraid to even try. Now I would take on any challenge. All my life I was terrified of water, and especially cold water. But standing there in the final hour, I wished the ocean, wind, and mud were even colder. I was completely transformed physically, which was a big part of my success in Buds. But what saw me through Hell Week was my mind, and I was just starting to tap into its power. That's what I was thinking about as the instructors did their best to throw me off that rope bridge like a mechanical bull. I hung tough and got as far as anyone else in Class 231, before nature won out and I was sent spinning into the freezing mud. I wiped it from my eyes and mouth and laughed like mad as Freak Brown helped me up. Not long after that, SBG stepped to the edge of the pit. Hell Week secure, he shouted to the 30 guys still left, quivering in the shallows. All of us chafed and bleeding, bloated and stiff. You guys did an amazing job. 
Some guys scream with joy. Others collapse to their knees with tears in their eyes and thank God. I stared into the heavens too, pulled Freak Brown in for a hug, and high-fived my team. Every other boat crew had lost men, but not boat crew two. We lost no men and won every single race. We continued to celebrate as we boarded a bus to the grinder. Once we arrived, there was a large pizza for each guy, along with a 64-ounce bottle of Gatorade and the coveted brown T-shirt. That pizza tasted like motherfucking mana from heaven, but the shirts meant something more significant. When you first arrive at Bud's, you wear white T-shirts every day. Once you survive Hell Week, you get to swap them out for brown shirts. It was a symbol that we'd advanced to a higher level, and after a lifetime of mostly failure, I definitely felt like I was someplace new. I tried to enjoy the moment like everyone else, but my knee hadn't felt right in two days, and I decided to leave and see the medics. On my way off the grinder, I looked to my right and saw nearly a hundred helmets lined up. They belonged to the men who'd rung the bell, and they stretched past the statue, all the way to the quarterdeck. I read some of the names, guys who I liked. I knew how they felt, because I was there when my pararescue class graduated without me. That memory had dominated me for years but after 130 hours of hell, it no longer defined me. Every man was required to see the medics that evening, but our bodies were so swollen, they had a hard time discerning injuries from general soreness. All I knew was my right knee was thrice fucked, and I needed crutches to get around. Freak Brown left medcheck, bruised and battered. Kenny came out clean and barely limped, but he was plenty sore. Thankfully, our next evolution was walk week, we had seven days to eat, drink, and heal up before shit got real once again. It wasn't much, but enough time for most of the insane motherfuckers that managed to remain in Class 231 to get well. Me, on the other hand? My swollen knee hadn't gotten any better by the time they snatched my crutches away. But there was no time for boo-hooing. First phase fun wasn't over yet. After walk week came knot tying, which may not sound like much, but was way worse than I expected because that particular drill took place at the bottom of the pool, where those same instructors would do their best to drown my one-legged ass. It was as if the devil had been watching the whole show, waited out intermission, and now his favorite part was coming right up. The night before Buds kicked back up in intensity, I could hear his words ringing in my stressed-out brain as I tossed and turned all night long. They say you like suffering, Goggins, that you think you're a bad motherfucker. Enjoy your extended stay in hell. So, man, Goggins, I mean, that is crazy. So you get through Hell Week. Right. That's a milestone for anybody, um, and especially for you, where you'd come from and how, how hard you've been fighting. And you already know your, your body's fucked. <laughs> yeah, man, I knew for a fact that um, there's going to be, you know, a little bit more trained ahead of me. And I'm not talking about with my class. I had a feeling that something bad was going to happen to me. But, um, you know, my, my knee was so messed up that I went in and actually stole a whole bunch of mulch. And so you're supposed to go to the dock. So during med check, I think you have about maybe two or three med checks a day. I'm not quite for sure. I know you have one during the day, you know, during the morning, I think one in the afternoon maybe, and then one at night, or maybe it's one in the day, one at night, not for sure. But I actually went in and stored a whole bunch of Moltron. And by this time, it was my second hell week, so I knew kind of where I was going to be at, at, you know, different evolutions and whatnot. So I would 
you know, stage mulching in the sand. Hmm. So I was probably taking about 10 of these a day, and these are 800 milligrams. And the most you're supposed to take is three. You know, one for breakfast, one for lunch, and one for dinner. And I was popping them, man, like Tic Tacs. Hmm. And I was just trying to get through this thing because I knew that, you know, I was just, I was just trying to get through the whole program. Yeah, I mean, it's it's literally fighting each second is its own battle, right? Like each minute is its own battle. You're just staying one after another after another, stringing them together. A hundred percent. And I didn't want to. So I was like my my boat crew leader. Hmm. So the whole thing about being a leader is you just cannot show weakness. And the second you start limping around or things start getting tough, your mind is going to, once again, take control. And if I would have limped around and that pain would have got even more than what it was, you know, my whole boat crew would have fed off of me, you know, kind of dragging my leg behind me. And, you know, it's it's infectious. Yeah, you don't know who, who else would have might have crumbled. Exactly. Weakness is infectious. So my boat crew saw that my knee was the size of a grapefruit. Mm. And I was like, fuck it, let's go. So that was also infectious. Mm. So having that kind of mindset, I knew I had to bring that, not just for myself. And that's the whole other thing about being a leader is I realized the more you think about yourself when you're going through hell, the harder hell's going to be. The second you start looking after everybody else and start you know, being concerned about them, you no longer think about yourself. And when you don't think about yourself, you're not trapped in your own thoughts. You're not trapped in your own hell. And so that's what I did. And, and the more I thought about my boat crew and, and getting them through every evolution, us being the best, you know, I didn't worry about my fucking knee. But the second hell week was over, <laughs> that pain was real. Yeah. You're, you, got, you had a purpose bigger than yourself as the leader, which actually helped you achieve more. But then when it comes to, when it comes to the body, if you're injured, you're injured. Exactly. And, yeah, this is like what happened. Well, we'll get into that later, but first we have a challenge here that kind of, I, I, what I like about this challenge you've got here is you're kind of walking through, again, the practice of taking souls and, and, and showing how it can apply to different areas in life. Right, right. So I'll read through it and we can talk a little bit more about it. Roger that. Challenge four. Choose any competitive situation that you're in right now. Who is your opponent? Is it your teacher or coach, your boss, an unruly client? No matter how they're treating you, there is one way to not only earn their respect, but turn the tables. Excellence. That may mean acing an exam, or crafting an ideal proposal, or smashing a sales goal. Whatever it is, I want you to work harder on that project or in that class than you ever have before. Do everything exactly as they ask, and whatever standard they set as an ideal outcome, you should be aiming to surpass that. If your coach doesn't give you time in the games, dominate practice. Check the best guy on your squad and show the fuck out. That means putting time in off the field, watching film so you can study your opponent's tendencies, memorizing plays, and training in the gym. You need to make that coach pay attention. If it's your teacher, then start doing work of high quality. Spend extra time on your assignments. Write papers for her that she didn't even assign. Come early to class. Ask questions. Pay attention. Show her who you are and want to be. If it's a boss, work around the clock. Get to work before them. Leave after they go home. Make sure they see that shit. When it's time to deliver, 
surpass their maximum expectations. Whoever you're dealing with, your goal is to make them watch you achieve what they could never have done themselves. You want them thinking how amazing you are. Take their negativity and use it to dominate their task with everything you've got. Take their motherfucking soul. Afterward, post it on social and add the hashtag, hashtag can't hurt me, hashtag taking souls. You know, I love that because your goal here is to take it out of the physical. I mean, yes, if it's a team sport or something where a coach has control, it's really a power dynamic game you're playing. It is. And um, this takes me back to when, you know, we talked about me in high school and how much I loved basketball and how between, you know, my, my junior year, I got cut from the basketball team because, you know, I was just pissed off and I didn't want to go to daggone summer practice and stuff like that. And I still tried out. And when the first cuts came, I got cut first cuts, man, and that took my soul. But as my mind started changing and I started realizing what I was doing to myself, I started realizing, you know what, I have to dominate next year. So what I did was I came back the very next year and instead of shooting the ball all the time, because I knew the coach didn't like me. For whatever reason, the coach didn't like me at all. So I literally became one of the best defensive players in the state of Indiana. And I say that loud and proud because I went from a guy who shot the ball and was trying to become like, you know, everybody loves the guy that scores the points. I became the grittiest motherfucker on the daggone basketball court. So taking souls is also another way of don't let anybody get the advantage over you. You have to change your mindset, find where you can get the advantage and then dominate that area. You turn yourself into the kind of player every coach had to put on the floor exactly. because you, you changed the game in a way without having to need the ball. Exactly. I took the decision-making out of his hands. There's not one coach on the planet Earth that doesn't want a defensive stopper. Yeah. So that's what I knew, and that's what I became. Yeah, and it's great It's great for any young people reading this or people who have kids who are, who are not getting the time that they'd hoped to. Uh, gives them ways, you know, dominating practice is a great thing. Check their best player. And if you can if you can hold their best play, the best player on your team to nothing in a practice game, you're gonna play. Um, and that's yep, and that's exactly what happened, man. I was uh I was in practice, man, busting my ass and I just changed my whole mindset. I flipped it. But you know, the idea of power power dynamics is so important because, you know, in in Hell Week you're at, you're you're not in the power position the instructors are in life we always have people i mean it's very rare that you're not in a situation where there's some power dynamic that you have to deal with whether it's a client or a boss or a teacher they're always there and so you know it, it's how do you manage that relationship and what you're saying is manage it by being great uh, and your greatness will will melt all the problems that you have that is true, but one thing you have to be careful for, taking souls is a very powerful, powerful thing, and it can piss a lot of people off. So what you have to understand is you have to do it with humility. And that was some of the things I got caught up in where I was, uh, you know, there's a time and a place to where, you know, you, you know, you can't be so humble. And when I was going through SEAL training, it was mano y mano. So that was a place where I wanted them to feel pain. Because they were putting me through pain, but there's a lot of situations when you're using this, you know, when you're using this tactic, it is uh, you have to be careful because you can piss your boss off, you can piss people off. So do it with the understanding of you're trying to be your best. 
you are trying to be your very, very best in a, in a, you know, in a time when everybody else is kind of tired. And that pisses people off. For you being a so-called overachiever, it makes people look at you very differently. Yeah, so know that going in, but still do it. Oh, yes, 100% still do it, but know that going in for sure. Chapter 5, Armored Mind Your knee looks pretty bad, Goggins. No fucking shit, Doc. With two days to go and walk week, I'd come by medical for a follow-up. The doctor rolled up my camo pants, and when he gave my right kneecap a gentle squeeze, pain seized my brain, but I couldn't show it. I was playing a role. I was the beat-up but otherwise healthy bud student ready for the fight and I couldn't so much as grimace to pull it off. I already knew the knee was fucked, and that the odds of getting through another five months of training on one leg were low, but accepting another rollback meant enduring another hell week, and that was way too much to process. The swelling hasn't gone down much. How's it feel? The doctor was playing a role, too. SEAL candidates had a don't-ask-don't-tell agreement with most of the medical staff at Naval Special Warfare Command. I wasn't about to make the doctor's job easier by revealing anything to him, and he wasn't going to take caution's side and pull the ripcord on a man's dream. He lifted his hand and my pain faded. I coughed and pneumonia once again rattled in my lungs until I felt the cold truth of his stethoscope on my skin. Ever since Hell Week was called, I've been coughing up brown knots of mucus. For the first two days, I lay in bed, day and night, spitting them into a Gatorade bottle, where I stored them like so many nickels. I could barely breathe, and couldn't move much either. I may have been a bad motherfucker in Hell Week, but that shit was over, and I had to deal with the fact that the devil and those instructors branded me too. It's all right, Doc, I said. A little stiff is all. Time is what I needed. I knew how to push through pain, and my body had almost always responded with performance. I wasn't going to quit just because my knee was barking. It would come around eventually. The doc prescribed medicine to reduce the congestion in my lungs and sinuses and gave me some Motrin for my knee. Within two days, my breathing improved, but I still couldn't bend my right leg. This would be a problem. Of all the moments and buds that I thought could break me, a knot-tying exercise never registered on my radar. Then again, this wasn't the fucking Boy Scouts. This was an underwater knot-tying drill held in the 15-foot section of the pool, and while the pool didn't strike mortal fear into me like it once did, being negatively buoyant, I knew that any pool evolution could be my undoing, especially those that demanded treading water. Even before Hell Week, we'd been tested in the pool. We had to perform mock rescues on the instructors and do a 50-meter underwater swim without fins on a single breath. That swim started with a giant stride into the water, followed by a full somersault to siphon off any momentum whatsoever. Then, without kicking off the side, we swam along the lane lines to the end of our 25-meter pool. On the far side, we were allowed to kick off the wall, then swim back. When I arrived at the 50-meter mark, I rose up and gasped for air. My heart hammered until my breath smoothed, and I grasped that I'd actually passed the first of a series of complicated underwater evolutions that were supposed to teach us to be calm, cool, and collected underwater on a breath hold. The knot-tying evolution was next in the series, and it wasn't about our ability to tie various knots or a way to time our max breath hold. Sure, both skills come in handy on amphibian operations, 
But this drill was more about our capacity to juggle multiple stressors in an environment that's not sustainable for human life. Despite my health, I was heading into the drill with some confidence. Things changed when I started treading water. That's how the drill began, with eight students strung out across the pool, moving our hands and legs like egg beaters. That's hard enough for me on two good legs, but because my right knee didn't work, I was forced to tread water with just my left. That spiked the degree of difficulty and my heart rate, which sapped my energy. Each student had an instructor assigned to them for this evolution, and Psycho Pete specifically requested me. It was obvious I was struggling, and Psycho and his bruised pride were hungry for a little payback. With each revolution of my right leg, shock waves of pain exploded like fireworks. Even with Psycho eyeballing me, I couldn't hide it. When I grimaced, he smiled like a kid on Christmas morning. Tie a square knot, then a bowline, he shouted. I was working so hard it was difficult to catch my breath, but Psycho didn't give two fucks. Now, damn it! I gulped air, bent from the waist, and kicked down. There were five knots in the drill altogether, and each student was told to grab their eight-inch slice of rope and tie them off one at a time at the bottom of the pool. We were allotted a breath in between, but could do as many as all five knots on a single breath. The instructor called out the knots, but the pacing was up to each student. We weren't allowed to use a mask or goggles to complete the evolution, and the instructor had to approve each knot with a thumbs up before we were permitted to surface. If they flashed a thumb down instead, we had to retie that knot correctly, and if we surfaced before a given knot was approved, that meant failure and a ticket home. Once back at the surface, there was no resting or relaxing between tasks. Treading water was the constant refrain, which meant soaring heart rates and the continual burning up of oxygen in the bloodstream for the one-legged man. Translation, the dives were uncomfortable as hell, and blacking out was a real possibility. Psycho glared at me through his mask as I worked my knots. After about 30 seconds, he'd approved both, and we surfaced. He breathed free and easy, but I was gasping and panting like a wet, tired dog. The pain in my knee was so bad, I felt sweat beat up on my forehead. When you're sweating in an unheated pool, you know shit's fucked up. I was breathless, low on energy, and wanted to quit. But quitting this evolution meant quitting buds altogether, and that wasn't happening. Oh no, are you hurt, Goggins? Do you have some sand in your pussy? Psycho asked. I'll bet you can't do the last three knots on one breath. He said it with a smirk, like he was daring me. I knew the rules. I didn't have to accept his challenge, but that would have made Psycho just a little too happy, and I couldn't allow that. I nodded and kept treading water, delaying my dive until my pulse evened out and I could score one deep, nourishing breath. Psycho wasn't having it. Whenever I opened my mouth, he splashed water in my face to stress me out even more, a tactic used when trainees started to panic. That made breathing impossible. Go under now or you fail. I'd run out of time. I tried to gulp some air before my duck dive and tasted a mouthful of Psycho's splash water instead as I dove to the bottom of the pool on a negative breath hold. My lungs were damn near empty, which meant I was in pain from the jump, but I knocked the first one out in a few seconds. Psycho took his sweet time examining my work. My heart was thrumming like high-alert Morse code. I felt it flip-flop in my chest like it was trying to break through my ribcage and fly to freedom. Psycho stared at the twine, flipped it over and perused it with his eyes and fingers before offering a thumbs up in slow motion. I shook my head, untied the rope, and hit the next one. 
Again, he gave it a close inspection while my chest burned and diaphragm contracted, trying to force air into my empty lungs. The pain level in my knee was at a 10. Stars gathered in my peripheral vision. Those multiple stressors had me teetering like a Jenga tower, and I felt like I was about to black out. If that happened, I'd have to depend on Psycho to swim me to the surface and bring me around. Did I really trust this man to do that? He hated me. What if he failed to execute? What if my body was too burned out that even a rescue breath couldn't rouse me? My mind was spun with those simple toxic questions that never go away. Why was I here? Why suffer when I could quit and be comfortable again? Why risk passing out or even death for a fucking knot drill? I knew that if I succumbed and bolted to the surface, my SEAL career would have ended then and there. But in that moment, I couldn't figure out why I ever gave a fuck. I looked over at Psycho. He held both his thumbs up and sported a big goofy smile on his face like he was watching a damn comedy show. His split second of pleasure in my pain reminded me of all the bullying and taunts I felt as a teenager. But instead of playing the victim and letting negative emotions sap my energy and force me to the surface, a failure, it was as if a new light blazed in my brain that allowed me to flip the script. Time stood still as I realized for the first time that I'd always looked at my entire life, everything I'd been through, from the wrong perspective. Yes, all the abuse I'd experienced and the negativity I had to push through challenged me to the core, but in that moment I stopped seeing myself as the victim of bad circumstance and saw my life as the ultimate training ground instead. My disadvantages had been callousing my mind all along and had prepared me for that moment in that pool with Psycho Pete. I remember my very first day in the gym back in Indiana. My palms were soft and quickly got torn up on the bars because they weren't accustomed to gripping steel. But over time, after thousands of reps, my palms built up a thick callus as protection. The same principle works when it comes to mindset. Until you experience hardships like abuse and bullying, failures and disappointments, your mind will remain soft and exposed. Life experience, especially negative experiences, help callous the mind. But it's up to you where that callus lines up. If you choose to see yourself as a victim of circumstance into adulthood, that callus will become resentment that protects you from the unfamiliar. It will make you too cautious and untrusting, and possibly too angry at the world. It will make you fearful of change and hard to reach, but not hard of mind. That's where I was as a teenager. But after my second hell week, I'd become someone new. I'd fought through so many horrible situations by then and remained open and ready for more. My ability to stay open represented a willingness to fight for my own life, which allowed me to withstand hailstorms of pain and use it to callous over my victim's mentality. That shit was gone, buried under layers of sweat and hard fucking flesh, and I was starting to callous over my fears too. That realization gave me the mental edge I needed to outlast Psycho Pete one more time. To show him he couldn't hurt me anymore, I smiled back, and the feeling of being on the edge of a blackout went away. Suddenly I was energized, the pain faded, and I felt like I could stay under all day. Psycho saw that in my eyes. I tied off the last knot at leisurely pace, glaring at him the whole time. He gestured with his hands for me to hurry up as his diaphragm contracted. I finally finished, he gave me a quick affirmative and kicked to the surface, desperate for a breath. I took my time, joined him topside, and found him gasping while I felt strangely relaxed. When the chips were down at the pool during Air Force pararescue training, I'd buckled. This time, I won a major battle in the water. It was a big victory, 
but the war wasn't over. After I passed the knot-tying evolution, we had two minutes to climb out onto the deck, get dressed, and head back to the classroom. During first phase, that's usually plenty of time, but a lot of us, not just me, were still healing from Hell Week and not moving at our typical lightning pace. On top of that, once we got through Hell Week, Class 231 went through a bit of an attitude adjustment. Hell Week is designed to show you that a human is capable of much more than you know. It opens your mind to the true possibilities of human potential, and with that comes a change in your mentality. You no longer fear cold water or doing push-ups all day. You realize that no matter what they do to you, they will never break you, so you don't rush as much to make their arbitrary deadlines. You know if you don't make it, the instructors will beat you down, meaning push-ups, getting wet and sandy, anything to up the pain and discomfort quotient. But for those of us knuckle-draggers still in the mix, our attitude was, so the fuck be it. None of us feared the instructors anymore, and we weren't about to rush. They didn't like that one damn bit. I had seen a lot of beatdowns while at Bud's, but the one we received that day will go down as one of the worst in history. We did push-ups until we couldn't pick ourselves up off the deck. Then they turned us on our backs and demanded flutter kicks. Each kick was torture for me. I kept putting my legs down because of the pain. I was showing weakness, and if you show weakness, it is on. Psycho and SBG descended and took turns on me. I went from push-ups to flutter kicks to bear crawls until they got tired. I could feel the moving parts of my knee shifting, floating, and grabbing every time I bent it to do those bear crawls, and it was agonizing. I moved slower than normal and knew I was broken. That simple question bubbled up again. Why? What was I trying to prove? Quitting seemed the sane choice. The comfort of mediocrity sounded like sweet relief until Psycho screamed in my ear. Move faster, motherfucker! Once again, an amazing feeling washed over me. I wasn't focused on outdoing him this time. I was in the worst pain of my life, but my victory in the pool minutes before came rushing back. I'd finally proved to myself that I was a decent enough waterman to belong in the Navy SEALs. Heady stuff for a negatively buoyant kid that never took a swim lesson in his entire life. And the reason I got there was because I'd put in the work. The pool had been my kryptonite. Even though I was a far better swimmer as a SEAL candidate, I was still so stressed about water evolutions that I used to hit the pool after a day of training at least three times a week. I scaled the 15-foot fence just to gain after-hours access. Other than the academic aspect, nothing scared me as much about the prospects of buds like the swimming drills, and by dedicating time, I was able to callous over that fear and hit new levels underwater when the pressure was on. I thought about the incredible power of a callous mind on task as Psycho and SBG beat me down, and that thought became a feeling that took over my body and made me move as fast as a bear around that pool. I couldn't believe what I was doing. The intense pain was gone, and so were those nagging questions. I was putting out harder than ever, breaking through the limitations of injury and pain tolerance, and riding a second wind delivered by a callous mind. After the bear crawls, I went back to doing flutter kicks, and I still had no pain. As we were leaving the pool a half hour later, SBG asked, Goggins, what got into your ass to make you Superman? I just smiled and left the pool. I didn't want to say anything because I didn't yet understand what I now know. Similar to using an opponent's energy to gain an advantage, leaning on your callous mind in the heat of battle can shift your thinking as well. 
Remembering what you've been through and how that has strengthened your mindset can lift you out of a negative brain loop and help you bypass those weak one-second impulses to give in so you can power through obstacles. And when you leverage a calloused mind, like I did around the pool that day, and keep fighting through pain, it can help you push your limits. Because if you accept the pain as a natural process and refuse to give in and give up, you will engage the sympathetic nervous system, which shifts your hormonal flow. The sympathetic nervous system is your fight-or-flight reflex. It's bubbling just below the surface. And when you are lost, stressed out, or struggling, like I was when I was a down-and-out kid, that's the part of your mind that's driving the bus. We've all tasted this feeling before. Those mornings when going on a run is the last thing you want to do, but then 20 minutes into it, you feel energized. That's the work of the sympathetic nervous system. What I've found is that you can tap into it on call, as long as you know how to manage your own mind. When you indulge in negative self-talk, the gifts of a sympathetic response will remain out of reach. However, if you can manage those moments of pain that come with maximum effort by remembering what you've been through to get to that point in your life, you will be in a better position to persevere and choose fight over flight. That will allow you to use the adrenaline that comes with a sympathetic response to go even harder. Obstacles at work and school can also be overcome with your callous mind. In those cases, pushing through a given flashpoint isn't likely to lead to a sympathetic response, but it will keep you motivated to push through any doubt you feel about your own abilities. No matter the task at hand, there is always opportunity for self-doubt. Whenever you decide to follow a dream or set a goal, you are just as likely to come up with all the reasons why the likelihood of success is low. Blame it on the fucked-up evolutionary wiring of the human mind but you don't have to let your doubt into the cockpit. You can tolerate doubt as a backseat driver, but if you put doubt in the pilot seat, defeat is guaranteed. Remembering that you've been through difficulties before and have always survived to fight again shifts the conversation in your head. It will allow you to control and manage doubt and keep you focused on taking each and every step necessary to achieve the task at hand. Sounds simple, right? It isn't. Very few people even bother to try to control the way their thoughts and doubts bubble up. The vast majority of us are slaves to our minds. Most don't even make the first effort when it comes to mastering their thought process because it's a never-ending chore, impossible to get right every time. The average person thinks 2,000 to 3,000 thoughts per hour. That's 30 to 50 per minute. Some of those shots will slip by the goalie. It's inevitable, especially if you coast through life. Physical training is the perfect crucible to learn how to manage your thought process because when you're working out, your focus is more likely to be single-pointed and your response to stress and pain is immediate and measurable. Do you hammer hard and snag that personal best like you said you would or do you crumble? That decision rarely comes down to physical ability. It's almost always a test of how well you are managing your own mind. If you push yourself through each split and use that energy to maintain a strong pace, you have a great chance of recording a faster time. Granted, some days it's easier to do that than others, and the clock or the score doesn't matter anyway. The reason it's important to push hardest when you want to quit the most is because it helps you callous your mind. It's the same reason why you have to do your best work when you are the least motivated. That's why I loved PT and Buds and why I still love it today. Physical challenges strengthen my mind so I'm ready for whatever life throws at me and it will do the same for you. You know, David, I think we should talk about this callous mind thing, man, because a couple things, going back to the first reference of it, 
this idea of choosing whether you're going to use uh, negativity to callous over your victim's mentality or to kind of solidify that and just make you hard to reach. I mean, that's so, that's like so fundamental and so true. Right. It, it truly is. And throughout my whole life, I was trying to find different ways to um, kind of get through life. And like I said, it is not a five-step process. You got to figure out what works for you. And I kept on seeing my hands becoming, you know, extremely calloused as I was trying to lose that weight and I was doing tons of pull-ups and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, you know what? I need to do my brain the same way. Hmm. And through repetition, through, see, through friction, you have to put obstacles in front of you. And that, you know, through friction is how you become better. So I, I, I kept on, and also through friction, friction was callous in my hands. Right. So I had to kind of put friction on my mind. And that's exactly what I just kept on doing. I kept on putting friction on my mind. I mean, but friction on the mind is, is a natural thing. And what you're saying is, I mean, the way I'm getting it is uh, you have to, but you can choose actually where you're going to allow that callus to happen when it comes to the mind. And the body, you don't have the choice. It's whatever you use. But the same is true of the mind. It's wherever you're putting your mind. So if you're saying, you know, listen, the world's giving me all sorts of grief and I'm fighting through it, but that's going to make me harder and better and, and stronger going forward, then that's going to, that's, you're not being a victim. But if you're like, fuck all this, all these motherfuckers are beating me down, then all of a sudden you're going to isolate yourself with a callus. Right. That's the only, and that's exactly right. A callus can work for you and a callus can work against you. So that's the only way you can look at every, you know, any situation that you're in, the only way you can look at it is, you know what? You're beating me down, but all you're doing is making me more of an animal. Mm. You're, you know, you're, you're making me better. But once you take that other approach to it as what was me, why are you being this way to me? You know, but, but, but with all that being said, you have to look at the source. And we talked about it in the previous chapters. You have to look at the source of the person that's beating you down. Mm. Like, why is a secure individual going to take the time to beat you down? They're not going to. They're not going to. And we put so much into these people, like, oh, my God, this person doesn't like me or whatever the situation may be, versus taking the time to just slow it down and say, you know what? A secure human being wouldn't be doing that right now. So the problem isn't with you usually. The problem is with your adversary. Right. Or, but if it, someone's born poor, for instance, and their dad, they never met their mom or dad or someone, they've, been, they've had kind of from the beginning have had to start from way back from the starting line, um, you could see how someone would, would think that the odds are stacked against them. You could forgive them for that. But the thing is, it is still a choice they're making. Oh, 100%. I mean, it is now you to own. Right. You know, your parents may have put you in a fucked up situation. Once again, you have to turn that around yourself. No one is coming to save you. And that's, you know, we have this mentality of, I'm going to wait to be saved. Mm. I'm going to wait for someone to come and help me. And I'm telling you right now, I believe in, I, I believe in God. A lot of us believe I'm praying on it and stuff like that. Yeah, you can pray on it, but if you sit in a room and pray on it and do nothing about it, nothing's going to happen. You have to put work behind everything in life. You have to put effort. You have to, you have to put friction behind something for, for something to change. Yeah. And, and, I mean, that gets back to the hero's journey and why this book is so important for everybody who's listening right now or reads the book. 
is to think of themselves in your shoes because what you like to say is it just makes the story better. If you have certain disadvantages in a given situation, imagine how great the story is going to be when you fucking rock it. Exactly. Like right now, I could be a 350-pound, you know, guy that works for Ecolab. And if I would have never found a way how to callous my mind, how to take souls, how to reach in there and find more of myself, I would be that same person who was spraying for cockroaches. You know, I would never know that inside that 300, you know, 300 pound body was a person that was capable of going through these hell weeks, that was capable of running, or of, of, of doing anything I've done. Mm. You know, you, we, we don't want to examine the possibilities of what we can be. And, and that's the scariest thing in the world to me is I believe that so many people have died never knowing what they could, you know, what, what they could have been. Absolutely. I think that this also what, what, what you say here that's so poignant is that it's important for everyone to know that you don't have to get right. You don't have to get it right every time. Sometimes you're going to think wrong. Sometimes you're going to take the victim's way out at first. When, you know, it's, this is a muscle you're building up. And like you say, the average person thinks 2,000 to 3,000 thoughts per hour, 30 to 50 per minute. I mean, you're not going to get them all. Some, you're going you're gonna to be lazy with the mind sometimes. I mean, I think about this all the time. I've been working with you for what? Almost, we're going on a year. Right. And I've been hearing this and I, and I love it and I'm active. Um, but, you know, when I'm pushing hard running and, I, and, and it hurts and the, you know, I don't, I actually don't remember to answer the simple questions all the time. It's, it takes a lot of focus to actually be able to even answer that question. It's not easy. And so you're going to get it wrong sometimes, but that's okay. That's all part of the process. It is all part of the process. And, and one thing I know is that you have to kind of imagine yourself after the fact. So what that means is like this morning, I didn't feel like getting up and running. I didn't get much sleep. I stretched, you know, I was, I was stretching for a couple hours, went to bed about 1.30. I was up at 6 this morning and went running. I knew that I would be here right now talking to you all, you know, doing this book. And the whole time I'd be in this little booth locked up in this little cage, I'd be thinking one thing, why the hell didn't I go run? So you want to get to the point in your life where all these things that you don't do, they bother you. They haunt you. They, they, they eat at you throughout the whole day. If you miss something that you were supposed to do, if you're like, you know what? It's not a big deal. I'll do it tomorrow. You're not there yet. You want to get to the point in your life where everything that you should have done and you didn't do, it bothers you. And I know that going into everything. Last night, I, you know, I, you know or, or this morning, well, you know, I went to bed. I thought to myself, you know what? I might not run. I have time afterward. You know what? You can't do that. You cannot do that. So all this stuff right here, this is all about callous in your mind. But no matter how well you deploy it, a calloused mind can't heal broken bones. On the mile-long hike back to the Bud's compound, the feeling of victory evaporated, and I could feel the damage I'd done. I had 20 weeks of training in front of me, dozens of evolutions ahead, and I could barely walk. While I wanted to deny the pain in my knee, I knew I was fucked, so I limped straight to medical. When he saw my knee, the doc didn't say a damn thing. He just shook his head and sent me to get an x-ray that revealed a fractured kneecap. In Bud's, 
When reservists sustain injuries that take a long time to heal, they're sent home. And that's what happened to me. I crutched my ass back to the barracks, demoralized. And while checking out, I saw some of the guys that quit during Hell Week. When I first glimpsed their helmets lined up beneath the bell, I felt sorry for them, because I knew the empty feeling of giving up. But seeing them face to face reminded me that failure is a part of life, and now we all had to press on. I hadn't quit, so I knew I'd be invited back, but I had no idea if that meant a third Hell Week or not. Or if after getting rolled twice, I still had the burning desire to fight through another hurricane of pain with no guarantee of success. Given my injury record, how could I? I left the Buds compound with more self-awareness and more mastery over my mind than I'd ever had before, but my future was just as uncertain. Airplanes have always made me claustrophobic, so I decided to take the train from San Diego to Chicago, which gave me three full days to think, and my mind was all fucked up. Before we get into that, how did you become claustrophobic? You know what? I, I don't talk about it much at all. It's a, uh, it's a pretty messed up story for me. So when I was in the Air Force, they sent me to a school called Survival School. And it's mostly for pilots, you know, you know, being trapped behind enemy lines and, you know, pilots become, you know, you know, POWs, prisoners, you know, prisoner of war. So they sent me and a couple other guys to survival school. And the first couple of weeks, they teach you how to survive, you know, out, you know, out on the, you know, out, out in the land, you know, out in the woods, how to make different shelters, how to eat, you know, different food, whatnot. But then the last week of survival school, they put you in this mock POW camp. So they put this hood over your head and you live in a slightly bigger size coffin box. And so that was okay for me. It's, you know, I'm about six foot one, six foot two. And the actual box was about maybe 5'10". And it was probably about, maybe about uh, three feet wide. So I lived in that. But what they would do is they would take you from that box and they would put you in a very, very small box. Hmm. And so the whole time you have a hood over your head so you can't see what the POW camp looks like. You can't see any of that stuff. So now they put me in a box. So imagine this. Imagine getting in a, a ball, you know, scrunching down the ball, having your chest up to your thighs and getting as tight as you can. And they shove you in this box. And at this time, I was about 260 pounds. So they shove you in a box where your right elbow is touching the side, your left elbow, your head is touching the very top of the box, and your knees are touching the front of the box, and your back is also kind of rounded over to the top of the box and the back of the box. So you are literally smushed in this thing. So that wasn't too bad either. But, <laughs> but what happened that made me seriously claustrophobic was I thought it was a game because, like I said, everything is a head game, but in this situation it wasn't. In my box, there happened to be bees, and this wasn't part of the training. There was bees in the box, and I thought, okay, maybe these guys, these instructors are now trying to make me quit, and they're messing with me, and there was something tickling my neck. I'm like, okay, Goggins, keep it together. Keep your shit together, man. Keep it together. Because once you freak out, and you're in that kind of tight box, you're going to panic, and you're going to be like almost like the daggone Hulk trying mm. to get out of that thing. Mm. So... I started feeling something. I, I felt one bee sting, felt another bee sting. Before I knew it, I realized this was no longer a game. 
this was the real deal, and there was there was some bees in this box. So being trapped in there with these bees, it uh, freaked me the hell out. Hmm. So I ended up getting through that thing, but I was trying to you know take a flight back from uh, Washington, Spokane, Washington, and I had a flight to go back home, and I literally got to my first layover. And I was sweating. They had me in the corner by the window. You know, it was like, you know, like, you know, it was like three seats and I was by the window and I was pinned into the side. And I was like, oh my God, I am claustrophobic. I am seriously claustrophobic. So how I got over that was I had a buddy of mine who, well, I befriended this guy at the hospital and I started literally going in and having him put me in the MRI machine after hours. Hmm. Because the MRI machine also freaked me out. Mm. So how I got over it was just doing that. So that's how I became severely claustrophobic. But now I'm fine. I know how to talk to myself in the nice, tight, confined spaces. So at this point, you still have it still lingering there. And, and you just instead of talking yourself through it, you just wanted to think. So that's why you decided to take the train. Yeah. Not only did I want to think, I was like, I'm not getting that fucking airplane. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're like, not now. No, not now. I was already busted up from too much shit. I didn't want to go through uh, more mental torture. So you're on the three-day train ride. On the first day, I didn't know if I wanted to be a SEAL anymore. I had overcome a lot. I beat Hell Week, realized the power of a callous mind, and conquered my fear of the water. Perhaps I'd already learned enough about myself. What else did I need to prove? On day two, I thought about all the other jobs I could sign up for. Maybe I should move on and become a firefighter. That's a badass job, and it would be an opportunity to become a different sort of hero. But on day three, as the train veered into Chicago, I slipped into a bathroom the size of a phone booth and checked in with the accountability mirror. Is that really how you feel? Are you sure you're ready to give up on the seals and become a civilian fireman? I stared at myself for five minutes before I shook my head. I couldn't lie. I had to tell myself the truth, out loud. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of going through all that shit again. I'm afraid of day one, week one. I was divorced by then, but my ex-wife Pam met me in the train station to drive me home to my mother's place in Indianapolis. Pam was still living in Brazil. We'd been in touch while I was in San Diego, and after seeing each other through the crowd on the train platform, we fell back on our habits, and later that night, we fell into bed. That whole summer, from May to November, I stayed in the Midwest, healing up, then rehabbing my knee. I was still a reservist, but remained undecided about going back to Navy SEAL training. I looked into the Marine Corps. I explored the application process for a handful of firefighting units, but finally picked up the phone, ready to call into the Bud's compound. They needed my final answer. I sat there, holding the telephone, and thought about the misery of SEAL training. Shit, you run six miles a day just to eat, not including your training runs. I visualized all the swimming and paddling, carrying heavy-ass boats and logs on our heads, over the berm all day. I flashed onto hours of sit-ups, push-ups, flutter kicks, and the O-course. I remembered the feeling of rolling around in the sand, of being chafed all fucking day and night. My memories were a mind-body experience, and I felt the cold deep in my bones. A normal person would give up. They'd say, fuck it, it's just not meant to be, and refuse to torture themselves one minute more. But I wasn't wired normal. 
As I dialed the number, negativity rose up like an angry shadow. I couldn't help but think that I was put on this earth to suffer. Why wouldn't my own personal demons, the fates, God, or Satan, just leave me the fuck alone? I was tired of trying to prove myself, tired of callousing my mind. Mentally, I was worn to the nub. At the same time, being worn the fuck down is the price of being hard, and I knew if I quit, those feelings and thoughts wouldn't just go away. The cost of quitting would be lifelong purgatory. I'd be trapped in the knowing that I didn't stay in the fight to the bitter end. There is no shame in getting knocked out. The shame comes when you throw in the motherfucking towel. And if I was born to suffer, then I may as well take my medicine. The training officer welcomed me back and confirmed that I was starting from day one, week one. As expected, my brown shirt would have to be swapped out for a white one, and he had one more sliver of sunshine to share. Just so you know, Goggins, he said, this will be the last time we will allow you to go through Bud's training. If you get injured, that's it. We will not allow you to come back again. Roger that, I said. Class 235 would muster in just four weeks. My knee still wasn't all the way right, but I'd better be ready because the ultimate test was about to begin. Within seconds of hanging up the phone, Pam called and said she needed to see me. It was good timing. I was leaving town again, hopefully for good this time, and I needed to level with her. We'd been enjoying one another, but it was always a temporary thing for me. We'd been married once, and we were still different people with totally different worldviews. That hadn't changed, and obviously neither had some of my insecurities as they kept me going back to what was familiar. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. We would never work, and it was time to say so. She got to her news first. I'm late, she said, as she burst through the door, clutching a brown paper bag. Like, late, late. She seemed excited and nervous as she disappeared into the bathroom. I could hear that bag crinkle and the tearing open of a package as I lay on my bed staring at the ceiling. Minutes later, she opened the bathroom door a pregnancy test in her fists, and a big smile on her face. I knew it, she said, biting her lower lip. Look, David, we're pregnant. I stood up slow. She hugged me with everything she had, and her excitement broke my heart. It wasn't supposed to go like this. I wasn't ready. My body was still broken. I was $30,000 in credit card debt and still only a reservist. I had no address of my own and no car. I was unstable, and that made me very insecure. Plus, I wasn't even in love with this woman. That's what I said to myself while I stared into that accountability mirror over her shoulder, the mirror that never lies. I averted my eyes. Pam went home to share the news with her parents. I walked her to the door of my mother's place, then slumped into the couch. In Coronado, I felt like I'd come to terms with my fucked-up past and found some power there, and here I was, sucked under once again. Now it wasn't just about me and my dreams of becoming a SEAL. I had a family to think about, which raised the stakes that much higher. If I failed this time, it wouldn't mean that I was just going back to ground zero, emotionally and financially, but I would be bringing my new family there with me. When my mother got home, I told her everything. And as we talked, the dam broke, and my fear, sadness, and struggle came bursting out of me. I put my head in my hands and sobbed. Mom... My life from the time I was born until now has been a nightmare. A nightmare that keeps getting worse, I said. The harder I try, 
the harder my life becomes. I can't argue with that, David, she said. My mom knew hell, and she wasn't trying to baby me. She never had. But I also know you well enough to know that you will find a way to get through this. I have to, I said, as I wiped the tears from my eyes. I don't have a choice. She left me alone, and I sat on that couch all night. I felt like I'd been stripped of everything, but I was still breathing, which meant I had to find a way to keep going. I had to compartmentalize doubt and find the strength to believe that I was born to be more than some tired-ass Navy SEAL reject. After Hell Week, I'd felt I had become unbreakable, yet within a week, I'd been zeroed out. I hadn't leveled up after all. I still wasn't shit, and if I was going to fix my broke-down life, I would have to become more. On that sofa, I found a way. By then, I'd learned how to hold myself accountable, and I knew I could take a man's soul in the heat of battle. I had overcome many obstacles and realized that each of those experiences had calloused my mind so thick I could take on any challenge. All of that made me feel like I'd dealt with my past demons, but I hadn't. I'd been ignoring them. My memories of abuse at the hands of my father, of all those people who called me nigger, didn't vaporize after a few victories. Those moments were anchored deep in my subconscious, and as a result, my foundation was cracked. In a human being, your character is your foundation, and when you build a bunch of successes and pile up even more failures on a fucked-up foundation, the structure that is the self won't be sound. To develop an armored mind, a mindset so calloused and hard that it becomes bulletproof, you need to go to the source of all your fears and insecurities. Most of us sweep our failures and evil secrets under the rug, but when we run into problems, that rug gets lifted up and our darkness reemerges, floods our soul, and influences the decisions which determine our character. My fears were never just about the water, and my anxieties towards class 235 weren't about the pain of first phase. They were seeping from the infected wounds I'd been walking around with my entire life, and my denial of them amounted to a denial of myself. I was my own worst enemy. It wasn't the world or God or the devil that was out to get me. It was me. I was rejecting my past and therefore rejecting myself. My foundation, my character was defined by self-rejection. All my fears came from that deep-seated uneasiness I carried with being David Goggins because of what I'd gone through. Even after I'd reached a point where I no longer cared about what others thought of me, I still had trouble accepting me. Anyone who is of sound mind and body can sit down and think of 20 things in their life that could have gone differently, where maybe they didn't get a fair shake, and where they took the path of least resistance. If you're one of the few who acknowledge that, want to callous those wounds and strengthen your character, it's up to you to go back through your past and make peace with yourself by facing those incidents and all of your negative influences and accepting them as weak spots in your own character. Only when you identify and accept your weaknesses will you finally stop running from your past. Then those incidents can be used more efficiently as fuel to become better and grow stronger. Right there on my mom's couch, as the moon burned its arc in the night sky, I faced down my demons. I faced myself. I couldn't run from my dad anymore. I had to accept that he was part of me and that his lying, cheating character influenced me more than I cared to admit. Before that night, I used to tell people that my father had died rather than tell the truth about where I came from. Even in the seals, I trotted out that lie. I knew why. When you get beat up, you don't want to acknowledge getting your ass kicked. It doesn't make you feel very manly, so the easiest thing to do is forget about it and move on. Pretend it never happened. Not anymore. Going forward, it became very important for me to rehash my life, 
because when you examine your experiences with a fine-tooth comb, you see where your issues come from. You can find strength in enduring pain and abuse. By accepting Trunus Goggins as part of me, I was free to use where I came from as fuel. I realized that each episode of child abuse that could have killed me made me tough as hell and as sharp as a samurai's blade. True, I had been dealt a fucked up hand, but that night I started thinking of it as running a 100-mile race with a 50-pound ruck on my back. Could I still compete in that race even if everyone else was running free and easy, weighing 130 pounds? How fast would I be able to run once I'd shed that dead weight? I wasn't even thinking about ultras yet. To me, the race was life itself. And the more I took inventory, the more I realized how prepared I was for the fucked up events yet to come. Life had put me in the fire, taken me out and hammered me repeatedly. And diving back into the Bud's cauldron, feeling a third hell week in a calendar year, would decorate me with a PhD in pain. I was about to become the sharpest sword ever made. I mean, there's so much to, to dive into here, but I just want to unpack one specific thing because it's a subtle difference. Because when you're in the pool, you realize that your hard life, everything you'd been through had calloused you to the point where you could you could take more pain and do and achieve more. Right. You, you'd been trained. You'd had that callous in your mind to be able to endure more pain. But now we're saying, actually, even though that is true and you had realized that, you actually hadn't accepted all those negative experiences completely. You accepted them as these great, these things that you had to go through, these thresholds you had to pass through, but you didn't accept them as integral to your character. Is that right? Exactly. So what I did was, yeah, I was definitely getting, uh, I was enduring the pain. I was getting better in the water. I was getting better physically. And that's the thing about it, man. It's like a lot of times, um, for instance, I was at, I was at Bud's prep for a while before I got out of the, uh, of the SEAL teams before I retired. And what I saw was we were teaching these guys, you know, we were building these hybrids. And these guys would come to this program um, straight out of boot camp, and they spent two months training for BUDS, something that we never did before. Like when I went through, you got orders and went right to BUDS. Now we were getting these guys ready for BUDS. So it was two months of pre-BUDS of getting your ass kicked. So we got these guys, more push-ups, more sit-ups, more swimming, more everything. And But what I realized, though, is all we were doing was building a bigger, stronger, faster quitter. Hmm. We never went down to the fucking straight-up foundation of that person's soul. So that's what I was doing here. Every time I would overcome something, I thought, oh, my God, my past is in the dust. My past is gone. I'm crushing this shit. But what I never did was I never drilled down deep. I never drilled down deep. I never went back to my past and actually sat down with the old David Goggins. The David Goggins that got abused by his dad. The David Goggins that got called nigger. I just thought that me getting better was enough. Hmm. I said, oh my God, look where I'm at now. I've, I've, I've overcome so much. But whenever hard times would come up, like you know, like we talk about here, that rug would lift. And once that rug would lift, all those demons would come flying out. So I had to go back and actually face all of that shit. Go back in my past and literally re rebuild that foundation. And it's really interesting because basically all you're doing now in telling your story with this book, but also in 
in all the, the countless hours you spend telling your story on stage or on podcasts is, um, is basically all an outgrowth of that, isn't it? It's a full acceptance, so therefore you can use it to empower you in so many ways, whether it's in PT or in, um, uh, you know, actually, in, in your case, it's actually empowered you to tell your story and it's become its own livelihood. Right, and I found great strength in doing that. So what I once feared, I once feared anybody knowing what they're hearing right now. This is all embarrassing shit. But I got to the point where I realized, man, there's power. There's power in being able to tell the whole world if they want to listen, anything they want to know about you. There's a lot of power. Not many people can do that, but once you get to that point in your life, you have cracked the code. You've cracked the code and you no longer look at people as, oh my God, they're judging me. Oh my God, what are they saying about me? There's a lot of people that say that, oh, I don't give a fuck. I don't care, whatever, man. But they care. They, they truly care. I got to the point where judge me if you want. I truly don't care. It's interesting though, because I mean, we're going to talk about this later as well, but um, I think it's important for your readers and listeners to understand. I think when they first hear about you, and what we're about to talk about in this chapter, I mean, it's it's absolutely amazing what you can withstand physically or what you did withstand in your life. But in reality, like, this is not some alpha male macho story. No. This is actually extreme vulnerability disguised as that. And I think that's so what's so interesting and why people are so attracted to you, your story and, and what you're doing is that is that you're giving permission to be vulnerable with yourself. It's actually a very sensitive thing to do. And most people are, don't have that sensitivity. They don't want to look at those weak points. It makes them feel weak, like you said. And you're not, you're giving them permission to do that because you found if you allow yourself to be weak, then you can, you can become so much stronger. That's exactly true. So that's what I found out in, in me being able to admit my faults admit my weaknesses, admit my, you know, just admit my insecurities, admit my fears. I found great strength in owning that. We, we hate owning that. And like, you know, like you said, you're going to hear in this next, uh, in this next part of this, of this uh, chapter about some crazy shit. I like, like some stuff, even me looking back on it, me, me reading it, me talking about it with you for months. It's even hard for me to sometimes believe and people love putting a title on what they don't understand. A lot of people love putting a title on me. Oh man, you just gotta have, you, you, you have some special brain. You guys have heard my life, at least a fraction of it. There's a lot more to come. Don't put a title on me to make yourself feel better. Mm. Do not put a title on me to give yourself a get out of jail free card. I am being vulnerable to you right now. I'm telling you where I come from. I'm telling you my parents. I'm telling you, you know, my learning disabilities, all the issues I had. Wetting the bed. Wetting the bed for a long time. Thanks for bringing that up, Adam. I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, wetting the bed for a while, sleeping on the floor, having so many fears and insecurities that, you know, I lied so people would accept me. I'm telling you right now, if you put a title on me, you're afraid to face who you are. There is no excuse to be where you're at if you're not where you want to be. Yeah, and 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 just just to encourage you listeners and readers to do this hard work for yourself because that's what you're encouraging people to do and 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 so that you can find your strength, your reservoir of strength in it. I think that's just so important. 
And like, just to remind the world again, this is not some macho man, alpha male story. It's, it's a person who has, has become so vulnerable that this, this hero emerged. And that's kind of what we're, what we're talking about here. And all we're trying to get is I'm hoping that you become your own hero. Yeah, and, I, and I cannot say that enough, man. This is, this is my story, but hopefully you all are at home right now rewriting your book, rewriting your chapters of your life. Change the outlook. Change how you look at everything in life. It, it is possible. That said, what you're about to hear is some crazy shit. <laughs> and, and I will say that, you know, I'm not going to say the two episodes that when I first heard your story on Rich Roll's podcast ages ago. Right. Um, this is one, this right here is one of the things that just made me like, go. Oh, th- that's mental. Like, that's fucking crazy. Um, and, but it, and crazy in a way that, wow, I didn't know a human, I didn't know that was possible for a human being. And, um, and hearing it in detail has just reinforced that. This is some amazing stuff right well, here. I had to be open-minded, man. I had to be open-minded. I showed up to Class 235 on a mission and kept to myself throughout much of first phase. There were 156 men in that class on day one. I still led from the front, but I wasn't about shepherding anyone through Hell Week this time. My knee was still sore, and I needed to put every ounce of energy into getting my ass through buds. I had everything riding on the next six months, and I had no illusions about how difficult it would be to make it through. Case in point, Sean Dobbs. Dobbs grew up poor in Jacksonville, Florida. He battled some of the same demons I did, and he came into class with a chip on his shoulder. Right away, I could see he was an elite natural athlete. He was at or near the front on all the runs. He blitzed the O course in eight minutes and 30 seconds after just a few reps, and he knew he was a bad motherfucker. Then again, like the Taoists say, those that know don't speak, and those who speak, well, they don't know jack shit. On the night before Hell Week began, he talked a lot of noise about the guys in Class 235. There were already 55 helmets on the grinder, and he was sure he'd be one of the handful of graduates at the end. He mentioned the guys he knew would make it through Hell Week, and also talked a lot of nonsense about the guys he knew would quit. He had no clue that he was making the classic mistake of measuring himself against others in his class. When he beat them in an evolution or outperformed them during PT, he took a lot of pride in that. It boosted his self-confidence and his performance. In buds, it's common and natural to do some of that. It's all part of the competitive nature of the alpha males who are drawn to the seals. But he didn't realize that during Hell Week, you need a solid boat crew to survive, which means depending upon your classmates, not defeating them. While he talked and talked, I took notice. He had no idea what was in store for him and how bad sleep deprivation and being cold fucks you up. He was about to find out. In the early hours of Hell Week, he performed well, but that same drive to defeat his classmates in evolutions and on timed runs came out on the beach. At five foot four and 188 pounds, Dobbs was built like a fire hydrant. But since he was short, he was assigned to a boat crew of smaller guys, referred to as Smurfs by the instructors. In fact, Psycho Pete made them draw a picture of Papa Smurf on the front of their boat just to fuck with them. That's the kind of thing our instructors did. They looked for any way to break you. And with Dobbs, it worked. He didn't like being grouped up with guys he considered smaller and weaker. 
and took it out on his teammates. Over the next day, he would grind his own crew down before our eyes. He took up the position at the front of the boat, or the log, and set a blistering pace on the runs. Instead of checking in with his crew and holding something back in reserve, he went all out from the jump. I reached out to him recently, and he said he remembered buds like it happened last week. I was grinding an axe on my own people, he said. I was purposely beating them down, almost like if I made guys quit, it was a checkmark on my helmet. By Monday morning, he'd done a decent job of it. Two of his guys had quit, and that meant four smaller guys had to carry their boat and log by themselves. He admitted he was fighting his own demons on that beach, that his foundation was cracked. I was an insecure person with low self-esteem trying to grind an axe, he said, and my own ego, arrogance, and insecurity made my own life more difficult. Translation, his mind broke down in ways he'd never experienced before or since. On Monday afternoon, we did a bay swim, and when he emerged from the water, he was hurting. Watching him, it was obvious he could barely walk and that his mind was teetering on the brink. We locked eyes, and I saw that he was asking himself those simple questions and couldn't find an answer. He looked a lot like I did when I was in pararescue, searching for a way out. From then on, Dobbs was one of the worst performers on the whole beach, and that fucked him up bad. All the people I'd categorized as lower than worms were kicking my butt, he said. Soon his crew was down to two men, and he got moved to another boat crew with taller guys. When they lifted the boat head high, he wasn't even able to reach that motherfucker. And all of his insecurities about his size and his past started caving in on him. I started to believe that I didn't belong there, he said. That I was genetically inferior. It was like I had superpowers and I'd lost them. I was in a place in my mind I'd never been and I didn't have a roadmap. Think about where he was at that time. This man had excelled through the first few weeks of Bud's. He'd come from nothing and was a phenomenal athlete. He had so many experiences along the way he could have leaned on. He'd calloused his mind plenty, but because his foundation was cracked, when shit got real, he lost control of his mindset and became a slave to his self-doubt. On Monday night, Dobbs reported to medical, complaining about his feet. He was sure he had stress fractures, but when he took off his boots, they weren't swollen or black and blue like he'd imagined. They looked perfectly healthy. I know that because I was at MedCheck too, sitting right beside him. I saw his blank stare and knew the inevitable was near. It was the look that comes over a man's face after he surrenders his soul. I had the same look in my eyes when I quit pararescue. What will forever bond me and Sean Dobbs is the fact that I knew he was going to quit before he did. The docs offered him Motrin and sent him back into the suffering. I remember watching Sean lace his boots wondering at what point he would finally break. That's when SBG pulled up in his truck and yelled, this will be the coldest night that you will ever experience in your entire lives. I was under my boat with my crew, headed back toward the infamous steel pier when I glanced behind me and saw Sean in the back of SBG's warm truck. He'd surrendered. Within minutes, he would toll the bell three times and place his helmet down. In Dobbs' defense, this was one nightmare of a hell week. It rained all day and all night, which meant you never got warm and never got dry. Plus, somebody in command had the brilliant idea that the class shouldn't be fed and watered like kings at Chow. Instead, we were supplied cold MREs for almost every meal. They thought that would test us even more. 
make it more like a real-world battlefield situation. It also meant there was absolutely no relief. And without abundant calories to burn, it was hard for anybody to find the energy to push through pain and exhaustion, let alone keep warm. Yes, it was miserable, but I fucking loved it. I thrived off the barbaric beauty of seeing the soul of a man destroyed, only to rise again and overcome every obstacle in his path. By my third go-round, I knew what the human body could take. I knew what I could take, and I was feeding off that shit. At the same time, my legs didn't feel right, and my knee had been barking since day one. So far, the pain was something I could handle for at least a couple more days. But the thought of injury was a whole different piece of fuck you pie that I had to block out of my mind. I went into a dark place where there was just me and the pain and suffering. I didn't focus on my classmates or my instructors. I went full caveman. I was willing to die to make it through that motherfucker. I wasn't the only one. Late on Wednesday night, with 36 hours to go before the end of Hell Week, tragedy hit Class 235. We were in the pool for an evolution called the Caterpillar Swim, in which each boat crew swam on their backs, legs locked around torsos in a chain. We had to use our hands in concert to swim. We mustered up at the pool. There were just 26 guys left, and one of them was named John Scop. Mr. Scop was a specimen at 6 foot 2 and 225 pounds, but he'd been sick from breakout and had been in and out of medcheck all week. While 25 of us stood at attention on the pool deck, swollen, chafed, and bleeding, he sat on the stairs by the pool, jackhammering in the cold. He looked like he was freezing, but waves of heat poured off his skin. His body was a radiator on full blast. I could feel him from 10 feet away. I'd had double pneumonia during my first hell week and knew what it looked and felt like. His alveoli, or air sacs, were filling with fluid. He couldn't clear them so he could barely breathe which exacerbated this problem. When pneumonia goes uncontrolled, it can lead to pulmonary edema, which can be deadly, and he was halfway there. Sure enough, during the caterpillar swim, his legs went limp, and he darted to the bottom of the pool like a doll stuffed with lead. Two instructors jumped in after him, and from there it was chaos. They ordered us out of the water and lined us up along the fence with our backs facing the pool as medics worked to revive Mr. Scop. We heard everything, and knew his chances were slipping. Five minutes later, he still wasn't breathing, and they ordered us to the locker room. Mr. Scop was transported to the hospital, and we were told to run back to the Bud's classroom. We didn't know it yet, but Hell Week was already over. Minutes later, SBG walked in and delivered the news cold. Mr. Scop is dead, he said. He took stock of the room. His words had been a collective gut punch to men who were already on the knife's edge after nearly a week with no sleep and no relief. SBG didn't give a fuck. This is the world you live in. He's not the first and he won't be the last to die in your line of work. He looked over at Mr. Scop's roommate and said, Mr. Moore, don't steal any of his shit. Then he left the room like it was just another fucked up day. I felt torn between grief, nausea, and relief. I was sad and sick to my stomach that Mr. Scop had died, but we were all relieved to have survived Hell Week. Plus, the way SBG handled it was straight ahead, no bullshit. And I remember thinking if all SEALs were like him, this would definitely be the world for me. Talk about mixed emotions. See, most civilians don't understand that you need a certain level of callousness to do the job we were being trained to do. To live in a brutal world, you have to accept cold-blooded truths. 
I'm not saying it's good. I'm not necessarily proud of it. But special ops is a calloused world, and it demands a calloused mind. Hell Week had ended 36 hours early. There was no pizza or brown shirt ceremony on the grinder, but 25 men out of a possible 156 had made it. Once again, I was one of the few, and once again, I was swollen like a Pillsbury Doughboy and on crutches with 21 weeks of training still to come. My patella was intact, but both of my shins were slivered with small fractures. It gets worse. The instructors were surly because they'd been forced to call Hell Week prematurely, so they ended Walk Week after just 48 hours. By every conceivable metric, I was fucked. When I moved my ankle, my shins were activated, and I felt searing pain, which was a monumental problem because a typical week in buds demands up to 60 miles of running. Imagine doing that on two broken shins. Most of the guys in Class 235 lived on base at Naval Special Warfare Command in Coronado. I lived about 20 miles away in a $700 a month studio apartment with a mold problem in Chula Vista, which I shared with my pregnant wife and stepdaughter. After she got pregnant, Pam and I remarried. I financed a new Honda Passport, which put me roughly $60,000 in debt, and the three of us drove out from Indiana to San Diego to restart our family. I'd just cleared Hell Week for the second time in a calendar year, and she was set to deliver our baby right around graduation. But there was no happiness in my head or my soul. How could there be? We lived in a shithole that was at the edge of affordability, and my body was broken once again. If I couldn't make it through, I wouldn't even be able to afford rent. We'd have to start all over and find a new line of work. I could not and would not let that happen. The night before first phase kicked back up in intensity, I shaved my head and stared into my reflection. For almost two years straight, I'd been taking pain to the extreme and coming back for more. I'd succeeded in spurts, only to be buried alive in failure. That night, the only thing that allowed me to continue pushing forward was the knowledge that everything I'd been through had helped callous my mind. The question was, how thick was the callous? How much pain could one man take? Did I have it in me to run on broken legs? I woke up at 3.30 the next morning and drove to the base. I limped to the bud's cage where we kept our gear and slumped onto a bench, dropping my backpack at my feet. It was dark as hell inside and out, and I was all alone. I could hear the rolling surf in the distance as I dug through my dive bag. Buried beneath my dive gear were two rolls of duct tape. I could only shake my head and smile in disbelief as I grabbed them, knowing how insane my plan was. I carefully pulled a thick black tube sock over my right foot. The shin was tender to the touch, and even the slightest twitch of the ankle joint registered high on the suffering scale. From there, I looped the tape around my heel, then up over my ankle and back down to my heel, eventually moving both down the foot and up my calf until my entire lower leg and foot were wrapped tight. That was just the first coat. Then I put another black tube sock on and taped my foot and ankle the same way. By the time I was done, I had two sock layers and two tape layers. And once my foot was laced up in the boot, my ankle and shin were protected and immobilized. Satisfied, I did up my left foot, and an hour later, it was as though both my lower legs were sunk into soft casts. It still hurt to walk, but the torture that I'd felt when my ankle moved was more tolerable. Or at least I thought so. I'd find out for sure when we started to run. Our first training run that day was my trial by fire, 
and I did the best I could to run with my hip flexors. Usually we let our feet and lower legs drive the rhythm. I had to reverse that. It took intense focus to isolate each movement and generate motion and power in my legs from the hip down. And for the first 30 minutes, the pain was the worst I'd ever felt in my life. The tape cut into my skin, while the pounding sent shockwaves of agony up my slivered shins. And this was just the first run in what promised to be five months of continual pain. Was it possible to survive this day after day? I thought about quitting. If failure was my future and I'd have to rethink my life completely, what was the point of this exercise? Why delay the inevitable? Was I fucked in the head? Each and every thought boiled down to the same old simple question. Why? The only way to guarantee failure is to quit right now, motherfucker. I was talking to myself now, silently screaming over the din of anguish that was crushing my mind and soul. Take the pain, or it won't just be your failure, it will be your family's failure. I imagined the feeling I would have if I could actually pull this off, if I could endure the pain required to complete this mission. That bought me another half mile before more pain rained down and swirled within me like a typhoon. People have a hard time going through buds healthy, and you're going through it on broken legs. Who else would even think of this, I asked. Who else would be able to run even one minute on one broken leg, let alone two? Only Goggins. You are 20 minutes in the business, Goggins. You are a fucking machine. Each step you run from now until the end will only make you harder. That last message cracked the code like a password. My calloused mind was my ticket forward. And at the 40-minute mark, something remarkable happened. The pain receded to low tide. The tape had loosened so it wasn't cutting into my skin, and my muscles and bones were warm enough to take some pounding. The pain would come and go throughout the day, but it became much more manageable. And when the pain did show up, I told myself it was proof of how tough I was and how much tougher I was becoming. Day after day, the same ritual played itself out. I showed up early, duct taped my feet, endured 30 minutes of extreme pain, talked myself through it, and survived. This was no fake it till you make it bullshit. To me, the fact that I showed up every day, willing to put myself through something like that, was truly amazing. The instructors rewarded me for it, too. They offered to bind my hands and feet and throw me in the pool to see if I could swim four fucking laps. In fact, they didn't offer. They insisted. This was one part of an evolution they like to call drown-proofing. I preferred to call it controlled drowning. With our hands bound behind us and feet tied behind our back, all we could do is dolphin kick. And unlike some of the experienced swimmers in our class, who looked like they'd been pulled from the Michael Phelps gene pool, my dolphin kick was that of a stationary rocking horse and provided about the same propulsion. I was continually out of breath, fighting to stay near the surface, chicken necking my head above the water to get a breath, only to sink down and kick hard, trying in vain to find momentum. I'd practiced for this. For weeks, I'd hit the pool and even experimented with wetsuit shorts to see if I could hide them under my uniform to provide some buoyancy. They made it look like I was wearing a diaper under the tight-ass, nut-hugging UDT shorts, and they didn't help. But all that practice did get me comfortable enough with the feeling of drowning that I was able to endure and pass that test. We had another brutal underwater evolution in second phase, a.k.a. dive phase. Again, it involved treading water, which always sounds basic as hell whenever I write it. But for this drill, we were fitted with fully charged, twin 80-liter tanks and a 16-pound weight belt. We had fins, 
but kicking with fins increased the pain quotient and stress on my ankles and shins. I couldn't tape up for the water. I had to suck up the pain. After that, we had to swim on our backs for 50 meters without sinking, then flip over and swim 50 meters on our stomach, once again staying on the surface, all while being fully loaded. We weren't allowed to use any flotation devices whatsoever, and keeping our heads up caused intense pain in our necks, shoulders, hips, and lower backs. The noises coming out of the pool that day are something I'll never forget. Our desperate attempts to stay afloat and breathe conjured an audible mixture of terror, frustration, and exertion. We were gurgling, grunting, and gasping. I heard guttural screams and high-pitched squeals. Several guys sunk to the bottom, took off their weight belts, and slipped free of their tanks, letting them crash to the floor of the pool, then jetted to the surface. Only one man passed that evolution on the first try. We only got three chances to pass any given evolution, and it took me all three to pass that one. On my last attempt, I focused on long, fluid scissor kicks, again using my overworked hip flexors. I barely made it. By the time we got to third phase, the land warfare training module on San Clemente Island, my legs were healed up, and I knew I'd make it through to graduation. But just because it was the last lap doesn't mean it was easy. At the main buds compound on the Strand, you get lots of looky-loos coming through. Officers of all stripes stop in to watch training, which means there are people peering over the instructor's shoulders. On the island, it's just you and them. They are free to get nasty, and they show no mercy, which is exactly why I loved the island. One afternoon, we split into teams of two and three guys to build hide sites that blend in with the vegetation. We were coming down to the end by then, and everyone was in killer shape and unafraid. Guys were getting sloppy with their attention to detail, and the instructors were pissed off, so they called everyone down into a valley to give us a classic beatdown. There would be push-ups, sit-ups, flutter kicks, and eight-count bodybuilders galore. But first they told us to kneel down and dig holes with our hands, large enough to bury ourselves up to the neck for some unspecified length of time. I was smiling my ass off and digging deep when one of the instructors came up with a new, creative way to torture me. Goggins, get up. You like this shit too much. I laughed and kept digging, but he was serious. I said, get up, Goggins. You're getting way too much pleasure. I stood up, stepped to the side, and watched my classmates suffer for the next 30 minutes without me. From then on, the instructors stopped including me in their beatdowns. When the class was ordered to do push-ups, sit-ups, or get wet and sandy, they'd always exclude me. I took it as a point of pride that I'd finally broken the will of the entire Bud staff, but I also missed the beatdowns because I saw them as opportunities to callous my mind. Now, they were over for me. Considering that the grinder was center stage for a lot of Navy SEAL training, it makes sense that's where Bud's graduation is held. Families fly in. Fathers and brothers puff their chests out. Mothers, wives, and girlfriends are all done up and drop-dead gorgeous. Instead of pain and misery, it was all smiles on that patch of asphalt as the graduates of Class 235 mustered up in our dress whites beneath a huge American flag billowing in the sea breeze. To our right was the infamous bell that 130 of our classmates told in order to quit what is arguably the most challenging training in the military. Each of us was introduced and acknowledged individually. My mother had tears of joy in her eyes when my name was called. But strangely, I didn't feel much of anything except sadness. On the grinder and later at Mick P's, the SEAL pub of choice in downtown Coronado, my teammates beamed with pride as they gathered to take photos with their families. At the bar, music blared while everyone got drunk 
and raised hell like they just won something. And to be honest, that shit annoyed me because I was sorry to see buds go. When I first locked in on the seals, I was looking for an arena that would either destroy me completely or make me unbreakable. Buds provided that. It showed me what the human mind is capable of and how to harness it to take more pain than I'd ever felt before so I could learn to achieve things I never even knew were possible, like running on broken legs. After graduation, it would be up to me to continue to hunt impossible tasks, because though it was an accomplishment to become just the 36th African-American Buds graduate in Navy SEAL history, my quest to defy the odds had only just begun. My man, that is crazy. The running on broken legs. That's what I, obviously that's what we were referencing before, before the you know, when we were talking right before the Dobbs stuff. Right. Um, I mean, that is just unreal, man. When I heard that, I was just like, "Wow, I am such a pussy." <laughs> <laughs> well, see, what happened is um, my mentality started growing by leaps and bounds. Yeah. And you'll see in these next coming chapters how far my mind starts to go. Yeah. And that also starts to hurt me. Yeah. That also starts to hurt me coming up, man. I I start to, you know, start to dive into uh, parts of the mind that many people have never even explored, have never even done anything is even possible. And I was starting to tap into these different uh, spots that uh, I was like, my God, the mind is truly amazing. It reminds me of, do you remember that season Kobe played like with a bad wrist the entire season? Like he had a torn ligament in his wrist the whole season or something right, like that. You right. Remember that? Yep. Yeah. It reminds me of that, you know, like, cause at the time we all knew he was doing that, but like, it, I don't even f feel like that got as much play as it probably should have. Right. And you know, what's funny. Um, I hear about those things and I sometimes laugh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I know these people went through some serious stuff you know, but I'm literally going through the hardest training, you know, arguably in the world. Right, with no with no big health staff babying right. you after you know, a two-hour game. I don't game. have, like, ice baths and shit. <laughs> no. You know, I'm in the daggone cage putting duct tape on my daggone ankles and feet. And, and you know, it's just, it's excruciating. And I'm, and I'm hoping to get, you know, in the, in the Pacific Ocean because it was cold. So I was hoping to get in that water so my body would get frozen. So that would also help. With uh, it was actually numb. It actually numbed my feet. Fuck yeah! I mean, you're you're and you're still on a fucking a reserve salary. Exactly. You're not even getting the full seal salary. No man. So this is this ain't like Kobe Bryant <laughs> no. shit, man. This is like you know I'm I'm sitting here thinking, this man. This is caveman. Yeah, this is straight up barbaric. This is caveman. Savage, yeah. like next level animal shit. I mean, what's the difference in pay? Like, how much were you making, and how much were you hoping to get just by running on broken legs? So basically. Um, I was in E5, I believe, or E, no, I was in E4. So I was in E4, and I was probably bringing home, going through buds, about two, about $2,200 a, uh, um, a month. <laughs> and then if you got through buds, what was your payday? I was going to get, um, I was I was part of the STAR program, so I was going to go from E4 to E5, which jumped my pay up. I was going to get dive pay and jump pay and demo pay. So that was going to jack my pay up from about $2,200 a month to damn near $4,500, you know, double my pay. Which is great, but it's it's not Kobe Bryant game pay. No, 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 <laughs> not at all, man. And, you know, these, it, it was, uh, and a plus going through Buds, 
your your legs, that's almost a hundred percent of what you're doing. Yeah. So you know it was it was very different, and there was no you know really days off. Yeah, man. You know that's what I'm saying, man. When I when I hear your story, that's all I can think about is is who are the who are the people out there going through stuff you just can't even imagine. You know what I mean? And like that we and fighting for it. You know, it's just, it's actually life affirming to hear you all that you had to go through and you achieved and you got through it. It's like that's why that's why I'm motivated by your story, and I think a lot of people are because it it shows you that. It's possible to go through shit you can't even imagine. But what's funny is some of the hardest people on the planet Earth, you'll never hear about. No. So we idolize these sport figures. Yeah. You know, because they have a broken toenail or they have plantar fasciitis. You know, oh, my God. You know, like Peyton Manning, he has plantar fasciitis. I know a million ultra runners who every day run with plantar fasciitis. Right, right. So it's just how we, you know, we 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 idolize these people and just these old school knuckle draggers, these everyday men and women who are getting after it, who are hard as shit. And it's like, hey, whatever, man. Just get up and do something that sucks every day. They don't, you know, they don't care. No. Amazing. Well, let's let's uh do a couple behind the scenes on the seals that we didn't, you know, you know, we're gonna get into more seal stuff as you go. But, um, you know, with your deployments, but, uh, some of the guys that aren't in the deployments either that we want to highlight, uh, I think there was Drew Sheets and we wanted to give some backstory, um, as well to some other guys. So with Drew Sheets, Drew Sheets was in my third hell week and he was my Bill Brown. So Bill Brown was in my second hell week. Drew Sheets was in my third hell week and he was my pillar beside me. He was the guy that was like, look, so the front of the boat is extremely heavy. He was Bill Brown for your third hell week. Exactly. He was my Bill Brown for my third hell week. And he was the guy, I was number one guy. The uh, number one position on the boat is the front of the boat is heavy as shit. Number two is about the second heaviest spot, which is also the front of the boat. And basically, we we both got out of hell week. And it was like, what? It was, um, we, we got out Thursday morning and we were both on crutches. And we both have broken legs. But the thing with Drew Sheets is that Drew couldn't continue on. This was Drew's first class. Mm. This was my third class. So Drew actually got rolled back, I think, to class either 236 or 237. And Drew couldn't believe that I was going on because we both had the same amount. You know, we had a high number of breaks yeah. in our in our shins. And I was like, hey, I got I to gotta keep on going, dude. So that's Drew Sheets. We have Bill Brown from my second Hell Weekend. A great story about Bill Brown was in his first class, he was in dive phase, and Bill got beat a lot. Push-ups, sit-ups, stuff like that. You know, the the um, instructors just didn't like Bill Brown. Yeah. So there was one time that Bill got in trouble, or they didn't like him for whatever reason, and they made him do eight-count bodybuilders, and they forgot about him. And he was in the back, back by second phase, in a location where you could easily get, you know, forgotten about. <laughs> and Bill was back there for a few hours doing eight-count bodybuilders. And the class went to child. The class came back. The class did some stuff. And like, hey, do a muster. A muster's like, hey, you know, like, you know, basically like a, like a head count. Mm. So they, they did a muster, and they couldn't find Bill Brown. And the instructor remembered, oh, my God, I had him do eight-count bodybuilders. So he was expecting to see Bill Brown just kind of sitting back there chilling out. He went back there hours later, and Freak Brown is still busting out eight-count bodybuilders, man, hours later. Hmm. Nobody watching them, totally accountable. 
So that was a great story about Bill Brown. And you know about Kenny Bigby, man. So we we interviewed all these guys, and you can share some stories about Kenny Bigby, and I have some also. Yeah, I think the story that I that I like the best is so Kenny Bigby. Um, he was a competitive martial artist. His dad had a dojo, um, also in Indianapolis, correct? Yeah, we both actually. I went to North Central for about us probably about a half the year, maybe a little bit less. Kenny Bigby went to North Central two years after I did. And he's like worshiping Bruce Lee and all that. And he was a great martial artist. And then he ends up, um, also was a great dancer. I mean, he was just a great athlete. And uh, he, well, the story I remember him telling us was that he basically had a, maybe 100 or 200 bucks to his name and he got in a van with a bunch of guys <laughs> yep. and they came out to California to try to make it in, you know, music videos and in Hollywood doing the dancing thing. And he was getting by, he was literally homeless in uh, in LA, getting by by doing dance shows on the Venice boardwalk. Um, you know, those guys that do the kind of flip shows and the hip hop break dancing shows. And he was living that way. And he ended up making, you know, getting some money together, getting some jobs and getting a place. But I just found it so fascinating that he was out there for the better part of a year and then ends up joining up in the Navy. Um, I just found it fascinating. Like, you just never, that's another one. You just never know who you're interacting with, who you're seeing, and, and the capacity that these guys have. And I just love Kenny's story about that. And he's just fucking hilarious. Oh, man, Kenny, is a, he was a funny dude. I mean, he is a funny guy. And there was one time going through Bud's, I think it was, uh, yeah, it was in my second Hell Week, I mean, it was like freezing outside, and the instructor's like, "Hey, Kenny, do a do a." It was like the uh, what's it called the uh, the um, backspin. Mm. Hey, do the backspin. So this this guy is on the sand, in the beach doing the backspin break dancing. It was hilarious, <laughs> man. I mean, he's he, I mean, he's busted out electric boogaloo type shit. I mean. It's amazing, and and I loved him telling the story about uh, David Goggins is back on the lawn. I mean, I wish we could have bottled that for this, man. It was great, man. Yeah, yeah I should have brought Kenny in here, man. Put him on the mic because he tells it better than anybody, man. No, no one can tell that story. No, like him. not like Kenny, and he has that crazy voice. Yeah, he does all the voices. <laughs> so shout out, Big B. Yes, sir. All right, cool. So. Um, now we're getting ready to get into chapter six, and we're going to switch gears. I mean, it's still the seals are always still in it, and you, you'll be in it all the way through. But, but now we switch gears a little bit. Now we can't forget about the challenge five here for these folks. Oh, sorry about that. All good. Challenge five. It's time to visualize. Again, the average person thinks two thousand to three thousand thoughts per hour. Rather than focusing on bullshit you cannot change. Imagine visualizing the things you can. Choose any obstacle in your way or set a new goal and visualize overcoming or achieving it. Before I engage in any challenging activity, I start by painting a picture of what my success looks and feels like. I'll think about it every day, and that feeling propels me forward when I'm training, competing, or taking on any task I choose. But visualization isn't simply about daydreaming of some trophy ceremony, real or metaphorical. You must also visualize the challenges that are likely to arise and determine how you will attack those problems when they do. That way you can be as prepared as possible on the journey. When I show up for a foot race now, I drive the entire course first, visualizing success but also potential challenges, which helps me control my thought process. You can't prepare for everything, but if you engage in strategic visualization ahead of time, you'll be as prepared as you possibly can be. 
That also means being prepared to answer the simple questions. Why are you doing this? What is driving you toward this achievement? Where does the darkness you're using as fuel come from? What has calloused your mind? You'll need to have those answers at your fingertips when you hit a wall of pain and doubt. To push through, you'll need to channel your darkness, feed off it, and lean on your calloused mind. Remember, visualization will never compensate for work undone. You cannot visualize lies. All the strategies I employ to answer the simple questions and win the mind game are only effective because I put in work. It's a lot more than mind over matter. It takes relentless self-discipline to schedule suffering into your day, every day. But if you do, you'll find that at the other end of that suffering is a whole other life just waiting for you. This challenge doesn't have to be physical. And victory doesn't always mean you came in first place. It can mean you finally overcome a lifelong fear or any other obstacle that made you surrender in the past. Whatever it is, tell the world your story about how you created your hashtag armored mind and where it's taken you. I always find this interesting because I mentioned it before, but like I've been, I mean, I've been in these circuit training and in circuit training, they like to push you. You want to get into the red for periods and get back into the orange and get into the red in you know, heart rate zones. And um, I'm able to do it because I visualize you. But when I'm on running by myself and I'm in pain, it's so hard to actually think of the simple answers to the questions. <laughs> it's actually really hard to do it because to take that extra energy that it takes to think intellectual thoughts and that kind of problem solving, right. it's super hard. Like, And so what's a good shortcut to making the, make sure those answers, I mean, do you have to like really focus on them before you start the run or how do you make sure they're at the forefront of your mind? Cause it's, it's more complex than just oh, remembering them. It's, 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 it's huge. So one thing I started doing is I started realizing that when you're trying to go back through all these different tools that you have, your mind starts to become kind of spastic. Like you said, we, you know, like, um, for instance, you were running, some you know like like your brain gets out of control starts losing control of what's yeah. going on yeah you have to learn it's called the one second decision and it's something that i have taken on board it's something that i invented for myself because i would spaz out and like for instance in navy seal training when they put your ass in that cold water after the first hour of breakout they put you in there and that first wave of you know wave from the ocean goes over your head and you're frozen and you start to spaz out. So all that visualization, all that self-talk, all those nice tools that we have, they're out the door. You have to kind of calm your mind down that one second versus panicking and spazzing out. Take time to literally be patient. Calm down and get trained. Just, just like regain your, your thought process. How do you do that when you're in the midst of a run, like you're running in the red You heart have rate to zone. almost, you have to slow your heart rate down. Okay. So when you're going fast, Going too fast actually kind of makes you even more spazzed out. Okay. So you have to slow down your tempo, and it's slowing down your tempo, it relaxes your mind. So it's okay to slow down the tempo because then if you can start to start to control your mind, then when you speed back up, you'll be in better control. Exactly. So when the heart rate goes up, everything starts to speed up. You have to try to slow your heart rate down in that moment whether it's slowing down running or even slowing down your thought process. If you have a really fast thought process, that will speed your heart rate up because it makes your adrenaline flow through your body. So you got to try to calm all that down in that one second 
when your mind's going fast, your body's going fast, your heart rate's up high, calm it down and try to calm down your thoughts and think logically versus in that panic mode. Gotcha. And I love how you describe visualization because a lot of people think athletes or anyone who employs visualization like this, strategic visualization, usually it's focused on just the game itself and visualizing success afterwards. It, no one really talks about the steps like you do here, visualizing each step of the process and all the problems. So it's not just visualizing success and, and projecting some success you're trying to manifest. It's actually visualizing the actual problems, doing research on the problems so that you can then be prepared for them. That's right. So you'll hear here pretty soon about me doing these different races. And without visualizing the issues that are going to come up, there's going to be issues. Like whenever you run as far as I run or, you know, whatever I do, there's going to be issues that come up. So you have to visualize, okay, at about mile 24, 25, 35, 45, this and this and this, you know, this might happen. Mm. And if you don't account for the might happen, when it does happen, you're not going to know what to do. Chapter 6. It's not about a trophy. Everything about the race was going better than I could have hoped. There were enough clouds in the sky to blunt the heat of the sun. My rhythm was as steady as the mellow tide that sloshed against the hulls of sailboats docked in the nearby San Diego marina. And though my legs felt heavy, that was to be expected, considering my tapering plan the night before. Besides, they seemed to be loosening up as I rounded a bend to complete my ninth lap, my ninth mile just an hour and change into a 24-hour race. That's when I saw John Metz, race director of the San Diego One Day, eyeballing me at the start-finish line. He was holding up his whiteboard to inform each competitor of their time and position in the overall field. I was in fifth place, which evidently confused him. I offered a crisp nod to reassure him that I knew what I was doing, that I was right where I was supposed to be. He saw through that shit. Metz was a veteran, always polite and soft-spoken. It didn't look like there was much that could phase him, but he was also a seasoned ultramarathoner, with three 50-mile races in his saddlebag. He'd either reached or topped 100 miles seven times, and he'd achieved his personal best of 144 miles in 24 hours when he was 50 years old, which is why it meant something to me that he looked concerned. I checked my watch, synced to a heart rate monitor I wore around my chest. My pulse straddled my magic number line, 145. A few days earlier, I'd run into my old BUDS instructor, SBG, at Naval Special Warfare Command. Most SEALs do rotations as instructors between deployments, and SBG and I worked together. When I told him about the San Diego one day, he insisted I wear a heart rate monitor to pace myself. SBG was a big geek when it came to performance and recovery, and I watched as he scratched out a few formulas, then turned to me and said, keep your pulse steady between 140 and 145, and you'll be golden. The next day he handed me a heart rate monitor as a race day gift. If you set out to mark a course that could crack open a Navy SEAL like a walnut, chew him up and spit him the fuck out, San Diego's hospitality point would not make the cut. We're talking about terrain so vanilla, it's downright serene. Tourists descend year-round for views of San Diego's stunning marina, which spills into Mission Bay. The road is almost entirely smooth asphalt and perfectly flat, 
save a brief seven-foot incline with the pitch of a standard suburban driveway. There are manicured lawns, palm trees, and shade trees. Hospitality Point is so inviting that disabled and convalescing folks head there with their walkers for an afternoon's rehab stroll all the time. But the day after John Metz chalked his easy one-mile course, it became the scene of my total destruction. I should have known that a breakdown was coming. By the time I started running at 10 a.m. on November 12, 2005, I hadn't run more than a mile in six months. But I looked like I was fit, because I'd never stopped hitting the gym. While I was stationed in Iraq on my second deployment with SEAL Team 5 earlier that year, I'd gotten back into serious powerlifting, and my only dose of cardio was 20 minutes on the elliptical once a week. The point is, my cardiovascular fitness was an absolute joke. And still I thought it was a brilliant idea to try and run 100 miles in 24 hours. Okay, it was always a fucked up idea, but I considered it doable because 100 miles in 24 hours demands a pace of just under 15 minutes a mile. If it came to it, I figured I could walk that fast. Only, I didn't walk. When that horn sounded at the start of the race, I took off hot and zoomed to the front of the pack. Exactly the right move if your race day goal is to blow the fuck up. Also, I didn't exactly come in well-rested. The night before the race, I passed by the SEAL Team 5 gym on my way off base after work and peeked in like I always did, just to see who was getting after it. SBG was inside warming up and called out, Goggins, he said. Let's jack some fucking steel. I laughed. He stared me down. You know Goggins, he said, stepping closer. When the Vikings were getting ready to raid a fucking village and they were camped out in the fucking woods in their goddamn tents made out of fucking deer hides and shit, sitting around a campfire. Do you think they said, hey, let's have some herbal fucking tea and call it an early night? Or were they more like, fuck that. We were going to drink some vodka made out of some mushrooms and get all drunked up, so the next morning when they were all hungover and pissed off, they would be in the ideal mood to slaughter the shit out of some people. SBG could be a funny motherfucker when he wanted to be, and he could see me wavering, considering my options. On the one hand, that man would always be my buds instructor, and he was one of the few instructors who was still hard, putting out, and living the SEAL ethos every day. I'll always want to impress him. Jacking weights the night before my first 100-mile race would definitely impress that masochistic motherfucker. Plus, his logic made some fucked-up sense to me. I needed to get my mind ready to go to war, and lifting heavy would be my way of saying, bring on all your pain and misery. I'm ready to go. But honestly... Who does that before running a hundred fucking miles? I shook my head in disbelief, threw my bag to the ground, and started racking weights. With heavy metal blaring from the speakers, two knuckle-draggers came together to put the fuck out. Most of our work focused on the legs, including long sets of squats and deadlifts at 315 pounds. In between, we bench-pressed 225. This was a real-deal powerlifting session, and afterwards we sat on that bench next to one another and watched our quads and hamstrings quiver. It was fucking funny, until it wasn't. Ultra running has gone at least somewhat mainstream since then, but in 2005, most ultra races, especially the San Diego One Day, were pretty obscure, and it was all new to me. When the majority of people think of ultras, they picture trail runs through remote wilderness, and don't often imagine circuit races. But there were some serious runners in the field at the San Diego One Day. This was the American National 24-Hour Championship, and athletes descended from all over the country hoping for a trophy, a place on the podium, 
and the modest winner-take-all cash prize of $2,000. No, this was not a gilded event, basking in corporate sponsorship, but it was the site for a team comp between the U.S. ultra-distance national team and a team from Japan. Each side fielded teams of four men and four women, who each ran for 24 hours. One of the top individual athletes in the field was also from Japan. Her name was Miss Inagaki, and early on she and I kept pace. SPG turned up to cheer me on that morning with his wife and two-year-old son. They huddled up on the sidelines with my new wife, Kate, who I'd married a few months before, but a little over two years after my second divorce from Pam was finalized. When they saw me, they couldn't help but double over in laughter. Not just because SBG was still beat up from our workout the night before, and here I was trying to run 100 miles, but because of how out of place I looked. When I spoke to SBG about it not long ago, the scene still made him laugh. So, ultramarathoners are a little weird, right? SBG said. And that morning it was like there were all these skinny-ass college professor-looking fucking granola-eating weirdos, and then there is this one big black dude who looks like a fucking linebacker from the Raiders, running around this track, jacked the fuck up, with no shirt on, and I'm thinking of that song we had in kindergarten. One of these things is not like the other. That is a song going through my head when I saw this fucking NFL linebacker running around this damn track with all these skinny little nerds. I mean, they were some hard motherfuckers, those runners. I am not taking that away from them. But they were all super clinical about nutrition and shit. And you just put a pair of shoes on and said, let's go. He's not wrong. I didn't put much thought into my race plan at all. I hatched it at Walmart the night before, where I bought a fold-out lawn chair for Kate and me to use during the race and my fuel for the entire day. One box of Ritz crackers and two four-packs of Myoplex. I didn't drink much water. I didn't even consider my electrolyte or potassium levels or eat any fresh fruit. SBG brought me a pack of Hostess chocolate donuts when he showed up, and I gobbled those in a few seconds. I mean, I was winging it for real. Yet, at mile 15, I was still in fifth place, still keeping pace with Miss Inagaki, while Metz was getting more and more nervous. He ran up to me and tagged along. You should slow down, David, he said. Pace yourself a bit more. I shrugged. I got this. It's true that I felt okay in that moment, but my bravado was also a defense mechanism. I knew if I were to start planning my race at that point, the bigness of it would become too much to comprehend. It would feel like I was supposed to run the length of the damn sky. It would feel impossible. In my mind, strategy was the enemy of the moment, which is where I needed to be. Translation, when it came to ultras, I was green as fuck. Metz didn't press me, but he kept a close watch. I finished mile 25 at about the four-hour mark, and I was still in fifth place, still running with my new Japanese friend. SBG was long gone, and Kate was my only support crew. I'd see her every mile, posted up in that lawn chair, offering a sip of myoplex and an encouraging smile. I'd run a marathon only once before, while I was stationed in Guam. It was unofficial, and I ran it with a fellow seal on a course we made up on the spot. But back then I was in excellent cardiovascular shape. Now, here I was bearing down on 26.2 miles for just the second time in my entire life, this time without training. And once I got there, I realized that I'd run beyond known territory. I had 20 more hours and nearly three more marathons to go. Those were incomprehensible metrics with no traditional milestone in between to focus on. I was running across the sky. 
That's when I started thinking that this could end badly. Metz didn't stop trying to help. Each mile, he'd run alongside and check on me. And me being who I am, I told him that I had everything under control and had it all figured out, which was true. I figured out that John Metz knew what the fuck he was talking about. Oh yes, the pain was becoming real. My quads throbbed, my feet were chafed and bleeding, and that simple question was once again bubbling up in my frontal lobe. Why? Why run a hundred fucking miles without training? Why was I doing this to myself? Fair questions, especially since I hadn't even heard of the San Diego one day until three days before race day. But this time my answer was different. I wasn't on Hospitality Point to deal with my own demons or to prove anything at all. I came with a purpose bigger than David Goggins. This fight was about my once and future fallen teammates and the families they leave behind when shit goes wrong. Or at least that's what I told myself at mile 27. I had gotten the news about Operation Red Wings, a doomed operation in the remote mountains of Afghanistan, on my last day of U.S. Army Freefall School in Yuma, Arizona, in June. Operation Red Wings was a four-man reconnaissance mission tasked with gathering intelligence on a growing pro-Taliban force in a region called Satalosar. If successful, what they learned would help define strategy for a larger offensive in the coming weeks. I knew all four guys. Danny Dietz was in Bud's Class 231 with me. He got injured and rolled just like I did. Michael Murphy, the OIC of the mission, was with me in Class 235 before he got rolled. Matthew Axelson was in my Huya class when I graduated. More on the Huya class tradition in a moment. And Marcus Luttrell was one of the first people I met on my original lap through BUDS. Before training begins, each incoming BUDS class throws a party. And the guys from previous classes, who are still in BUDS training, are always invited. The idea is to juice as much information from brown shirts as possible, because you never know what might help get you through a crucial evolution that could make all the difference between graduation and failure. Marcus was six foot four, 225 pounds, and he stuck out in that crowd like I did. I was a bigger guy too, back up to 210 by then, and he sought me out. In some ways, we were an odd pair. He was a hard-ass axe handle from the Texas rangeland, and I was a self-made masochist from the Indiana cornfields. But he'd heard I was a good runner, and running was his main weakness. Goggins, do you have any tips for me, he asked, because I can't run for shit. I knew Marcus was a badass, but his humility made him real. When he graduated a few days later, we were his Huya class, which meant we were the first people they were allowed to order around. They embraced that SEAL tradition and told us to go get wet and sandy. It was a SEAL's rite of passage and an honor to share that with him. After that, I didn't see him for a long time. I thought I ran into him again when I was about to graduate with class 235, but it was his twin brother, Morgan Luttrell, who was part of my Huya class, class 237, along with Matthew Axelson. We could have ordered up some poetic justice, but after we graduated, instead of telling their class to go get wet and sandy, we put ourselves in the surf, in our dress whites. I had something to do with that. In the Navy SEALs, you're either deployed and operating in the field, instructing other SEALs, or in school yourself, learning or perfecting skills. We cycle through more military schools than most because we are trained to do it all. But when I went through BUDS, we didn't learn to free fall. We jumped by static lines, which deployed our chutes automatically. 
Back then, you had to be chosen to attend U.S. Army Freefall School. After my second platoon, I was picked up for Green Team, which is one of the training phases to get accepted into the Navy Special Warfare Development Group, DEVGRU, an elite unit within the SEALs. That required me to get Freefall qualified. It also required that I face my fear of heights in the most confrontational way possible. We started off in the classrooms and wind tunnels of Fort Bragg, North Carolina, which is where I reconnected with Morgan in 2005. Floating on a bed of compressed air in a 15-foot-high wind tunnel, we learned correct body position, how to shift left and right, and push forward and back. It takes very small movements with your palm to move, and it's easy to start spinning out of control, which is never good. Not everyone could master those subtleties, but those of us who could left Fort Bragg after that first week of training and headed to an airstrip in the cactus fields of Yuma to start jumping for real. Morgan and I trained and hung out together for four weeks in the 127-degree desert heat of summer. We did dozens of jumps out of C-130 transport jets from altitudes ranging from 12,500 to 19,000 feet. And there is no rush like the surge of adrenaline and paranoia that comes with plummeting to Earth from high altitude at terminal velocity. Each time we jumped, I couldn't help but think of Scott Guerin, the pararescue man who survived a botched jump from high altitude, and inspired me on this path when I met him as a high school student. He was a constant presence for me in that desert, and a cautionary tale, proof that something can go horribly wrong on any given jump. When I jumped out of an airplane for the first time from high altitude, all I felt was extreme fear, and I couldn't pry my eyes from my altimeter. I wasn't able to embrace the jump because fear had clogged my mind. All I could think about was whether or not my canopy would open. I was missing the unbelievable thrill ride of the free fall, the beauty of the mountains painted against the horizon, and the wide open sky. But as I became conditioned to the risk, my tolerance for that same fear increased. It was always there, but I was used to the discomfort, and before long I was able to handle multiple tasks on a jump and appreciate the moment too. Seven years earlier, I had been rooting around fast food kitchens and open dumpsters zapping vermin. Now I was fucking flying. The final task in Yuma was a midnight jump in full kit. We were weighed down with a 50-pound rucksack, strapped with a rifle and an oxygen mask for the freefall. We were also equipped with chem lights, which were a necessity because when the back ramp of the C-130 opened up, it was pitch black. We couldn't see any damn thing, but still we leapt into that moonless sky, eight of us in a line, one after another. We were supposed to form an arrow, and as I maneuvered through the real-world wind tunnel to take my place in the grand design, all I could see were swerving lights streaking like comets in an inkwell sky. My goggles fogged up as the wind ripped through me. We fell for a full minute, and when we deployed our chutes at around 4,000 feet, the overpowering sound went from full tornado to eerie silence. It was so quiet I could hear my heart beat through my chest. It was fucking bliss. And when we all landed safely, we were free fall qualified. We had no idea that at that moment, in the mountains of Afghanistan, Marcus and his team were locked into an all-out battle for their lives, at the center of what would become the worst incident in SEAL history. One of the best things about Yuma is that you have horrible cell service. I'm not big on texting or talking on the phone, so this gave me four weeks of peace. When you graduate any military school, 
the last thing you do is clean all the areas your class used until it's like you were never there. My cleaning detail was in charge of the bathrooms, which happened to be one of the only places in Yuma that has cell service. And as soon as I walked in, I could hear my phone blow up. Text messages about Operation Red Wings going bad flooded in. And as I read them, my soul broke. Morgan hadn't heard anything about it yet, so I walked outside, found him, and told him the news. I had to. Marcus and his crew were all MIA and presumed KIA. He nodded, considered it for a second, and said, My brother's not dead. Morgan is one minute older than Marcus. They were inseparable as kids, and the first time they'd ever been apart for longer than a day was when Marcus joined the Navy. Morgan opted for college before joining up, and during Marcus's hell week, he tried to stay up the whole time in solidarity. He wanted and needed to share that feeling, but there is no such thing as a hell week simulation. You have to go through it to know it, and those that survive are forever changed. In fact, the period after Marcus survived hell week and before Morgan became a SEAL himself was the only time there was any emotional distance between the brothers, which speaks to the power of those 130 hours and their emotional toll. Once Morgan went through it for real, everything was right again. They each have half a trident tattooed on their back. The picture is only complete when they stand side by side. Morgan took off immediately to drive to San Diego and figure out what the hell was going on. He still hadn't heard anything about the operation directly, but once he reached civilization and his service hit, a tide of messages flooded his phone too. He floored his rental car to 120 miles per hour and zoomed directly to the base in Coronado. Morgan knew all the guys in his brother's unit well. Axelson was his classmate and buds, and as facts trickled in, it was obvious to most that his brother wouldn't be found alive. I thought he was gone too, but you know what they say about twins. I knew my brother was out there alive, Morgan told me when we connected again in April 2018. I said that the whole time. I'd called Morgan to talk about old times and asked him about the hardest week in his life. From San Diego, he flew out to his family's ranch in Huntsville, Texas, where they were getting updates twice a day. Dozens of fellow SEALs turned up to show support, Morgan said, and for five long days, he and his family cried themselves to sleep at night. To them, it was torture knowing that Marcus might be alive and alone in hostile territory. When officials from the Pentagon arrived, Morgan made himself clear as cut glass. Marcus may be hurt and fucked up, but he's alive, and either you go out there and find him, or I will. Operation Red Wings went horribly wrong because there were many more pro-Taliban hajis active in those mountains than had been expected. And once Marcus and his team were discovered by villagers there, it was four guys against a well-armed militia of somewhere between 30 and 200 men. Reports on the size of the pro-Taliban force vary. Our guys took RPG and machine gun fire and fought hard. Four SEALs can put on a hell of a show. Each one of us can usually do as much damage as five regular troops, and they made their presence felt. The battle played out along a ridgeline, above 9,000 feet in elevation, where they had communication troubles. When they finally broke through and the situation was made plain to their commanding officer back at Special Operations Headquarters, a quick reaction force of Navy SEALs, Marines, and aviators from 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment was assembled, but they were delayed for hours because of lack of transport capacity. One thing about the SEAL teams is we don't have our own transport. In Afghanistan, we hitch rides with the Army, and that delayed relief. 
They eventually loaded up into two Chinook transport choppers and four attack helicopters, two Blackhawks and two Apaches, and took off for Satalo Sar. The Chinooks took the lead, and as they closed in on the ridge, they were hit by small arms fire. Despite the onslaught, the first Chinook hovered, attempting to unload eight Navy SEALs on a mountaintop, but they made a fat target, lingered too long, and were hit with a rocket-propelled grenade. The bird spun, crashed into the mountain, and exploded. Everyone aboard was killed. The remaining choppers bailed out, and by the time they could return with ground assets, everyone who was left behind, including Marcus's three teammates at Operation Red Wings, was found dead. Everyone, that is, except for Marcus. Marcus was hit multiple times by enemy fire and went missing for five days. He was saved by Afghan villagers who nursed and sheltered him and was finally found alive by U.S. troops on July 3, 2005, when he became the lone survivor of a mission that took the lives of 19 Special Operations warriors, including 11 Navy SEALs. No doubt you've heard this story before. Marcus wrote a best-selling book about it, Lone Survivor, which became a hit movie starring Mark Wahlberg. But in 2005, that was all years away, and in the aftermath of the worst battlefield loss ever to hit the SEALs, I was looking for a way to contribute to the families of the men who were killed. It's not like bills stop rolling in after a tragedy like that. There were wives and kids out there with basic needs to fulfill, and eventually they'd need their college educations covered too. I wanted to help in any way I could. A few weeks before all of this, I'd spent an evening Googling around for the world's toughest foot races and landed on a race called Badwater 135. I'd never even heard of ultramarathons before, and Badwater was an ultramarathoner's ultramarathon. It started below sea level in Death Valley and finished at the end of the road at Mount Whitney Portal, a trailhead located at 8,374 feet. Oh, and the race takes place in late July, when Death Valley isn't just the lowest place on Earth, it's also the hottest. Seeing images from that race materialize on my monitor terrified and thrilled me. The terrain looked all kinds of harsh, and the expressions on tortured runners' faces reminded me of the kind of thing I saw in Hell Week. Until then, I'd always considered the marathon to be the pinnacle of endurance racing, and now I was seeing there were several levels beyond it. I filed the information away and figured I'd come back to it someday. Then Operation Red Wings happened, and I vowed to run Badwater 135 to raise money for the Special Operations Warrior Foundation, a nonprofit founded as a battlefield promise in 1980 when eight Special Operations Warriors died in a helicopter crash during the famous hostage rescue operation in Iran and left 17 children behind. The surviving servicemen promised to make sure each one of those kids had the money to go to college. Their work continues. Within 30 days of a fatality, like those that occurred during Operation Red Wings, the Foundation's hardworking staff reach out to surviving family members. We are the interfering aunt, said Executive Director Edie Rosenthal. We become a part of our students' lives. They pay for preschool and private tutoring during grade school. They arrange college visits and host peer support groups. They help with applications, buy books, laptop computers, and printers, and cover tuition at whichever school one of their students manages to gain acceptance, not to mention room and board. They also send students to vocational schools. It's all up to the kids. As I write this, the Foundation has 1,280 kids in their program. They are an amazing organization, and with them in mind, I called Chris Kosman, 
race director of Badwater 135, at 7 a.m. in mid-November 2005. I tried to introduce myself, but he cut me off sharp. Do you know what time it is, he snapped. I took the phone away from my ear and stared at it for a second. In those days, by 7 a.m. on a typical weekday, I'd have already rocked a two-hour gym workout and was ready for a day's work. This dude was half asleep. Roger that, I said. I'll call you back at 0900. My second call didn't go much better, but at least he knew who I was. SBG and I had already discussed Badwater, and he emailed Costman a letter of recommendation. SBG has raced triathlons, captained a team through the Eco Challenge, and watched several Olympic qualifiers attempt buds. In his email to Costman, he wrote that I was the best endurance athlete with the greatest mental toughness he'd ever seen. To put me, a kid who came from nothing, at the top of his list meant the world to me, and still does. It didn't mean shit to Chris Costman. He was the definition of unimpressed. The kind of unimpressed that can only come from real-world experience. When he was 20 years old, he'd competed in the Race Across America bicycle race. And before taking over as Badwater Race Director, he'd run three 100-mile races in winter in Alaska and completed a triple Ironman triathlon, which ends with a 78-mile run. Along the way, he'd seen dozens of supposedly great athletes crumble beneath the anvil of ultra. Weekend warriors sign up for and complete marathons after a few months training all the time. But the gap between marathon running and becoming an ultra-athlete is much wider, and Badwater was the absolute apex of the ultra-universe. In 2005, there were approximately 22 100-mile races held in the United States, and none had the combination of the elevation gain and unforgiving heat that Badwater 135 brought to the table. Just to put on the race, Kosman had to wrangle permissions and assistance from five government agencies, including the National Forest Service, the National Park Service, and the California Highway Patrol. And he knew that if he allowed some greenhorn into the most difficult race ever conceived in the middle of summer, that motherfucker might die, and his race would vaporize overnight. No, if he was going to let me compete in Badwater, I was going to have to earn it because earning my way in would provide him at least some comfort that I probably wouldn't collapse into a steaming pile of roadkill somewhere between Death Valley and Mount Whitney. In his email, SBG attempted to make a case that because I was busy working as a SEAL, the prerequisites required to compete at Badwater, the completion of at least one 100-mile race or one 24-hour race while covering at least 100 miles should be waived. If I was allowed in, SBG guaranteed him that I'd finish in the top 10. Kosman wasn't having any of it. He'd had accomplished athletes beg him to waive his standards over the years, including a champion marathoner and a champion sumo wrestler. <laughs> yeah, no shit. And he'd never budged. One thing about me is I'm the same with everyone, Kosman said when I called him back. We have certain standards for getting into our race, and that's the way it is. But hey, there's this 24-hour race in San Diego coming up this weekend he continued, his voice dripping with sarcasm. Go run 100 miles and get back to me. Chris Kosman had made me. I was as unprepared as he suspected. The fact that I wanted to run Badwater was no lie, and I planned to train for it. But to even have a chance to do that, I'd have to run 100 miles at the drop of a damn hat. If I chose not to, after all that Navy SEAL bluster, what would that prove? that I was just another pretender ringing his bell way too early on a Wednesday morning, which is how and why I wound up running the San Diego one day with three days' notice. After surpassing the 50-mile mark, 
I could no longer keep up with Miss Inagaki, who bounded ahead like a damn rabbit. I soldiered on in a fugue state. Pain washed through me in waves. My thighs felt like they were loaded with lead. The heavier they got, the more twisted my stride became. I torqued my hips to keep my legs moving and fought gravity to lift my feet a mere millimeter from the earth. Ah, yes, my feet. My bones were becoming more brittle by the second, and my toes had banged the tips of my shoes for nearly ten hours. Still, I fucking ran. Not fast, not with much style, but I kept going. My shins were the next domino to fall. Each subtle rotation of the ankle joint felt like shock therapy, like venom flowing through the marrow of my tibia. It brought back memories of my duct tape days from class 235, but I didn't bring any tape with me this time. Besides, if I stopped for even a few seconds, starting up again would be near impossible. A few miles later, my lungs seized and my chest rattled as I hocked up knots of brown mucus. It got cold. I became short of breath. Fog gathered around the halogen streetlights, ringing the lamps with electric rainbows, which lent the whole event an otherworldly feel. Or maybe it was just me in that other world, one in which pain was the mother tongue, a language synced to memory. With every lung-scraping cough, I flashed to my first buds class. I was back on the motherfucking log, staggering ahead, my lungs bleeding. I could feel and see it happening all over again. Was I asleep? Was I dreaming? I opened my eyes wide, pulled my ears, and slapped my face to wake up. I felt my lips and chin for fresh blood, and found a translucent slick of saliva, sweat, and mucus dribbling from my nose. SPG's hard-ass nerds were all around me now, running in circles, pointing, mocking the only, the only black man in the mix. Or were they? I took another look. Everyone who passed me was focused, each in their own pain zone. They didn't even see me. I was losing touch with reality in small doses because my mind was folding over on itself, loading tremendous physical pain with dark emotional garbage it had dredged up from the depths of my soul. Translation, I was suffering on an unholy level reserved for dumb fucks who thought the laws of physics and physiology did not apply to them. Cocky bastards like me, who felt like they could push the limits safely because they'd done a couple of hell weeks. Right, well, I hadn't done this. I hadn't run 100 miles with zero training. Had anybody in the history of mankind even attempted something so fucking foolish? Could this even be done at all? Iterations of that one simple question slid by like a digital ticker on my brain screen. Bloody thought bubbles floated from my skin and soul. Why? Why? Why the fuck are you still doing this to yourself? I hit the incline at mile 69, that seven-foot ramp, the pitch of a shallow driveway, which would make any seasoned trail runner laugh out loud. It buckled my knees and sent me reeling backward, like a delivery truck in neutral. I staggered, reached for the ground with the tips of my fingers, and nearly capsized. It took ten seconds to cover the distance. Each one dragged out like an elastic thread, sending shockwaves of pain from my toes to the space behind my eyeballs. I hacked and coughed. My gut twisted. Collapse was imminent. Collapse is what the fuck I deserved. At the 70-mile mark, I couldn't take another step forward. Kate had set up our lawn chair on the grass near the start-finish line, and when I teetered toward her, I saw her in triplicate, six hands groping toward me, guiding me into that folding chair. I was dizzy and dehydrated, starved of potassium and sodium. 
Kate was a nurse. I had EMT training and went through my own mental checklist. I knew my blood pressure was probably dangerously low. She removed my shoes. My foot pain was no Sean Dobbs illusion. My white tube socks were caked in blood from cracked toenails and broken blisters. I asked Kate to grab some Motrin and anything she thought might be helpful from John Metz. And when she was gone, my body continued to decline. My stomach rumbled, and when I looked down, I saw bloody piss leak down my leg. I shit myself, too. Liquefied diarrhea rose in the space between my ass and a lawn chair that would never be quite the same again. Worse, I had to hide it, because I knew if Kate saw how bad off I really was, she would beg me to pull out of the race. I had run 70 miles in 12 hours with no training, and this was my reward. To my left, on the lawn, was another four-pack of Myoplex. Only a muscle head like me would choose that thick-ass protein drink as my hydrating agent of choice. Next to it was half a box of Ritz crackers, the other half now congealing and churning in my stomach and intestinal tract like an orange blob. I sat there with my head in my hands for 20 minutes. Runners shuffled, glided, or staggered past me as I felt time tick down on my hastily imagined, ill-conceived dream. Kate returned, knelt down, and helped me lace back up. She didn't know the extent of my breakdown and hadn't quit on me yet. That was something, at least. And in her hands were a welcome reprieve from more Myoplex and more Ritz crackers. She handed me Motrin, then some cookies and two peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, which I washed down with Gatorade. Then she helped me stand. The world wobbled on its axis. Again she split into two, then three, but she held me there as my world stabilized and I took a single solitary step. Cue the ungodly pain. I didn't know it yet, but my feet were slivered with stress fractures. The toll of hubris is heavy on the ultra circuit, and my bill had come due. I took another step, and another. I winced. My eyes watered. Another step. She let go. I walked on. Slowly. Way too fucking slow. When I stopped at the 70-mile mark, I was well ahead of the pace I needed to run 100 miles in 24 hours. But now I was walking at a 20-minute-a-mile clip which was as fast as I could possibly move. Miss Inagaki breezed by me and glanced over. There was pain in her eyes, too, but she still looked the part of an athlete. I was a motherfucking zombie, giving away all the precious time I stored up, watching my margin for error burn to ash. Why? Again the same boring question. Why? Four hours later, at nearly 2 a.m., I hit the 81-mile mark, and Kate broke some news. I don't believe you're going to make the time at this pace, she said, walking with me, encouraging me to drink more Myoplex. She didn't cushion the blow. She was matter-of-fact about it. I stared over at her, mucus and Myoplex dripping down my chin, all the life drained from my eyes. For four hours, each agonizing step had demanded maximum focus and effort, but it wasn't enough. And unless I could find more, my philanthropic dream was dead. I choked and coughed, took another sip. Roger that, I said softly. I knew that she was right. My pace continued to slow and was only getting worse. That's when I finally realized that this fight wasn't about Operation Red Wings or the families of the fallen. It was to a point, but none of that would help me run 19 more miles before 10 a.m. No. This run, Badwater, my entire desire to push myself to the brink of destruction, was about me. It was about how much I was willing to suffer, how much more I could take, and how much I had to give. If I was going to make it, this shit would have to get personal. I stared down at my legs. 
I could still see a trail of dried piss and blood stuck to my inner thigh and thought to myself, who in this entire fucked up world would still be in this fight? Only you, Goggins. You haven't trained. You don't know dick about hydration and performance. All you know is you refuse to quit. Why? You know, let's pull back for a second, because I know your most avid fans and people who are listening or reading, a lot of them will have heard that story. You tell it on podcasts. It's so compelling, that story. It's more in detail here. But let's just go through it again. Like, where are you, where's your head? I mean, we know you, you need to find something more personal. Was that shocking for you, this, this, this thing that you thought was actually um, kind of a charitable race? Was it, did you, were you surprised that you, that you were confronted this way? I was very surprised, and I guess the biggest surprise to me was when I was duct taping my feet in that third hell week, I thought for sure there was nothing on the planet Earth that could even come near the kind of pain I was in during that third hell week, or after that third hell week. This right here shocked the hell out of me because I had never been in a situation where I was so mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually anything you can even think about I was so messed up that even though we have a you know we did a good job of describing it here unless I were to get my brain and put it in somebody's head would they ever know the amount of suffering I was truly in yeah I mean you've told me many times uh that there's nothing like this like this still is the top level of suffering you've been through right Nothing's even close to it. I'm I'm 43, and I've done so much more. Yeah, how many how many ultra races have you done? I think I've done 60 of them. <laughs> yeah, and this is still number one. This is still number one because when you go into something like this, and you are so undertrained, and so underprepared, even even mentally, you know, I had to reinvent the wheel mentally because I I really underestimated this race. Because, you know, I sat there and did the math. It was like just shy of a 15-minute mile. And, you know, that's walking pace. Mm -hmm. But when you go out in a race like this, I went out running hard. I didn't go out walking. I didn't go out pacing myself. So when you go out and you're pretty much blown by mile 50, the next 50 miles become straight uphill. Also, you might have been um, taking it a little lightly because you thought, Shit, 130 hours is harder than 24 hours. If I can do 130 hours twice, I can do 24 hours once. Exactly. But the thing that I didn't put into the whole equation was in Hell Week, sometimes you're in the water. Sometimes you're actually paddling, you know, you know, like, um, like in your boat. Sometimes you're running. You're using different muscle groups. And what makes running so brutal is you're using the same exact muscle group for hours. And that's what killed me. Interesting. I, I love how you put it here, and we're going to get into it now. Um, how dreams like how it's how the the goals we dream up for ourselves, the challenges that we imagine, they always come without the pain, right? You don't dream of the pain. You don't. You dream of the glory, not the pain. Oh yeah, I always talk about that, man. We always like, for instance, if you see something on TV that looks truly amazing, like maybe climbing Mount Everest, you're in a nice, warm house. You're chilling out with, you know, your boyfriend, girlfriend, husband or wife. You know, you might be drinking, you know, a nice cool drink and, you know, you're in a comfortable environment. So your mind makes you believe you can do anything. Oh my God, you know, I'm going to go climb Everest. But 
in that comfortable environment, your mind fools you completely. It's not until your ass is out there on Mount Everest and you're, you know, no oxygen, you're totally depleted, malnourished, do you start thinking, that was a dumbass idea on that couch. You know, that's when it comes real. It, 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 it becomes real. Perfect. Well, let's get back into it and we can talk a little bit more after the chapter. It's funny. Humans tend to hatch our most challenging goals and dreams, the ones that demand our greatest effort yet promise absolutely nothing when we are tucked into our comfort zones. I was at work when Kostman laid out his challenge for me. I just had a warm shower. I was fed and watered. I was comfortable. And looking back, every single time I've been inspired to do something difficult, I was in a soft environment. Because it all sounds doable when you're chilling on your fucking couch with a glass of lemonade or a chocolate shake in your hand. When we're comfortable, we can't answer those simple questions that are bound to arise in the heat of battle because we don't even realize they're coming. But those answers are very important when you are no longer in your air-conditioned room or under your fluffy blanket, when your body is broken and beaten, when you're confronted with agonizing pain and staring into the unknown, your mind will spin. And that's when those questions become toxic. If you aren't prepared in advance, if you allow your mind to remain undisciplined in an environment of intense suffering, it won't feel like it, but it is very much a choice you are making. The only answer you are likely to find is the one that will make it stop as fast as possible. I don't know. Hell Week changed everything for me. It allowed me to have the mindset to sign up for that 24-hour race with less than a week's notice. Because during Hell Week, you live all the emotions of life, all the highs and lows, in six days. In 130 hours, you earn decades of wisdom. That's why there was a schism between the twins after Marcus went through Bud's. He'd gained the kind of self-knowledge that could only come from being broken down to nothing and finding more within. Morgan couldn't speak that language until he endured it for himself. After surviving two Hell Weeks and participating in three, I was a native speaker. Hell Week was home. It was the fairest place I've ever been in this world. There were no timed evolutions, there was nothing graded, and there were no trophies. It was an all-out war of me against me, and that's exactly where I found myself again when I was reduced to my absolute lowest on a hospitality point. Why? Why are you still doing this to yourself, Goggins? Because you are one hard motherfucker, I screamed. The voices in my head were so penetrating, I had to bite back out loud. I was on to something. I felt an energy build immediately as I realized that still being in the fight was a miracle in itself. Except it wasn't a miracle. God didn't come down and bless my ass. I did this. I kept going when I should have quit five hours ago. I am the reason I still have a chance. And I remembered something else, too. This wasn't the first time I'd taken on a seemingly impossible task. I picked up my pace. I was still walking, but I wasn't sleepwalking anymore. I had life. I kept digging into my past, into my own imaginary cookie jar. I remembered as a kid, no matter how fucked up our life was, my mother always figured out a way to stock our damn cookie jar. She'd buy wafers and Oreos, Pepperidge Farm Milanos and Chips Ahoy, and whenever she showed up with a new batch of cookies, she'd dump them into one jar, with her permission, we'd get to pick one or two out at a time. It was like a mini treasure hunt. I remember the joy of dropping my fist into that jar, wondering what I'd find. And before I crammed the cookie in my mouth, I always took the time to admire it first, especially when we were broke in Brazil. I'd turn it around in my hand and say my own little prayer of thanks. 
The feeling of being that kid, locked in a moment of gratitude for a simple gift like a cookie, came back to me. I felt it viscerally, and I used that concept to stuff a new kind of cookie jar. Inside it were all my past victories. Like the time when I had to study three times as hard as anybody else during my senior year in high school just to graduate. That was a cookie. Or when I passed the ASVAB test as a senior, and then again to get into BUDS. Two more cookies. I remembered dropping over 100 pounds in under three months, conquering my fear of water, graduating BUDS at the top of my class, and being named Enlisted Honor Man in Army Ranger Training. More on that soon. All of those were cookies, loaded with chocolate chunks. These weren't mere flashbacks. I wasn't just floating through my memory files. I actually tapped into the emotional state I felt during those victories, and in so doing, accessed my sympathetic nervous system once again. My adrenaline took over. The pain started to fade just enough, and my pace picked up. I began swinging my arms and lengthening my stride. My fractured feet were still a bloody mess, full of blisters, the toenails peeling off almost every toe, but I kept pounding. And soon it was me who was slaloming runners with pained expressions as I raced the clock. From then on, the cookie jar became a concept I've employed whenever I need a reminder of who I am and what I'm capable of. We all have a cookie jar inside us because life, being what it is, has always tested us. Even if you're feeling low and beat down by life right now, I guarantee you can think of a time or two when you overcame odds and tasted success. It doesn't have to be a big victory either. It can be something small. I know we all want the whole victory today, but when I was teaching myself to read, I would be happy when I could understand every word in a single paragraph. I knew I still had a long way to go to move from a third grade reading level to that of a senior in high school, but even a small win like that was enough to keep me interested in learning and finding more within myself. You don't drop 100 pounds in less than three months without losing five pounds in a week first. Those first five pounds I lost were a small accomplishment, and it doesn't sound like a lot, but at the time it was proof that I could lose weight and that my goal, however improbable, was not impossible. The engine in a rocket ship does not fire without a small spark first. We all need small sparks, small accomplishments in our lives to fuel the big ones. Think of your small accomplishments as kindling. When you want a bonfire, you don't start by lighting a big log. You collect some witch's hair, a small pile of hay or some dry dead grass. You light that, and then add small sticks and bigger sticks before you feed your tree stump into the blaze. Because it's the small sparks which start small fires that eventually build enough heat to burn the whole fucking forest down. If you don't have any big accomplishments to draw on yet, so be it. Your small victories are your cookies to savor, and make sure you do savor them. Yeah, I was hard on myself when I looked in the accountability mirror, but I also praised myself whenever I could claim a small victory, because we all need that, and very few of us take the time to celebrate our successes. Sure, in the moment we might enjoy them, but do we ever look back on them and feel that win again and again? Maybe that sounds narcissistic to you, but I'm not talking about bullshitting about the glory days here. I'm not suggesting you crawl up your own ass and bore your friends with all your stories about what a badass you used to be. Nobody wants to hear that shit. I'm talking about utilizing past successes to fuel you to new and bigger ones. Because in the heat of battle, when shit gets real, we need to draw inspiration to push through our own exhaustion, depression, pain, and misery. We need to spark a bunch of small fires to become the motherfucking inferno. 
But digging into the cookie jar when things are going south takes focus and determination, because at first the brain doesn't want to go there. It wants to remind you that you're suffering and that your goal is impossible. It wants you to stop so it can stop the pain. That night in San Diego was the most difficult night of my life physically. I'd never felt so broken, and there were no souls to take. I wasn't competing for a trophy. There was no one standing in my way. All I had to draw on to keep myself going was me. The cookie jar became my energy bank. Whenever the pain got to be too much, I dug into it and took a bite. The pain was never gone, but I only felt it in waves because my brain was otherwise occupied, which allowed me to drown out the simple questions and shrink time. Each lap became a victory lap, celebrating a different cookie, another small fire. Mile 81 became 82, and an hour and a half later, I was in the 90s. I'd run 90 fucking miles with no training. Who does that shit? An hour later, I was at 95, and after nearly 19 hours of running almost nonstop, I'd done it. I'd hit 100 miles. Or had I? I couldn't remember, so I ran one more lap, just to make sure. After running 101 miles, my race finally over, I staggered to my lawn chair, and Kate placed a camouflage poncho liner over my body as I shivered in the fog. Steam poured off me. My vision was blurred. I remember feeling something warm on my leg, looked down, and saw I was pissing blood again. I knew what was coming next, but the porta-potties were about 40 feet away, which may as well have been 40 miles, or 4,000. I tried to get up, but I was way too dizzy, and collapsed back into that chair, an immovable object ready to accept the inevitable truth that I was about to shit myself. It was much worse this time. My entire backside and lower back was smeared with warm feces. Kate knew what an emergency looked like. She sprinted to our Toyota Camry and backed the car up on the grassy knoll beside me. My legs were stiff as fossils, frozen in stone, and I leaned on her to slide into the back seat. She was frantic behind the wheel and wanted to take me directly to the ER, but I wanted to go home. We lived on the second deck of an apartment complex in Chula Vista, and I leaned on her back with my arms around her neck as she led me up that staircase. She balanced me up against the stucco as she opened the door to our apartment. I took a few steps inside before blacking out. I came to on the kitchen floor a few minutes later. My back was still smeared with shit, my thighs caked in blood and urine, my feet were blistered up and bleeding in 12 places. Seven of my 10 toenails were dangling loose connected only by tabs of dead skin. We had a combination tub and shower, and she got the shower going before helping me crawl toward the bathroom and climb into the tub. I remember lying there naked, with the shower pouring down upon me. I shivered, felt and looked like death, and then I started peeing again. But instead of blood or urine, what came out of me looked like thick brown bile. Petrified, Kate stepped into the hall to dial my mom. She'd been to the race with a friend of hers who happened to be a doctor. When he heard my symptoms, the doctor suggested that I might be in kidney failure and that I needed to go to the ER immediately. Kate hung up, stormed into the bathroom, and found me lying on my left side in the fetal position. We need to get you to the ER now, David. She kept talking, shouting, crying, trying to reach me through the haze, and I heard most of what she said. But I knew if we went to the hospital, they'd give me painkillers, and I didn't want to mask this pain. I'd just accomplished the most amazing feat in my entire life. It was harder than Hell Week, more significant to me than becoming a SEAL, and more challenging than my deployment to Iraq, because this time I had done something I'm not sure anyone had ever done before. 
I ran 101 miles with zero preparation. I knew then that I'd been selling myself short, that there was a whole new level of performance out there to tap into, that the human body can withstand and accomplish a hell of a lot more than most of us think possible, and that it all begins and ends in the mind. This wasn't a theory. It wasn't something I'd read in a damn book. I'd experienced it firsthand on Hospitality Point. This last part, this pain and suffering, this was my trophy ceremony. I'd earned this. This was confirmation that I'd mastered my own mind, at least for a little while, and that what I'd just accomplished was something special. As I lay there, curled up in the tub, shivering in the fetal position, relishing the pain, I thought of something else too. If I could run 101 miles with zero training, imagine what I could do with a little preparation. Goggins, man. I mean, what happens when you hear that? Are you are you right back on Hospitality Point? That race brings back a lot of memories. I've never in my entire life suffered like that. I didn't know that was even possible to suffer like that. But the one thing I figured out through all that suffering was that it was possible to go so much further than what, I mean, than what anybody thinks. Mm. I mean... Literally, at, at mile 70, I was done. I was done at mile 50. And to go that much further, feeling that bad, it changed my perspective on life. It, I mean, it, it really did. And that's directed directly because of how, how much suffering there was. I mean, you've told me many times that this is the top suffering of all the amazing <laughs> things that you've dealt with and all the pain you've dealt with. This is number one. There's nothing even close to this, man. You know, I was in Hell Week, Ranger School, I'd done tons of things in my life, you know, so at, at, at 43, I'd done a lot of shit. 60 ultras or something yeah, like that? Yeah, 60 ultras by now. And I look back at this race that was on a, a flat one-mile track, and this thing kicked the living hell out of me. You know, when you're not prepared and you go out there strictly on blood and guts, mileplex and rich crackers, <laughs> you know, that's about the dumbest equation for, for pre- I mean, you are bound to fail. You are bound to fail. And to sit back through all that stuff and figure out how to succeed, that's what I get out of that, man. Like, you know, I didn't freak out. You know, I'm at mile 70. I have diarrhea on me, peeing a little bit of blood. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, you know, I wasn't sitting there thinking, man, I got to pull out of this thing. I was thinking, how can I do this? How can I do this? And I was slowly just getting my mind. And it was, it was truly beautiful. So in the most painful time of my entire life, I saw the most beauty in life. It was, it was so crazy because everything started slowing down because I knew I wasn't going to quit. I knew I wasn't going to quit. And once your mind knows it's not going to quit, something happens. It starts to say, oh, okay, I guess we got to find more. I guess we got to find more. So that's what I realized. If your brain is in control and you are in control of your brain, you will find more. Challenge six. Take inventory of your cookie jar. Crack your journal open again. Write it all out. Remember, this is not some breezy stroll through your personal trophy room. Don't just write down your achievement hit list. Include life obstacles you've overcome as well, like quitting smoking or overcoming depression or a stutter. Add in those minor tasks you failed earlier in life 
but tried again a second or third time and ultimately succeeded at. Feel what it was like to overcome those struggles, those opponents, and win. Then get to work. Set ambitious goals before each workout and let those past victories carry you to new personal bests. If it's a run or bike ride, include some time to do interval work and challenge yourself to beat your best mile split or simply maintain a maximum heart rate for a full minute, then two minutes. If you're at home, focus on pull-ups or push-ups. Do as many as possible in two minutes, then try to beat your best. When the pain hits and tries to stop you short of your goal, dunk your fist in, pull out a cookie, and let it fuel you. If you're more focused on intellectual growth, train yourself to study harder and longer than ever before, or read a record number of books in a given month. Your cookie jar can help there too, because if you perform this challenge correctly and truly challenge yourself, you'll come to a point in any exercise where pain, boredom, or self-doubt kicks in, and you'll need to push back to get through it. The cookie jar is your shortcut to taking control of your own thought process. Use it that way. The point here isn't to make yourself feel like a hero for the fuck of it. It's not a hooray for me session. It's to remember what a badass you are so you can use that energy to succeed again in the heat of battle. Post your memories and the new successes they fueled on social media and include the hashtags, hashtag can't hurt me, hashtag cookie jar. So uh, anything you want to expand on here and, and why you think it's, it's uh, such a good exercise for, for the readers? Well, I think we covered it pretty, you know, pretty good here, but I do have a story that I will uh, share with the readers or with the listeners. And as we talked about with Marcus and Morgan Luttrell, and the reader or the, the listener now knows that Marcus and Morgan are twins, and Morgan is one minute older than Marcus. So as the story goes, Marcus went to Buzz before Morgan. And Marcus is not a good runner. Marcus is not a good runner. So at this time, Morgan was in college, and Morgan came to visit Marcus. And they're in their room, I think it's Sunday night. So every Monday, every Monday morning, we have a 04 or 05. We have to meet on the beach for a hard-packed four-mile time run. <laughs> so... I guess, you know, Marcus had some messed up legs. He was, you know, he was suffering pretty bad. I guess he had some stress fractures. He had a messed up femur. He had just a, just, just a jacked up bottom half of his body. So it was Morgan, Marcus, and a friend of his from his class. And they came up with an idea. At first it was a joke. It was a big joke. They said, hey, Morgan, you ought to go ahead and be Marcus for a day. And... This is one of the greatest bud stories of all time. <laughs> and it's a true story. And I won't be able to do it justice because I don't know all the details, but I'll give you the details that I do know. And I actually talked to Morgan and he said I can share the story with you all. So enjoy this. So we're in, you know, arguably the hardest training, you know, in the world. And these guys pull off one of the best all-time trickeries in the world. So Marcus and Morgan actually switched for the day. <laughs> Marcus is in his room, hiding out. Morgan, who is not even in the military, not even in the military, let alone SEAL training, he is now posing as Marcus. He's like a freshman in University of Texas or some shit, exactly. right? Exactly. <laughs> he's, he's at some university. He comes in to visit. And now Morgan, who knows nothing about the military, is now posing as Marcus for this four-mile time run. 
Now, Marcus, once again, cannot run to save his soul. But he happens to get through buds. But so Morgan comes in. He does the run for Marcus. No one knows anything but a few guys in his class. Then it's supposed to be over. But Morgan goes on and does the rest of the day. So he does a full day in buds as Marcus Luttrell. Now, look, you're not going to hear that anywhere. You're not going to hear that anywhere but here. So that's a true story about Marcus and Morgan. Those two are thickest thieves. And it's just it's just one of the most amazing stories of uh, all time for Buds. I loved hearing that story f- from Morgan when he told us. It's it was almost like I, I, after the run, he kind of like the, the day went differently than they had planned. Right? There was no way for him to get out of there. <laughs> right? He got kind of stuck being Marcus the whole day. <laughs> so yeah, I forgot about that. You are right. You but are didn't, right. But didn't the leadership eventually find out and like award him like some like they honored him at the graduation or no? Did that, am I imagining that? Oh no, you're not imagining anything. So what happened was Marcus graduated. I think he graduated in two two eight. Yeah, he was 228 because I was 230. I was his Huya class. So he graduated in 228. So literally nine classes later in 237, here comes Morgan. So by now, after nine classes, all the instructors now know that Morgan was posing as Marcus. So when Morgan comes in, they beat the living shit out of Morgan. <laughs> but Morgan graduates, you know, they actually you know, thought it was kind of funny. But he, uh, I think Morgan got honor man in class 237, but he got beat, he got beat badly for that incident. So there was nothing that was public, but they just told him privately they knew, they knew what happened. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It was, it was funny. He, he, ha ha. We're going to beat the shit out of you type of shit. That's amazing. Yeah. Great story. Oh, that's like a, you know, all time bud stunt right there. You know what? It was, it was great. I, I wasn't around to see it. I don't know. Surprisingly, I was in Buzz for like 10 years. You know, <laughs> Buzz is six months, and I was there for like 18 months, man. So it was it was a brutal time for David Goggins. Oh, man. Well, what an amazing story. The, the San Diego One Day is an all-timer as well. And we just keep going because it just keeps getting more. You get more and more mental mastery as you get out. As you, you, know, you start developing your principles more and more now as we go through your life. Isn't that right? You know what? And that's the, that's the whole sickness of all this, man. And I, and I hope that people, as they're reading this, you know, as they're listening to this book and also reading the book, that they start to realize you can come from absolutely nothing. And it wasn't like somebody came down and had all these great trainers and these great psychiatrists, and these great teachers. You can literally do it on your own. But you have to accept a whole bunch of shit to do that. You don't need all these special tools. The tool, the most powerful tool in the world is the one that I continue to come back to, and that is your mind. We have to learn to put all these phones down, all these computers, and start to really use your mind. It's the most powerful weapon in the world. And that's where we go next. And we're going to get into the 40% rule, which I know is really popular uh, with your followers and will be with readers as well and listeners. So I'm really excited to share that with you next time. We're going to sign off for day two here from the studio and uh, looking forward to day three. All right, ma'am. We'll see you all tomorrow.